Chapter 12. The Founding Father of Modern Economics. Richard Cantillon. Most people, economists and laymen alike, think that economists sprang full-blown, so to speak, from the head of Adam Smith in the late 18th century. What has become known as the first or classical period of modern economic thought then developed, out of Smith, through David Ricardo, including an aggregative approach and a cost of production or even a labor theory of value. We now know, however, that this account is flatly incorrect. For modern economic thought, that is, analysis centering on explaining the market economy, developed a half-century before Smith's Wealth of Nations, not in Britain, but in France. More significantly, the French writers, despite their diversity, must be set down not as pre-Ricardian, but as proto-Austrian, that is, forerunners of the individualistic, micro, deductive, and subjective value approach that originated in Vienna in the 1870s. 1. Cantillon the Man The honor of being called the father of modern economics belongs then, not to its usual recipient, Adam Smith, but to a gallicized Irish merchant, banker, and adventurer who wrote the first treatise on economics more than four decades before the publication of The Wealth of Nations. Richard Cantillon, circa early 1680s to 1734, is one of the most fascinating characters in the history of social or economic thought. Little is known about Cantillon's life, despite the fact that he died a multimillionaire. But the best modern researches show that he was born in Ireland in County Kerry, of a family of Irish landed gentry, who had been dispossessed by the depredations of the English Puritan invader Oliver Cromwell. Cantillon's first cousin, once removed, also named Richard, emigrated to Paris to become a successful banker, thereby perpetuating the tradition, born in the 16th century, of religio-political exiles from Britain emigrating to France. The Cantillons were part of the Catholic emigration, centering by the end of the 17th century around the Stuart pretender to the throne of Great Britain. Richard Cantillon joined the emigration to Paris in 1714, quickly becoming the chief assistant to his cousin at the latter's bank. Moreover, Richard's mother's uncle, Sir Daniel Arthur, was a prominent banker in London and Paris, and Arthur had named Richard's cousin as the Paris correspondent of his London-based bank. In two years, Cantillon was in a position to buy his cousin's ownership of the bank. Richard Cantillon was now in the important position of banker for the Stuart court in exile, as well as for the bulk of the British and Irish émigrés in Paris. But his most important coup came from his association with the Scottish adventurer and arch-inflationist John Law, 1671-1729, who had captured the imagination and the greed of the Regent of France. 
The death of the aged Louis XIV in 1715 had inaugurated a looser and more optimistic regime, control of which had been seized by the regent, the Duke of Orléans. John Law persuaded the regent that France could find permanent prosperity and need have no further worries about the public debt. The French government need only finance heavy deficits by a massive infusion of the relatively new device of government paper money. Becoming the leading financier of the French government and even controller general of the finances of France, Law set loose a rampant inflation that generated the wildly speculative Mississippi Bubble, 1717-1720. The bubble created instant millionaires before it collapsed, leaving John Law in poverty and disgrace. Indeed, the very word millionaire was coined during the heady years of the Mississippi bubble. But when the dust had settled, the shrewd Richard Cantillon emerged, after being a top partner in John Law's Mississippi speculations, as a multimillionaire. Legend has it that at the beginning of his meteoric career running French finances, John Law had come to Cantillon and warned him that if we were in England, we would have to strike a deal and settle matters, but as we are in France, I can send you this evening to the Bastille if you do not give me your word to leave the kingdom within twenty-four hours. To which Cantillon is supposed to have replied, Hold on. I will not go, and I will make your system succeed. In any case, we know that Law, Catillon, and the English speculator Joseph Edward Beau Gage formed a private company in November 1718. Gage was so wealthy from paper speculation in Law's government-sponsored paper-issue bank, the Mississippi Company, that he seriously attempted in this period to purchase the Kingdom of Poland from its king, Augustus. As the Mississippi bubble careened onward, Cantillon, an astute analyst of monetary affairs, saw deeply that the bubble was bound to burst soon, and he took steps to make millions out of the foolishness of his partners and clients. Lending money to Gage and others with which to buy inflated Mississippi Company shares, Cantillon quietly sold all of his own shares, as well as the inflated shares that his borrowers had left him as collateral, locked all his papers in a strong box, took his accumulated millions, and left town for Italy, there to await in safety the financial storm that he could see developing. After Gage and the other Cantillon clients went broke in the 1720 crash, Cantillon pursued them to repay his loans, for which they had been happy to pay a rate of interest up to 55%, which had incorporated a huge inflation premium. Richard Cantillon returned to Paris a multimillionaire, albeit unpopular with his former associates and debtors. Soon he married Mary Ann, daughter of the late Count Daniel O'Mahony, an Irish general. His mother-in-law, Charlotte Bulkley, was the sister-in-law of James Fitzjames, the Duke of Berwick, Marshal of France, and the natural son of the English King James II. 
He was, therefore, the Stuart pretender, James III. Cantillon thus married into an Irish military family closely connected with the Stuarts and with the French court. At some time during the early 1730s, probably around 1730, this successful banker and speculator wrote his great work in French, the Essai sur la nature du commerce en général. In the fashion of the day, the result of the censorship of that era, this treatise was not published, but circulated widely in manuscript, in literary and intellectual circles, until it was finally published two decades later, in 1755. Richard Cantillon's exit from this life was as mysterious and adventurous as his overall career, in May 1734, while living in London, in one of his many houses in the leading cities of Europe, Catillon died in a fire that burned his house to the ground. It was subsequently found that he was murdered inside the house, the fire being presumably set to cover the murder. Three of his servants were tried for his murder and found not guilty, while his French cook, who had been dismissed three weeks earlier, fled overseas with a considerable amount of valuables. The runaway cook was never found. Earl Egmont, whose brother lived next door to Cantillon, wrote in his diary that Cantillon was a debauched man and his servants of bad reputation and so ended, under highly mysterious circumstances, the only leading economist in history who lost his life as a victim of murder. 2. Methodology Richard Cantillon's essay has been justly called by W. Stanley Jevons the first treatise on economics, and the historian of economic thought, Charles Gide, referred to it as the first systematic treatment of political economy. The best overall assessment is that of F. A. Hayek, the Austrian economist, who has done important work in the history of thought. This gifted independent observer, enjoying an unsurpassed vantage point in the midst of the action, coordinated what he saw with the eyes of the born theoretician, and was the first person who succeeded in penetrating and presenting to us almost the entire field, which we now call economics. The scholastics had written general treatises on almost all of human knowledge, in which discussions of economics or the market played a subordinate part. And in the mercantilist era, the mercantilists and their critics delivered, at best, intelligent aperçus on particular economic, usually economic policy, topics. But Richard Cantillon was the first theorist to demarcate an independent area of investigation, economics, and to write a general treatise on all its aspects. One reason that Cantillon was the first of the moderns is that he emancipated economic analysis from its previous intertwining with ethical and political concerns. The mercantilists, dominant in economic thought for the preceding century or two, were special pleaders, whose titbits of analysis were pressed into the service of political ends, either in subsidizing particular interests or in building up the power of the state. 
The medieval and Renaissance scholastics, while incomparably more thoughtful and systematic, had embedded their economic analysis in a moral and theological framework. To break out of the mercantilist morass, it was necessary to step aside, to focus on the economic features of human action, and to analyze them, abstracting them from other concerns, however important. Separating out economic analysis from ethics, politics, or even concrete economic data did not mean that these matters were unimportant or should never be brought back in, for it was impossible to decide the ethics of economic life, or what government should or should not do, without finding out how the market worked, or what the effect of interventions might be. Cantillon, presumably, at least dimly, saw the need for this at least temporary emancipation of economic analysis. Furthermore, Cantillon was one of the first to use such unique tools of economic abstraction as what Ludwig von Mises would later identify as the indispensable method of economic reasoning, the Gedanken experiment, or thought experiment. Human life is not a laboratory where all variables can be kept fixed by the experimenter, who can then vary one in order to determine its effects. In human life, all factors, including human action, are variable, and nothing remains constant. But the theorist can analyze cause-and-effect relations by substituting mental abstractions for laboratory experiment. He can hold variables fixed mentally, the method of assuming all other things equal, and then reason out the effects of allowing one variable to change. By starting with simple models and introducing successive complications as the simpler ones are analyzed, the economist can at last discover the nature and operations of the market economy in the real world. Thus the economist can validly conclude from his analysis that all other things equal, ceteris paribus, an increase in demand will raise price. In the 1690s, as we have seen in Chapter 9, a leader of the emergent classical liberal opposition to the statism and mercantilism of Louis XIV, the provincial judge, the Sieur de Bois-Gilbert, had introduced into economics the method of abstraction and successive approximations, beginning with the simplest model and proceeding in increasing complexity. In illustrating the nature and advantages of specialization and trade, Bois-Gilbert had begun with the simplest hypothetical exchange, two workers, one producing wool, the other wheat and then extended his analysis to a small town, and finally to the entire world. Richard Cantillon greatly developed this systematic method of abstractions and successive approximations. He liberally used the ceteris paribus method. Through this analytic method he uncovered natural cause-and-effect relations in the market economy. The France of Cantillon's day was a country of great landed feudal estates, the result of the conquests of previous centuries. 
And so Cantillon brilliantly began the economic analysis in his essay with the assumption that the whole world consists of one giant estate. In that admittedly unrealistic but illuminating construct, all production is dependent on the wishes, the desires, of the monopoly owner, who simply tells everyone what to do. Put another way, production depends on demand, except that here there is, in effect, one demander, the monopoly landowner. Cantillon then makes one simple realistic change in his model. The landowner has farmed out the land to various producers of all kinds. But as soon as that happens, the economy cannot continue with one man giving orders. For its continued operation, the individual producers must exchange their products, and a free market economy comes into being, with its attendant competition, trade, and price system. Furthermore, money arises out of this exchange as a commodity serving as a much-needed medium of exchange and measure of values. 3. VALUE AND PRICE Catillon engaged in the first sophisticated modern analysis of market pricing, showing in detail how demand interacts with existing stock to form prices. In contrast to the later Smith-Ricardo classicists and foreshadowing the Austrians, Catillon was largely interested in price formation in the real world, that is, actual market prices, rather than in the chimera of long-run normal pricing. In an important recent interchange on Cantillon, Professor Vincent Taraccio interprets him as a classicist or neoclassicist, at least insofar as holding that market prices tend in the long run to approach the intrinsic value of a good, that is, the cost of production in terms of land and labor inputs of the product. This was the Smith-Ricardo theory of equilibrium pricing, which has been basically expanded into Valrassian general equilibrium theory. But while there are passages in Cantillon justifying this approach, and the term intrinsic value is certainly an unfortunate one, Professor David O'Mahony, in a perceptive comment on the Terracio article, points out that Cantillon's approach was, in reality, pre-Austrian. First, O'Mahony shows that Cantillon's market price analysis was the Austrian one of a given existing stock of a good, evaluated and demanded by consumers. Quoting from Cantillon, it is clear that the quantity of product or of merchandise offered for sale, in proportion to the demand or number of buyers, is the basis on which is fixed, or always supposed to be fixed, the actual market prices. Demand, in turn, is subjective, dependent on humors, fancies, mode of living, etc., these subjective valuations are what impart value to the products offered for sale. It is the consent of mankind, says Cantillon, which gives value to lace, linen, fine cloths, copper, and other metals. 
For Cantillon, actual market prices are determined by demand. It often happens that many things which actually have this intrinsic value are not sold in the market at that value. That will depend on the humors and fancies of men and on their consumption. Thus the value of products is imparted by consumer valuation, a crucial proto-Austrian insight derived from medieval and late Spanish scholastics. For centuries, in fact, the scholastic and post-scholastic position had been that the value of goods is determined by utility and scarcity, by subjective valuation of a given supply. The more utility, the higher the value, and the more abundant the supply, the lower the value and price of any good on the market. Cantillon's is a sophisticated and elaborated development of the scholastic approach. While Cantillon considers the intrinsic value of a thing, the measure of the land and labor which enter into its production, he concedes immediately that subjective valuation by consumers, rather than intrinsic value, determines price. Going into detail on intrinsic value, Cantillon refers to the hypothetical case of an American who travels to Europe to sell beaver skins for hats, but is then rightly astonished to learn that woolen hats are as serviceable as those made of beaver, and that all the difference which causes so long a sea journey is in the fancy of those who think beaver hats lighter and more agreeable to the eye and the touch. In short, the entire cost of production, all the labor and effort that went into the production and transport of beaver skins, means nothing unless the product satisfies the consumer enough to pay for the costs, and to enable the product to compete with another commodity made more cheaply at home. It is consumer demand that determines sales as well as price. O'Mahony goes on to point out that Cantillon's monopoly estate model clearly shows that demand, in this case that of the world monopoly landowner, and not cost of production determines price. Cantillon, then, did not foreshadow the classical equilibrium theory that cost of production constituted the long run, and presumably, therefore, the most important determinant of market price. On the contrary, for Cantillon, cost of production had a very different function, deciding whether a business could make profits or else have to suffer losses and go out of business. If consumer value, and therefore the selling price of a product, is high enough to more than cover costs, the firm makes a profit. If not high enough, it suffers losses, and eventually has to go out of business. This is an important part of the Austrian view of the role of costs. Thus, Cantillon discusses costs and prices in the manufacture of Brussels lace, if the price which the ladies pay for the lace does not cover all the costs and profits, there will be no encouragement for this manufacture, and the undertaker will cease to carry it on or become bankrupt. 
But, as we have supposed this manufacture is continued, it is necessary that all costs be covered by the prices paid by the ladies of Paris. Hence the movement toward long-run equilibrium is not a process of adjusting market prices to intrinsic long-run costs of production, but one of laborers and entrepreneurs moving in and out of various lines of production until costs of production and selling prices are equal. As O'Mahony well puts it, for Catillon, then, it is not so much that intrinsic values exist automatically and spontaneously, and that market prices are drawn towards them, as that the prices offered in the market determine whether or not it is worth producing things. In other words, it is the prices offered that determine what production costs can be incurred, not that production costs determine what the prices must be. Of course, there is a big gap, both in Cantillon's approach and that of the later Smith-Ricardo classicists, as well as of the modern Ricardian neoclassicists. Where do the costs of production come from? In contrast to the Cantillon and classical approach, they are neither intrinsic nor mandated from some mysterious force outside the economic system. Costs of production, as it took the Austrians to finally point out, are themselves determined by the expected consumer demand for goods and services. 4. Uncertainty and the Entrepreneur One of Cantillon's remarkable contributions to economic thought is that he was the first to stress and analyze the entrepreneur. To this real-world merchant, banker, and speculator, it would have been inconceivable to fall into the Ricardian, Valrassian, and neoclassical trap of assuming that the market is characterized by perfect knowledge and a static world of certainty. The real-world marketplace is permeated by uncertainty, and it is the function of the businessman, the undertaker, the entrepreneur, to meet and bear that uncertainty by investing, paying expenses, and then hoping for a profitable return. Profits, then, are a reward for successful forecasting, for successful uncertainty-bearing in the process of production. The crucial Smithian, Ricardian, and Valrassian classical and neoclassical assumption that the economy is perpetually in a state of long-run equilibrium fatally rules out the real world of uncertainty. Instead, it focuses on a never-never land of no change, and hence of perfect certainty and perfect knowledge of present and future. Thus, Catillon divides producers in the market economy into two classes. Hired people who receive fixed wages or fixed land rents, and entrepreneurs with non-fixed, uncertain returns. The farmer entrepreneur bears the risk of fixed costs of production and of uncertain selling prices while the merchant or manufacturer pays similar fixed costs and relies on an uncertain return. 
Except for those who only sell their own labor, business entrepreneurs must lay out monies which, after they have done so, are fixed or given from their point of view. Since sales and selling prices are uncertain and not fixed, their business income becomes an uncertain residual. Catillon also sees that the pervasive uncertainty borne by the entrepreneurs is partly the consequence of a decentralized market. In a world of one monopoly owner, the owner himself decides upon prices and production, and there is little entrepreneurial uncertainty. But in the real world, the decentralized entrepreneurs face a great deal of uncertainty and must bear its risks. For Cantillon, competition and entrepreneurship go hand in hand. As in the case of Frank Knight and the modern Austrians, Cantillon's theory of entrepreneurship focuses on his function, his role as uncertainty-bearer in the market, rather than, as in the case of Josef Schumpeter, on facets of his personality. Cantillon's concept also anticipates von Mises and the modern Austrians in another respect. His entrepreneur performs not a disruptive, as in Schumpeter, but an equilibrating function. That is, by successfully forecasting and investing resources in the future, the entrepreneur helps adjust and balance supply and demand in the various markets. Professor Tarascio points out that Cantillon's pioneering insight into the pervasive uncertainty of the market was largely forgotten, and before long dropped out of economic thought, until independently resurrected in the twentieth century by Knight and by such modern Austrians as Ludwig von Mises and F. A. Hayek. But, as Professor O. Mahoney wryly comments, to acknowledge his, Cantillon's, recognition of uncertainty when we look at him as Professor Tarascio does from a current perspective, is thus more of a reflection on many modern economists whose capacity to ignore uncertainty is nothing short of bizarre than a tribute to Cantillon's prescience. Bizarre it may well be, but there is a method to the madness. For as Professor O'Mahony himself understands full well, modern economics is a set of formal models and equations purporting to fully determine human behavior, at least in the economic realm. And there is no way that uncertainty can be compressed into determinate mathematical models. As O'Mahony puts it, one might ask if entrepreneurial activity can, in the nature of things, be made the subject of formal representations or models at all. If they could, would there be any room for uncertainty in the true sense of the term, and therefore any room for entrepreneurship itself? Economic theory, in short, must choose between formally elegant but false and distorting mathematical models and the literary analysis of real human life itself. 5. Population Theory 
Richard Cantillon's theory of wages is dependent on population in a way that was copied almost word for word by Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations, which in turn inspired Malthus' famous anti-populationist hysteria. Cantillon's long-run wage theory depends on the supply of labor, which in turn depends on levels and growth of population. In contrast to the later Malthus, however, Cantillon engaged in a sophisticated analysis of the determinants of population growth. Natural resources, cultural factors, and the state of technology he diagnosed as particularly important. He saw prophetically that the colonization of North America would not be a simple displacement of one people by another, but that new agricultural technology would support a far larger population per acre of land. Hence the extent to which existing resources, land, and labor can be utilized depends on the existing state of technology. Thus, pre-colonial North America was not overpopulated by Indians, as some had believed. Instead, the Indian population level had adjusted to the given resources and technology available. In short, Cantillon foreshadowed the modern theory of optimum population, in which the size of population tends to adjust to the most productive level, given the resources and technology available. While Cantillon described a pre-Malthusian alleged tendency of human beings to multiply like rats in a barn, without limit, he also recognized that religious and cultural values can modify such tendencies. An increase in the demand for agricultural products that are land-intensive would tend to reduce the demand for agricultural labor, and eventually cause a fall in the supply of such labor, and hence of the population as a whole. Cantillon, it must be remembered, was writing in an age when the overwhelming bulk of the population was engaged in agriculture. An increase in the demand for labor-intensive farm products, on the other hand, would bring about an increase in the demand for labor, and hence of the population. Living, once again, in a country and an era of large feudal landed estates, Cantillon observed that it was the tastes of the proprietary classes that determined the consumer tastes and values of society, and hence the demand for products. It should be noted that in an unusually sophisticated way, Cantillon pointed out that it was outside the scope of economic analysis to decide whether it is better to have a large population of poorer people or a smaller population of people who enjoy a higher standard of living. That must be for the values of the citizenry to decide. Professor Terracio points out that Cantillon's population analysis was far more subtle and modern than that of Smith, Ricardo, or Malthus. Rather than worry about a future unchecked population explosion, Cantillon's theoretical framework accounted for the current cultural change to smaller families in industrialized countries, 
as well as the likelihood that population will adjust itself downward to any future depletion of resources. Catillon pointed out, for example, that as ancient civilizations declined, their population size declined along with them. The number of inhabitants of the Roman state in Italy, for example, declined from 25 million to about 6 million over a period of 17 centuries. 6. Spatial Economics Richard Cantillon was also the founder of spatial economies, of the analysis of economic activity in relation to geographical space. In a sense, of course, mercantilists, by advocating a favorable balance of geographical trade, analyzed, even if badly, economic activities to the extent that they crossed national borders. Spatial analysis, as Professor Hebert has pointed out, deals with distance, transportation cost and its relation to prices, as well as to the location of economic activities, and area, the geographical development and boundaries of markets. Catillon not only developed location theory, but integrated it into his general microeconomic analysis, in particular, he saw that the prices of produce, even when money and monetary prices were in equilibrium, would always be higher in the cities than in their place of production, by an amount needed to cover the costs and risks of transport. In consequence, products that are bulky and or perishable would be too costly or impossible to transport to the cities, and hence would be far cheaper at their places of production. Such products, then, would generally be grown in border areas around the cities, where the transport costs to the urban markets are not prohibitive. In manufacturing, furthermore, Cantillon saw that in cases where plants have to use bulky, low-value-per-unit-weight raw materials, they would tend to locate near the output of such materials. For in that case, it would be less costly to transport the less bulky, more valuable finished products to urban markets than to ship the raw materials. On the location of areas of urban markets, Cantillon was highly suggestive, pointing out that it is far less costly for buyers and sellers to gather at one spot than to travel around the periphery seeking each other out and finding out the various prices that buyers were willing to pay or sellers were willing to accept. In modern terms, Cantillon might say that central markets develop naturally because they enormously lower the transaction, transport, information, and other costs of trade. While Cantillon, therefore, saw how markets and the location of economic activity were able to regulate themselves harmoniously, he was not a consistent free trader internally, just as he was not in the foreign trade area. Internally, he held, inconsistently, that manufacturers needed much encouragement and capital to find and invest in the optimum locations. 7. Money and Process Analysis 
A highlight of Cantillon's theory of money is his treatment of the value of money as a special case of the value of market commodities in general. As in the case of any product, the alleged intrinsic value of gold is the cost of its production. The value of gold and silver, like other commodities, is set by the values and hence the demands of users in the market, by the consent of mankind. As in the case of other commodities, too, Cantillon has no cost-of-production theory of the value of gold and silver. He simply holds, as elsewhere, that these products can only be produced if costs can be covered by the value of the product. The process of aligning costs and values in gold, however, takes a relatively long time, since its annual output is a small proportion of the total stock in existence. If the nominal value of gold falls below its cost of production, it will cease being mined. And if costs fall sharply, production of gold will be stepped up, thus tending to align costs and normal values. Cantillon recognized that government paper and bank money virtually have no costs of production, and therefore no intrinsic value in his terminology but he pointed out that market forces keep the value of such fiduciary money at par with the value of the gold or silver in which that paper can be redeemed. As a consequence, an increase in the supply of fictitious or imaginary money has the same effect as increase in the circulation of real money. But, Cantillon noted, let confidence in the money be damaged, and monetary disorder issues, and the fictitious money collapses. He pointed out, too, that government is particularly subject to the temptation to print fictitious money, a lesson he had undoubtedly learned from, or at least seen embodied in, the John Law experiment. Cantillon also provided a sound analysis of how the market determines the ratio of the values of gold and silver. One of the superb features of Cantillon's essay is that he was the first in a pre-Austrian analysis to understand that money enters the economy as a step-by-step -step process, and hence does not simply increase or raise prices in a homogeneous aggregate. Hence he criticized John Locke's naive quantity theory of money, a theory still basically followed by monetarist and neoclassical economists alike, which holds that a change in the total supply of money causes only a uniform proportionate change in all prices. In short, an increased money supply is not supposed to cause changes in the relative prices of the various goods. Thus Cantillon, asking, in what way and in what proportion the increase of money raises prices, answers in an excellent process analysis. In general, an increase of actual money causes in a state a corresponding increase of consumption, which gradually brings about increased prices. 
If the increase of actual money comes from mines of gold and silver in the state, the owner of these mines, the adventurers, the smelters, the refiners, and all the other workers, will increase their expenses in proportion to their gains. They will consume more commodities. They will, consequently, give employment to several mechanics who had not so much to do before, and who, for the same reason, will increase their expenses. All this increase of expense in meat, wine, wool, etc., diminishes the share of the other inhabitants of the state who do not participate at first in the wealth of the mines in question. The alteration of the market, or the demand for meat, wine, wool, etc., being more intense than usual, will not fail to raise their prices. These high prices will determine the farmers to employ more land to produce them in another year. These same farmers will profit by this rise of prices and will increase the expenditure of their families, like the others. Those then who will suffer from this dearness and increased consumption will be first of all the landowners, during the term of their leases, then their domestic servants and all the workmen or fixed wage earners who support the families on their wages. All these must diminish their expenditure in proportion to the new consumption, it is thus, approximately, that a considerable increase of money from the mines increases consumption. In short, the early receivers of the new money will increase spending according to their preferences, raising prices in these goods at the expense of a lower standard of living among the late receivers of the new money, or among those on fixed incomes who don't receive the new money at all. Furthermore, relative prices will be changed in the course of the general price rise, since the increased spending is directed more or less to certain kinds of products or merchandise according to the idea of those who acquire the money, and market prices will rise more for certain things than for others. Moreover, the overall price rise will not necessarily be proportionate to the increase in the supply of money. Specifically, since those who receive new money will scarcely do so in the same proportion as their previous cash balances, their demands, and hence prices, will not all rise to the same degree. Thus, in England, the price of meat might be tripled, while the price of corn rises no more than a fourth. Catillon summed up his insight splendidly, while hinting at the important truth that economic laws are qualitative, but not quantitative. An increase of money circulating in a state always causes there an increase of consumption and a higher standard of expenses. But the dearness caused by this money does not affect equally all the kinds of products and merchandise proportionably to the quantity of money, unless what is added continues in the same circulation as the money before.
That is to say, unless those who offered in the market one ounce of silver be the same and only ones who now offer two ounces, when the amount of money in circulation is doubled in quantity, and that is hardly ever the case. I conceive that when a large surplus of money is brought into a state, the new money gives a new turn to consumption, and even a new speed to circulation, but it is not possible to say exactly to what extent. Not only that, but as Professor Hebert has pointed out, Cantillon also provided a remarkable proto-Austrian analysis of the different effects of the money going into consumption or investment. If the new funds are spent on consumer goods, then goods will be purchased according to the inclination of those who acquire the money so that the prices of those goods will be driven up, and relative prices necessarily changed. If, in contrast, the increased money comes first into the hands of lenders, they will increase the supply of credit and temporarily lower the rate of interest, thereby increasing investment. Repudiating the common superficial view, brought back to economics in the twentieth century by John Maynard Keynes, that interest is purely a monetary phenomenon, Cantillon held that the rate of interest is determined by the number and interactions of lenders and borrowers, just as the prices of particular goods are determined by the interaction of buyers and sellers. Thus Cantillon pointed out that, if the abundance of money in a state comes into the hands of money-lenders, it will doubtless bring about the current rate of interest by increasing the number of money-lenders. But if it comes into the hands of those who spend, it will have quite the opposite effect, and will raise the rate of interest by increasing the number of entrepreneurs who will find activity by this increased spending, and who will need to borrow in order to extend their enterprise to every class of customers. An increased supply of money, therefore, can either lower or raise interest rates temporarily, depending on who receives the new money. Lenders, or people who will be inspired by their new-found wealth to borrow for new enterprises. In his analysis of expanding credit lowering the rate of interest, furthermore, Cantillon provides the first hints of the later Austrian theory of the business cycle. In addition, Cantillon presented the first sophisticated analysis of how the demand for money, or rather its inverse, the speed or velocity of circulation, affects the impact of money, and hence the movement of prices. As he put it, an acceleration or greater rapidity in circulation of money in exchange is equivalent to an increase of actual money up to a point, one of the reasons why prices do not change in exact proportion to a change in the quantity of money is alterations in velocity. A river which runs and winds about in its bed will not flow with double the speed when the amount of water is doubled. Cantillon also saw that the demand for cash balances will depend on the frequency of payments made in the society. As Monroe sums up Cantillon's position, 
The longer the interval between payments, the larger are the sums which have to accumulate in the payer's hands, and the more money is required in the country. If people save large sums, furthermore, they may have to keep money locked up for considerable periods. On the other hand, the development of more efficient clearing systems for debts, as well as of paper money, will economize on cash. The rapidity of circulation is increased by the practice of offsetting accounts between merchants, and by the use of bankers' and goldsmiths' notes, for these men do not keep an equivalent amount of money on hand. Catillon summed up his analysis of the interaction of quantity and velocity. According to the principles we have established, the quantity of money circulating in exchange fixes and determines the price of everything in a state, taking into account the rapidity or sluggishness of circulation. Catillon also provided a masterful discussion of the relations between gold and silver, and advocated freely fluctuating exchange rates between gold and silver, attacking any attempts, certainly any long-lived attempts, to fix the exchange rate between them. For such a rate is soon bound to vary from the market rate, Thus Cantillon saw the problem in trying to maintain a bimetallic standard with fixed parities between two precious metals. All in all, we can understand Hayek's enthusiasm when he concludes that Cantillon's monetary theory constitutes without doubt the supreme achievement of a man who was the greatest pre-classical figure in at least this field, and whom the classical writers themselves in many instances not only failed to surpass, but even failed to equal. 8. International Monetary Relations One of the most notable features, and certainly the one drawing the most attention from historians, of Cantillon's extensive monetary theory, was his pioneering analysis of the tendency towards international monetary equilibrium, or the specie-flow price mechanism that has been generally attributed to the later writings of David Hume. Catillon applied his microanalysis of changes of the money supply within a country to changes in the distribution of money between countries. For over two centuries, mercantilist writers and statesmen in Europe had advocated an increased supply of specie in a country as a means of building up state power and they were increasingly clear that, short of having gold or silver mines, a nation could only increase its stock of money by having a favorable balance of trade. It was clear to the mercantilists that this was not a policy every nation could successfully pursue, for the favorable balances of trade of some nations would necessarily have to be offset by the unfavorable balances of others. In this disequilibrium situation, it was every nation for itself, as each attempted to benefit at the expense of other nations by restrictionist and warlike policies. But there was a further problem in the background. 
Since most writers were at least roughly familiar with the quantity theory or supply-demand analysis of the value of money, an inner contradiction loomed. For if Nation A managed to acquire a favorable balance of trade and to accumulate specie, the increase of specie would raise prices in Nation A, make the country's products uncompetitive in the world markets, and bring the favorable balance to an end. No one was more lucid about the problem of money and international payments than Cantillon. He pointed out that specie can either be acquired within a country by mining ore, or through subsidies, warfare, invisible payments, borrowing, or a favorable balance of trade with other countries. But then, in the Cantillon process analysis, either the mine owners or the exporters would spend or lend the money. Part of the expenditure of the new money would surely be spent abroad, and furthermore the increased stock of money would raise prices at home, making domestic goods less competitive. Exports would fall, and imports of cheaper foreign products would increase, and gold would flow out of the country, reversing the favorable balance of trade. In this way, Cantillon worked out an international monetary theory integrated with his domestic analysis, and was one of the first to work out a theory of international monetary equilibrium. For the world market managed to frustrate, at least in the long run, governmental attempts to intervene and secure favorable balances of trade. It should be noted further that Cantillon's analysis contained the basis of both major parts of the equilibrating specie flow price mechanism, the expenditure of new monetary cash balances increasing imports, and the increase of domestic prices caused by a higher money supply, the price effect lowering exports and adding to imports. Richard Cantillon understood the grave inner contradiction of mercantilism, increased specie raising prices and thereby destroying the favorable balance of payments that brought the specie. His unsatisfactory way out was to advise the king to hoard much of the increased stock so as not to drive up prices. Unsatisfactory because money is meant to be spent eventually, and once spent, the dreaded price increase would willy-nilly take place. Professor Salerno, however, has introduced a cautionary note in the encomiums to Cantillon, pointing out that he has been called only a semi-equilibrium theorist, because he did not portray a satisfactory picture of what the equilibrium state would be like, and he did not think of the world economy as tending firmly towards equilibrium. As a result, Cantillon did not present a theory of the international distribution of gold and silver in equilibrium. He thought of the economy instead as engaging in endless cycles of disequilibrium, rather than as tending towards equilibrium. 9. The Self-Regulation of the Market 
There is no point wasting time in fruitless speculation on whether or not Richard Cantillon was a mercantilist. Eighteenth-century writers did not group themselves into such categories. While he inconsistently suggested, in accordance with state-building notions of the age, that the king should amass treasure from a favorable balance of trade, the entire thrust of Cantillon's work was in a free trade, laissez-faire direction. For it was clear that mercantilist measures would ultimately be self-defeating. More important, Cantillon was the first to show in detail that all parts of the market economy fit together in a natural, self-regulative, equilibrating pattern, with existing supply and demand determining prices and wages, and ultimately the pattern of production. Consumer values, furthermore, determined demand, with population adjusting to cultural and economic factors. The equilibrators of the economy were the entrepreneurs, who adjust to and cope with the all-pervasive uncertainty of the market. And if the market economy, despite the chaos it might seem to superficial observers, is really harmoniously self-regulating, then government intervention as such is either counterproductive or unnecessary. Particularly instructive is Cantillon's attitude toward usury laws, that vexed question which had at last brought unwarranted discredit on the entire economic analysis of the medieval Renaissance Catholic scholastics. This shrewd merchant and banker saw that particular interest rates on the market are proportionate to the risks of default faced by the creditor. High interest is the result of high risk, not of exploitation or oppression. As Cantillon wrote, All the merchants in a state are in the habit of lending merchandise or produce for a time to retailers, and proportion the rate of their profit or interest to that of their risk. High rates of interest bring about only a small profit because of the high proportion of default on risky loans. Cantillon observed, too, that the later Catholic scholastics had eventually, if reluctantly, agreed to allow high rates of interest for risky loans. Furthermore, there should be no imposed maximum on interest, since only the lenders and borrowers can determine their own fears and needs. For they would be hard put to find any certain limit, since the business depends in reality on the fears of the lenders and the needs of the borrowers. Finally, Cantillon saw that usury laws could only restrict credit and thereby drive up interest rates even further on the inevitable black markets. Hence, usury laws would not lower interest rates, but rather raise them, because the contracting parties, obedient to the force of competition or the current price settled by the proportion of lender or borrowers, will make secret bargains, and this legal constraint will only embarrass trade and raise the rate of interest instead of settling it. 10. Influence 
Richard Cantillon's pioneering essay was widely read and highly influential throughout the 18th century. It was widely read, as was the custom of the day, in underground manuscript form, by literary, scientific, and intellectual people interested in the advance of thought and in the practical problems of the day. The wide reliance on such manuscripts resulted from the severe French censorship of that period. The essay, then, was widely read from its writing in the early 1730s, and still more so after its publication in 1755. It was read eagerly and thoroughly by the first school of economists, the physiocrats, and by their great associate or fellow traveler, A. R. J. Turgot, in that cosmopolitan eighteenth-century society where British and French intellectuals intermingled, the essay was certainly read and echoed by the eminent Scottish philosopher David Hume, and it has the honor of being one of the very few books cited by Hume's close friend Adam Smith, a man whose hyper-developed sense of his own originality prevented him from citing or recognizing many predecessors. Cantillon was thus highly influential among continental and British economists until the publication of The Wealth of Nations in 1776. After the publication of that work, however, the knowledge and influence of Cantillon fell prey to the general post-Smithian custom of ignoring any and every economist preceding Adam Smith. The general 19th-century habit of obliterating knowledge of economists before Adam Smith committed grave injustice against earlier economists, and gave rise to the erroneous and still widely held illusion that economic science sprang full-blown out of the head of one great man, much as Athena was supposed to have sprung, fully grown and fully armed, from the brow of Zeus. But the most malignant aspect of this Smith worship is that the lost economists were in many respects far sounder than Adam Smith, and in forgetting them much of sound economics was lost for at least a century. In many ways, as we shall see, Adam Smith deflected economics, the economics of the continental tradition beginning with the medieval and later scholastics, and continuing through French and Italian writers of the eighteenth century, from a correct path, and on to a very different and fallacious one. Smithian classical economics, as we have come to call it, was mired in aggregative analysis, cost-of-production theory of value, static equilibrium states, artificial division into micro and macro, and an entire baggage of holistic and static analysis. The unfortunate erasure of pre-Smithian economics enabled Smithian classical economics to take hold and dominate economic thought for a hundred years. The marginal revolution of the 1870s, especially the Austrian theory beginning in that decade, in many ways returned economics to the proper individualistic, micro, and subjective value pre-Smithian path on the European continent. 
It is no accident that Cantillon himself was rediscovered in 1881 by the quasi-Austrian English marginal revolutionist W. Stanley Jevons, who was commendably eager to rediscover lost economists buried by the dominant Smith-Ricardo orthodoxy. But economics has unfortunately far from rid itself of the Smith-Ricardo baggage. The current revival of Austrian theory and the increasing search for a way out of contemporary orthodoxy by many mainstream economists is an attempt to complete the promise of the badly named marginal revolution, really an individualist-subjectivist revolution, and to complete the casting out of the classical British paradigm. Chapter 13 Physiocracy in Mid-Eighteenth Century France 1. The Sect The first self-conscious school of economic thought developed in France shortly after the publication of Cantillon's essay. They called themselves the Economists, but later came to be called the Physiocrats after their prime politico-economical principle, Physiocracy, the rule of nature. The physiocrats had an authentic leader, the creator of the physiocratic paradigm, a leading propagandist, and several highly placed disciples and editors of journals. The physiocrats promoted each other, reviewed each other's prolific works in glowing terms, met frequently and periodically in salons to deliver papers and discuss each other's essays, and generally behaved as a self-conscious movement. They had a cadre of hardcore physiocrats and a penumbra of influential fellow travelers and sympathizers. Unfortunately, the physiocrats soon took on the dimensions of a cult as well as a school, heaping lavish and uncritical praise upon their leader, who thus became a guru, as well as the creator of an important paradigm in economic thought. The founder, leader, and guru of physiocracy was Dr. François Quenet, 1694-1774 a restless, charismatic, and intellectually curious soul who was typical of Enlightenment intellectuals of the 18th century. Smitten with the physical sciences, as so many intellectuals were in the shadow of the great Isaac Newton, Kenney, son of a well-to-do farmer, read widely in his chosen profession of medicine. Gaining fame as a surgeon and physician, Kenney wrote medical works, and also became expert in agricultural science, writing on its technology. In 1749, at the age of 55, Kenney became personal physician to King Louis XV's mistress, Madame de Pompadour, and a few years later also became personal physician to the king himself. It was in the late 1750s, when in his mid-sixties, that Dr. Kenney began to dabble in economic topics. The founding of the physiocratic movement may be dated precisely at the moment in July 1757, when the guru met his chief adept and propagandist. For it was then that Dr. Kenney met the restless, flighty, enthusiastic, and slightly crackpot Victor Ricchetti, the Marquis de Mirabeau, 
1715-1789. Mirabeau, a disgruntled aristocrat with plenty of leisure time on his hands, had just published the first several parts of a multi-part work, a grandiloquently entitled bestseller, L'Ami des Hommes, The Friend of Man. This work had charmed many Frenchmen through its very flamboyance and lack of system, as well as its curious use of an archaic seventeenth-century style. While writing L'Ami des Hommes, Mirabeau was a quasi-disciple of the later Cantillon, glossing and publishing the essay, but contact with Canet soon converted him into the doctor's leading fugelman and propagandist. The ruminations of one seemingly harmless eccentric physician had now become a school of thought, a force to be reckoned with. The high placement of the two founding physiocrats served their cause well, Canet's crucial place at court, as well as Mirabeau's fame and aristocratic position, gave the movement power and influence. Still, political economy was dangerous in that age of absolutism and censorship, and Canet prudently published his work under pseudonyms or through his disciples. Indeed, Mirabeau was imprisoned for a couple of weeks in 1760 for his book, Theory of Taxes, specifically for his blistering attack on oppressive taxation and on the financial system of tax farming, in which the king sold the rights to tax to private firms or farmers. He was released, however, by the good offices of Madame de Pompadour. The physiocrats conducted their operations through a succession of journals and through periodic salons, some conducted at the home of Dr. Canet, the most prominent in regular Tuesday evening seminars at the home of the Marquis de Mirabeau. The chief physiocratic figures were Pierre-François Mercier de la Riviere, 1720-1793, whose The Natural and Essential Order of Political Societies, 1767, was the major work on political philosophy of the school. The Abbe Nicolas Baudot, 1730-1792, the editor and journalist of the Physiocrats. Guillaume-François Letron, 1728-1780, jurist and economist, and the youngest member of the group, the secretary, editor, and government official, Pierre-Samuel Dupont de Nemours, 1739-1817, who would later emigrate to the United States to found the famous gunpowder manufacturing family. In no way did the cult aspect of the physiocratic group show itself more starkly than in the adjectives used about their master, his followers claimed that Canet looked like Socrates, and they habitually referred to him as the Confucius of Europe. Indeed, despite the fact that Adam Smith and others spoke of his great modesty, Dr. Canet identified himself with the alleged wisdom and glory of the Chinese sage. Mirabeau went so far as to proclaim that the three greatest inventions in the history of mankind were writing, money, and Canet's famous diagram, the Tableau Economique. 
The sect lasted for less than two decades, going rapidly downhill after the mid-1770s. Several factors accounted for the precipitate decline. One was the death of Kenney in 1774, and the fact that in his later years the physician had lost much interest in his cult and had shifted to work on mathematics, where he claimed to have solved the age-old problem of squaring the circle. Furthermore, the fall from grace as finance minister of their fellow traveler, A. R. J. Turgot, two years later, and the disgrace heaped upon Mirabeau by a public smear campaign launched by his wife and children at about the same time, caused physiocracy to fall from influence. And the advent of Smith's wealth of nations in the same year soon led to the unfortunate habit of ignoring all pre-Smithian thought, as if the new science of political economy had been created single-handed and ex nihilo by Adam Smith. 2. Laissez-faire and Free Trade The main stress of the physiocrats was in two areas, political economy and technical economic analysis and the difference in the quality of their respective contributions is so great as to be almost stupefying. For in general political economy they were usually perceptive, and made important contributions, whereas in technical economics they introduced egregious and often bizarre fallacies which were to plague economics for a long time to come. In political economy, the physiocrats were among the first laissez-faire thinkers, casting aside contemptuously the entire mercantilist baggage. They called for complete internal and external free enterprise and free trade, unfettered by subsidies, monopoly privileges, or restrictions. By removing such restrictions and exactions, commerce, agriculture, and the entire economy would flourish. On international trade, while the physiocrats lacked the specie-flow-price mechanism of the brilliant and sophisticated Cantillon, they were far bolder than he in laying down the gauntlet to all mercantilist fallacies and restrictions, it is absurd and self-contradictory, they pointed out, for a nation to attempt to sell a great deal to foreign countries, and to buy very little. Selling and buying are only two sides of the same coin. Furthermore, the physiocrats anticipated the classical economic insight that money is not crucial, that in the long run, commodities, real goods, exchange for each other, with money simply an intermediary. Therefore, the key goal is not to amass bullion, or to follow the chimera of a permanently favorable balance of trade, but to have a high standard of living in terms of real products. Seeking to amass specie means that people in a nation are giving up real goods in order to acquire mere money. Hence they are losing, rather than gaining wealth, in real terms. Indeed, the whole point of money is to exchange it for real wealth, and if people insist on piling up an unused hoard of specie, they will lose wealth permanently. 
When Turgot became finance minister of France in 1774, his first act was to decree freedom of import and export of grain. The preamble of his edict, drawn up by his aide, Dupont de Nemours, summed up the laissez-faire policy of the physiocrats and of Turgot in a fine and succinct manner. The new free trade policy, it declared, was designed to animate and extend the cultivation of the land, whose produce is the most real and certain wealth of a state, to maintain abundance by granaries and the entry of foreign corn, to prevent corn from falling to a price which would discourage the producer, to remove monopoly by shutting out private license in favor of free and full competition, and by maintaining among different countries that communication of exchange of superfluities for necessities which is so comfortable to the order established by divine providence. Although the physiocrats were officially in favor of complete freedom of trade, their besetting passion, and this reflects their often bizarre economics, were repealing all restrictions on free export of grain. It is understandable that they would concentrate on the elimination of a long-standing restriction, but they seem to show little zeal for the freedom of importation of grain, or for the freedom of export of manufactures. All this was wrapped up in the physiocrats' unremitting enthusiasm for high agricultural prices, almost as a good in itself. Indeed, the physiocrats frowned on exports of manufactured products as competing with and lowering the price of agricultural exports. Dr. Canet went so far as to write that, Happy the land which has no exports of manufactures, because agricultural exports maintain farm prices at too high a level to permit the sterile class to sell its products abroad. As we shall see below, sterile, by definition, meant everyone outside agriculture. 3. Laissez-faire Forerunner The Marquis d'Argenson While the physiocrats were the first economists to stress and develop the case for laissez-faire, they had distinguished forerunners among statesmen and merchants in France. As we have seen, the laissez-faire concept developed among classical liberal oppositionists to the absolutism of late seventeenth-century France. They included merchants, such as Thomas Legendre, and utilitarian officials like Bellebat and Bois-Gilbert. Bridging the gap between turn-of-the-eighteenth-century laissez-faire writers and the physiocrats of the 1760s and 1770s was the eminent statesman René-Louis de Voyer de Poulmy, Marquis d'Argenson, 1694-1757. The heir of a long line of ministers, magistrates, and intendants, D'Argenson's ambition was to become prime minister and save France from what he saw as impending revolution by instituting laissez-faire. A voracious reader and prolific writer throughout his life, D'Argenson only published in his lifetime a few articles in his economic journal in the early 1750s 
and these were not printed but widely circulated in manuscript form. For a long while D'Argenson was erroneously credited by historians with originating the phrase laissez-faire in one of the articles in his Journal of 1751. While D'Argenson did not originate the term, laissez-faire was his repeated cry to the French authorities, a cry he continued to stress even though his ideas were dismissed as eccentric by all his governmental colleagues. As intendant in his early years on the Flemish border, D'Argenson was struck with what he saw to be the economic and social superiority of free people and free markets across the border in Flanders. He then became greatly influenced by the writings of Fenelon, Bellebas, and Bois-Gilbert. D'Argenson saw self-love and self-interest as the mainspring of human action, as bringing about energy and productivity in the pursuit of each man's happiness. Human social life, to D'Argenson, has the natural tendency to inherent harmony when artificial constraints and artificial harmony and artificial stimuli are removed. Looking to an enlightened monarch to remove these artificial subsidies and restrictions, D'Argenson pointed out that in the ideal society the sovereign would have very little to do. One spoils everything by meddling too much. The best government is that which governs least. Thereby the Marquis anticipated the famous phrase attributed to Thomas Jefferson. D'Argenson concluded that each individual should be left alone to labor on his own behalf, instead of suffering constraint and ill-conceived precautions. Then everything will go beautifully. Then, continuing the proto-Hayakian point made by Bellebas, it is precisely this perfection of liberty that makes a science of commerce impossible, in the sense that our speculative thinkers understand it. They want to direct commerce by their orders and regulations, but to do this one would need to be thoroughly acquainted with the interests involved in commerce, from one individual to another. In the absence of such knowledge, it, a science of commerce, can only be much worse than ignorance in its bad effects. Therefore, laissez-faire. 4. Natural Law and Property Rights not only were the physiocrats generally consistent advocates of laissez-faire, but they also supported the operation of a free market and the natural rights of person and property. John Locke and the levelers in England had transformed the rather vague and holistic notions of natural law into the clear-cut, firmly individualistic concepts of the natural rights of every individual human being. But the physiocrats were the first to apply natural rights and property rights concepts fully to the free market economy. In a sense, they completed the work of Locke and brought full Lockeanism to economics. Canet and the others were also inspired by the typically 18th-century Enlightenment version of natural law 
where the individual's rights of person and property were deeply embedded in a set of natural laws that had been worked out by the Creator and were clearly discoverable in the light of human reason. In a profound sense, then, eighteenth-century natural rights theory was a refined variant of medieval and post-medieval scholastic natural law. The rights were now clearly individualistic, and not societal, or pertaining to the state, and the set of natural laws was discoverable by human reason. The seventeenth-century Dutch Protestant, and in essence Protestant scholastic, Hugo Grotius, deeply influenced by the late Spanish scholastics, developed a natural law theory which he boldly declared was truly independent of the question of whether God had created them. The seeds of this thought were in St. Thomas Aquinas and in later Catholic scholastics, but never had it been formulated as clearly and as starkly as by Grotius. Or, to put it in terms that had fascinated political philosophers since Plato, did God love the good because it was in fact good, or is something good because God loves it? The former has always been the answer of those who believe in objective truth and objective ethics, that is, that something might be good or bad in accordance with the objective laws of nature and reality. The latter has been the answer of fideists, who believe that no objective rights or ethics exist, and that only the purely arbitrary will of God, as expressed in Revelation, can make things good or bad for mankind. Grotius was the definitive statement of the objectivist, rationalist position, since natural laws for him are discoverable by human reason, and the eighteenth-century Enlightenment was essentially the spinning out of the Grotian framework. To Grotius the Enlightenment added Newton and his vision of the world as a set of harmonious, precisely, if not mechanically, interacting natural laws. And while Grotius and Newton were fervent Christians, as was almost everyone in their epoch, the eighteenth century, starting with their premises, easily fell into deism, in which God, the great clockmaker or creator of this universe of natural laws, then disappeared from the scene and allowed his creation to work itself out. From the standpoint of political philosophy, however, it mattered little whether Quenet and the others—Dupont was of Huguenot background—were Catholics or Deists, for given their world outlook, their attitude toward natural law and natural rights could be the same in either case. Mercier de la Riviere pointed out in his Natural Order that the general plan of God's creation had provided natural laws for the government of all things, and that man could surely not be any exception to that rule. Man needed only to know through his reason the conditions that would lead to his greatest happiness, and then follow that path. All ills of mankind follow from ignorance or disobedience of such laws. 
In human nature, the right of self-preservation implies the right to property, and any individual property in man's products from the soil requires property in the land itself. But the right to property would be nothing without the freedom of using it, and so liberty is derived from the right to property. People flourish as social animals, and through trade and exchange of property they maximize the happiness of all. Furthermore, since the faculties of human beings are by nature diverse and unequal, an inequality of condition arises naturally from an equal right to liberty of every man. In this way, property rights and free markets, concluded Mercier, is a social order that is natural, evident, simple, immutable, and conducive to the happiness of all. Or, as Kenet declared in his Natural Law, every man has a natural right to the free exercise of his faculties, provided he does not employ them to the injury of himself or others. This right to liberty implies as a corollary the right to property, and the only function of the government is to defend that right. Many rulers of Europe were either entranced or intrigued by this fashionable new doctrine of physiocracy, and endeavored to find out about it from its major theorists. The Dauphin of France once complained to Canet of the difficulty of being a king, and the physician replied that it was really quite simple. "'What, then,' asked the Dauphin, "'would you do if you were king?' "'Nothing.' was the straightforward, stark, and magnificently libertarian answer of Dr. Canet. But then, who would govern, sputtered the Dauphin. The law, that is, the natural law, was Canet's accurate but no doubt unsatisfying reply. A similar reply was certainly unsatisfactory to Catherine the Great, Tsarina of all the Russias, who sent for Mercier de la Riviere, jurist and at one time intendant, governor of Martinique, to instruct her on how to govern. Pressed as to what the law should be grounded on, Mercier answered the Empress, On one thing alone, madam, the nature of things and of man. But how then can a king know what laws to give to a people? the Tsarina continued to which Mercier replied sharply, To give or make laws, madam, is a task which God has left to no one. Ah, what is man, to think himself capable of dictating laws to beings whom he knows not? The science of government, Mercier added, is to study and recognize the laws which God has so evidently engraven in the very organization of man, when he gave him existence. Mercier added the pertinent warning, to seek to go beyond this would be a great misfortune and a destructive undertaking. The Tsarina was polite, but was definitely not amused. Monsieur, she replied curtly, I am very pleased to have heard you. I wish you good day. 5. The Single Tax on Land Natural rights laissez-faire libertarians always confront several problems, or lacunae, in their theory. One is taxation. 
If every individual is to have inviolable property rights, and those rights are to be guaranteed by the government, taxation, itself an infringement of property rights, presents an immediate problem to laissez-faire theorists. For how high should taxes be, and who should pay them? Classical liberalism, however inchoate, had been born in France as an opposition to the statist absolutism of King Louis XIV in the latter decades of the 17th and the early years of the 18th century. A favorite program of these liberals, as set forth by Marshal Vauban and by the Sieur de Bois-Gilbert, among others, was a single tax, a proportional tax on all income or property. The idea was that this simple, direct, universal tax would replace the monstrous and crippling network of taxation that had grown up in 17th-century France. To solve the problem of taxation, Dr. Kenney and the physiocrats came up with their own original single tax, a single tax on land. The idea was that the tax would be low, and that it would be proportional and confined only to a tax on land and on landlords. The rationale of the single tax stems from the singular physiocratic view that only land is productive. Land produces because it creates matter, whereas all other activities, such as trade, commerce, manufacturing, services, etc., are sterile, although admittedly useful, because they only shuffle around or transform matter without creating it. Since only land is productive, and all other activities are sterile, it follows, according to the physiocrats, that any other taxes will wind up being shifted on to land, through the price system. Therefore, the choice is to tax the land indirectly and remotely, while crippling and distorting economic activities, or taxing the land openly and uniformly through the single tax, thereby freeing economic activity from a fearsome tax burden. From the standpoint of economic theory, the famous physiocratic tenet that only land is productive must be considered bizarre and absurd. It is certainly a tremendous loss of insight compared to Catillon, who identified land and labor as original productive factors, and entrepreneurs as the motor of the market economy, who adjust resources to the demands of consumers and to the uncertainty of the market. It is surely true that agriculture was the chief occupation of the day, and that most commerce was the transportation and sale of agricultural products, but this scarcely salvages or excuses the absurdity of the land-as-only-productive-factor doctrine. It is possible that one explanation for this odd doctrine is to apply to the physiocrats the insight of Professor Roger Garrison on the basic world outlook of Adam Smith. Smith, in a less outlandish version of the physiocratic bias, held that only material output, in contrast to intangible services, is productive, while immaterial services are unproductive. 
Garrison points out that the contrast here is not really between material and immaterial goods and services, but between capital goods and consumer goods, which are basically either direct services or a stream of services to be available in the future. Hence, for Smith, productive labor is only effort that goes into capital goods, into building up productive capacity for the future. Labor in direct service to consumers is unproductive. In short, Smith, despite his reputation as an advocate of the free market, refuses to accept free market allocations to the production of consumer vis-à-vis capital goods. He would prefer more investment and growth than the market prefers. In the same way, could it not be true that the physiocrats had a similar outlook? The physiocrats, too, stressed material goods, and agriculture was the main material product. The physiocrats were also greatly concerned with economic growth, with increasing investment and national output, and especially with greater capital investments in agriculture. Indeed, the physiocrats were disgruntled with free market choice and wanted to strengthen consumer demand for agricultural products in particular. High consumption of farm products was beneficial, according to the physiocrats, whereas high consumption of manufactured goods would promote unproductive expenses and crowd out desirable purchases of agricultural products. Some economists have gone so far as to speculate that the physiocrats would have been overjoyed at a policy of farm price supports. Professor Spiegel believes that if the physiocrats had been faced with a choice between laissez-faire and intervention on behalf of farm price supports, they would have chosen intervention. The means to resolve the economic problem that was foremost in their minds was the development of domestic agriculture, rather than unconditional reliance on private initiative within a framework of competition. Perhaps the tip-off on applying the garrison insight is the common attitude of Smith and the physiocrats on usury laws. Despite their generally consistent advocacy of absolute and inviolate property rights and of the freedom to trade within and without a nation, Canet and the physiocrats championed usury laws, denying the freedom to lend and borrow. Adam Smith had a similar aberration. Smith, as we shall see further below, and as Garrison pointed out, took this position in a conscious effort to divert credit from unproductive, high-risk and high-interest-paying speculators and consumers, and toward productive, low-risk investors. Similarly, Canet denounced the restrictions on investment and capital growth resulting from high interest rates and from the competition of unproductive borrowers crowding out credit that would otherwise go into capitalized agriculture. Usury laws were upheld on traditional moralistic grounds of alleged sterility of money. But to the physiocrats, all activity except agriculture was unproductive, and so the problem was rather the competition such borrowing imposed on the productive sector. 
As Elizabeth Fox Genovese puts it, Kenney argues that the high interest rate constitutes neither more nor less than a tax upon the productive life of the nation, upon those who do not borrow as much as upon those who do. It is true that part of the physiocratic attention here was on government debt, and it is certainly true that government debt raises interest rates and diverts capital from productive to unproductive sectors. But there are two flaws in such an approach. First, not all non-agricultural debt is state debt, and therefore not all higher interest is a tax on producers. This returns us to the eccentric view of the physiocrats that only land is productive. Usury laws would cripple not only government debt, but also other forms of borrowing. And second, it seems odd to allow government debt and then try to offset its unfortunate effects by the meat axe approach of imposing restraints on usury. Surely it would be simpler, more direct, and less distorting to tackle the problem at its source and call for the elimination of government debt. Usury laws only make things worse and injure free and productive credit. And so Kenney, himself the son of a well-to-do farmer, was far more interested in subsidizing credit to farmers and keeping out competing borrowers than in stopping government debt. There is another way of explaining the physiocratic attitude towards land as the sole producer, and that is to concentrate on the proposed single tax. More specifically, the physiocrats held that the productive classes were the farmers, who rented the land from the landlords and actually tilled it. The landlords were only partially productive, the partially coming from the capital advances they had made to the farmers. But the physiocrats were sure that the farmers' returns were all bid away by their competition to rent lands, so that in practice all the net product, the only net product in society, is reaped by the nation's landlords. Therefore the single tax should be a proportionate tax upon the landlords alone. Professor Norman J. Ware has interpreted physiocracy and its emphasis on the sole productivity of land as merely a rationalization of the interests of the landlord class. This hypothesis has been taken seriously by many historians of economic thought. But let us ask ourselves, what sort of self-serving doctrine says, please, put all the taxes on me? The beneficiaries of physiocratic policies would surely be every economic class except the landlords, including Dr. Kenney's own class of farmers. 6. Objective Value and Cost of Production Although the physiocrats had useful insights into political economy and the importance of the free market, their distinctive contributions to technical economics were not only wrong, but in some cases proved to be a disaster for the future of the economic discipline. 
Thus, for centuries, the mainstream of economic thought, generally embedded in scholastic treatises, held that the value, and therefore the prices of goods, were determined on the market by utility and scarcity, that is, by consumer valuations of a given supply of a product. Scholastic and post-scholastic economics had basically solved the age-old value paradox of diamonds and bread, or diamonds and water. How is it that bread, so useful to man, is worth very little on the market, whereas diamonds, a mere frippery, are so expensive? The solution was that if quantities of supply are taken into account, the seeming contradiction between use-value and exchange-value disappears. For the supply of bread is so abundant that any given loaf will have a negligible value, in use or in exchange, whereas diamonds are so scarce that they will command a high value on the market. Value, then, does not pertain in the abstract to a class of goods. It is imparted by consumers to specific, real units, and such value depends inversely on the supply of a good. The only thing left to complete the explanation was the marginal insight imparted by the Austrians and other neoclassicals in the 1870s. The scholastics saw that the utility of any good diminishes as its stock increases. The only thing lacking was the marginal analysis, that real-world purchases and evaluations focus on the next unit, the marginal unit, of the good. Diminishing utility is diminishing marginal utility. But while the capstone of utility and subjective value theory was yet missing, enough was already in place to provide a cogent explanation of value and price. Despite his troubling injection of intrinsic value as a quantity of land and labor in production, Cantillon had continued in this late scholastic, proto-Austrian tradition, and had indeed made many contributions to it, particularly in the study of money and entrepreneurship. It was the physiocrats who broke with centuries of sound economic reasoning and contributed to what would become, in the hands of Smith and Ricardo, a reactionary and obscurantist destruction of the correct analysis of value. Dr. Kenney begins his value analysis by disregarding centuries of value theory and tragically sundering the concepts of use-value and exchange-value. Use-value reflects the individual needs and desires of consumers, but, according to Kenney, these use-values of different goods have little or no relation to each other, or, therefore, to prices. Exchange value, or relative prices, on the other hand, have no relation to man's needs or to agreements among bargainers and contractors. Instead, Kenney, the would-be scientist, rejected subjective value and insisted that the values of goods are objective and mystically embedded in various goods irrespective of consumers' subjective valuations. 
This objective embodiment, according to Kinney, is the cost of production, which in some way determines the fundamental price of every good. As was even true for Cantillon, this objective cost of production appears to be somehow determined externally from outside the system. 7. The Tableau Economique Not as devastating for the development of economics as his fallacy of the cost of production or productive labor, but more irritating nowadays is Dr. Kinney's Tableau Economique, the very invention that his glorifier Mirabeau called one of the three great human inventions of all time. The Tableau first published in 1758, was an incomprehensible, jargon-filled chart purporting to depict the flow of expenditures from one economic class to another. Generally dismissed as turgid and irrelevant in its day, it has been rediscovered by twentieth-century economists, who are fascinated because of its very incomprehensibility, all the better to publish journal articles on. Dr. Canet's Tableau Economique has been hailed for anticipating many of the most cherished developments of twentieth-century economics, aggregative concepts, input-output analysis, econometrics, depiction of the circular flow of equilibrium, Keynesian stress on expenditure and consumer demand, and the Keynesian multiplier. In recent years, tens of thousands of words have been lovingly expended on trying to piece together what the tableau had to say, and to reconcile it with its own figures and with the economy of the real world. To the extent that Canet's tableau anticipates all these developments, so much the worse for both the forerunner and the later product. It is true that the tableau shows that ultimately real goods exchange for real goods, with money as an intermediary, and that everyone is both a consumer and a producer in the market. But these simple facts were known for centuries, and charts, lines, Canet's cherished zigzags, and numbers can only obscure rather than highlight their importance. At best, the chart elaborates spending and income patterns to no purpose. Furthermore, the tableau is holistic, aggregative, and macroeconomic, with no solid grounding in the methodological individualism of sound microeconomics. The tableau not only introduced ungrounded and unsound macro-thinking into economics, it also laid up mischief for the future by anticipating Keynesianism, for it glorified expenditures, including consumption, and worried about savings, which it tended to regard as crippling the economy by leaking out of the constant circular flow of spending. This stress on the vital importance of maintaining spending was faulty and superficial in ignoring two fundamental considerations. Saving is spent on investment goods, and the key to harmony and equilibrium is price. Lower spending can always be equilibrated easily on the market by a fall in prices. 
It can be laid down as a veritable law that any picture or analysis of the economic system that omits prices from considerations can only be crackpot, and the tableau économique was the first, but, alas, not the last, economic model which did precisely that. Dr. Canet, of course, gave to his circular flow model his own physiocratic twist. It was particularly important to keep up spending on productive agricultural products and to avoid diversion of spending to sterile and unproductive products, that is, to anything else. Keynes, of course, was to avoid the physiocratic bias when he resurrected a similar analysis. While the analytic merits of macro-concepts, input-output analysis, and econometrics are highly dubious at best, they are surely worse than nothing if the numbers are incorrect. But Canet's figures are spurious, for the France of his day or for any other epoch, and the would-be great mathematician made many simple mistakes in arithmetic in the portrayals of his beloved tableau. At best, then, the tableau was elaborate frippery, at worst, false, mischief-making, and deceptive, and in no sense did the tableau do anything but detract and divert attention from genuine economic analysis and insight. After contemplating this piece of egregious folly, it is a relief to turn to the blistering satirical attack on the tableau by a conservative statist opponent of the physiocrats, the attorney Simon Nicolas Henri Languet, 1736-1794. In his Reply to the Modern Doctors, 1771, Languet begins by ridiculing the idea that the physiocrats were not a cult or sect. Evidence shows it. Your mysterious words, physiocracy, net product, your mystic jargon, order, science, the master, your titles of honor showered on your patriarchs, your wreaths scattered through the provinces on obscure if excellent persons. Not a sect. You have a rallying cry, banners, a march, a trumpeter, Dupont, a uniform for your books, and a sign like Freemasons. Not a sect. One cannot touch one of you, but all rush to his aid. You all laud and glorify each other, and attack and intimidate your opponents in unmeasured terms. Languet then turns his scornful attention to the tableau. You affect an inspired tone, and seriously discuss on what particular day the symbol of your faith, the masterpiece, the tableau économique, was born, a symbol so mysterious that huge volumes cannot explain it. It is like the Koran of Mohammed. You burn to lay down your lives for your principles, and talk of your apostleship. You attack the Abbe Galliani and me, because we have no reverence for that ridiculous hieroglyphic which is your holy gospel. Confucius drew up a table, the I Ching, of sixty-four terms, also connected by lines, to show the evolution of the elements and your tableau economique is justly enough compared to it, but it comes three hundred years too late. Both alike are equally unintelligible. 
The tableau is an insult to common sense, to reason and philosophy, with its columns of figures of net reproduction terminating always in a zero, striking symbol of the fruit of the researches of anyone simple enough to try in vain to understand it. 8. Strategy and Influence one problem that any laissez-faire liberal thinker must face is, granted that government interference should be minimal, what form should that government take? Who shall govern? To French liberals of the later 17th or 18th centuries, there seemed to be only one answer. Government is and always will be ruled by an absolute monarch. Oppositionist rebels had been crushed in the early and mid-seventeenth century, and from then on only one answer was thinkable. The king must be converted to the truths and wisdom of laissez-faire. Any idea of inspiring or launching a mass opposition movement against the king was simply out of the question. It was not part of any thinkable dialogue. The physiocrats, like classical liberals earlier in the 18th century, were not simply theorists. The nation had gone awry, and they possessed a political alternative they were trying to promote. But if absolute monarchy was the only conceivable form of government for France, the only strategy for liberals was simple, at least on paper, to convert the king. And so the strategy of classical liberals, from the exertions of the Abbe Claude Fleury and his able student, Archbishop Fenelon, in the late seventeenth century, to the physiocrats and Turgot in the late eighteenth, was to convert the ruler. The liberals were well placed to pursue the strategy of what might be called their projected revolution from the top, for they were all highly placed at court. Archbishop Fenelon placed his hopes in the Dauphin, rearing the Duke of Burgundy as an ardent classical liberal. But we have seen that these carefully laid plans turned to ashes when the Duke died of illness in 1711, only four years before the death of Louis himself. A half-century later, Dr. Canet, again working through a king's mistress, this time Madame de Pompadour, used his position at court to try to convert the ruler. Success in France was only partial. When Turgot, who agreed with the physiocrats on laissez-faire, became finance minister and started putting sweeping liberal reforms into effect, he quickly ran into a wall of entrenched opposition that removed him from office only two years later. His reforms were angrily repealed. The leading physiocrats were exiled by King Louis XVI, their journal was quickly suppressed, and Mirabeau was ordered to cancel his famous Tuesday evening seminars. The physiocrats' strategy proved a failure, and there was more to the failure than the vagaries of a particular monarch. For even if the monarch could be convinced that liberty conduced to the happiness and prosperity of his subjects, his own interests are often to maximize state exactions, and therefore his own power and wealth. Furthermore, the monarch does not rule alone, but as the head of a ruling coalition of bureaucrats, nobles, privileged monopolists, and feudal lords. He rules, in short, as the head of a power elite, 
or ruling class. It is theoretically conceivable, but scarcely likely, that a king and the rest of the ruling class will rush to embrace a philosophy and a political economy that will end their power, and put them, in effect, out of business. It certainly did not happen in France, and so, after the failure of the physiocrats and Turgot, came the French Revolution. In any event, the physiocrats did manage to convert some rulers, though not the monarch of France. Their leading disciple among the rulers of the world, and one of the most enthusiastic and lovable ones, was Karl Friedrich, margrave of the Duchy of Baden, 1728-1811, in Germany. Converted by the works of Mirabeau, the Margrave wrote a précis of physiocracy, and proceeded to try to institute the system in his realm. The Margrave proposed free trade in corn to the German diet, and in 1770 he introduced the single tax at 20% of the agricultural net product in three villages of Baden. Administering the experiment was the Margrave's chief aide, the enthusiastic German physiocrat Johann August Schlettwein, 1731-1802, professor of economics at the University of Gießen. The experiment, however, was abandoned in a few years in two villages, although the single tax continued in the village of Dietlingen until 1792. For a few years the Margrave also imported Dupont de Nemours to be his adviser and tutor to his son. In one notable meeting the fervent Margrave of Baden asked his master Mirabeau whether or not the physiocratic ideal was making sovereign rulers unnecessary. Perhaps they might all be reformed out of existence. The Margrave had divined the anarchistic, or at least the republican, core underlying the laissez-faire libertarian and natural rights doctrine. But Mirabeau, dedicated as were all the physiocrats to absolute monarchy, drew back, sternly reminding his younger pupil that while the role of the sovereign would ideally be limited, he would still be the owner of the public domain and the preserver of social order. Several other rulers of Europe at least dabbled in physiocracy. One of the most eager was Leopold II, Grand Duke of Tuscany, later Emperor of Austria, who ordered his ministers to consult with Mirabeau and carried out some of the physiocratic reforms. A fellow traveler was Emperor Joseph II of Austria. Another physiocratic enthusiast was Gustavus III, King of Sweden, who conferred upon Mirabeau the Grand Cross of the newly founded Order of Wassa in honor of agriculture. Dupont, in turn, was made a knight of the order. More practically, when the physiocratic journal was suppressed upon the fall of Turgot, King Gustavus and the Margrave of Baden joined in commissioning Dupont to edit a journal which would be published in their realms. But the physiocratic appeal to monarchy lost what little effect it had after the onset of the French Revolution. Indeed, after the Revolution, physiocracy, with its pro-agricultural bias and devotion to absolute monarchy, was discredited in France and the rest of Europe.
9. Daniel Bernoulli and the Founding of Mathematical Economics We should not leave the tableau without mentioning a French-Swiss contemporary of Cantillon who prefigured the tableau in one and only one sense. He can be said to be the founder in the broadest sense of mathematical economics. As such, his work contained some of the typical flaws and fallacies of that method. Daniel Bernoulli, 1700-1782, was born into a family of distinguished mathematicians. His uncle, Jacques Bernoulli, 1654-1705, was the first to discover the theory of probability in his Latin work Ars Conjectandi, 1713, and his father, Jean, 1667-1748, was one of the early developers of the calculus, a method that had been discovered in the late 17th century. In 1738, Daniel, trying to solve a problem in probability theory and the theory of gambling by the use of the calculus, stumbled on the concept of the law of diminishing marginal utility of money. Bernoulli's essay was published in Latin as an article in a scholarly volume. Bernoulli was presumably not familiar with the arrival at a similar law, albeit in non-mathematical form, by the Spanish Salamancan scholastics Tomás de Mercado and Francisco García nearly two centuries earlier. Certainly he displayed no familiarity whatever with their monetary theories, or with any other aspect of economics for that matter. And, being a mathematician, he got even his own particular point wrong, introducing the form of the law of diminishing marginal utility that would return to plague economic thought in future centuries. For the use of mathematics necessarily leads the economist to distort reality by making the theory convenient for mathematical symbolism and manipulation. Mathematics takes over, and the reality of human action loses out. One fundamental flaw of Bernoulli's formulation was to put his symbolism into a ratio or fractional form. If one insists on putting the concept of diminishing marginal utility of money for each individual into symbolic form, one could say that if a man's wealth or total monetary assets at any time is X, and utility or satisfaction is designated as U, and if delta is the universal symbol for change, that delta U over delta X diminishes as X increases. But even this relatively innocuous formulation would be incorrect. For utility is not a thing, it is not a measurable entity, it cannot be divided, and therefore it is illegitimate to put it in ratio form, as the numerator in a non-existent fraction. Utility is neither a measurable entity, nor, even if it were, could it be commensurate with the money unit involved in the denominator. Suppose that we ignore this fundamental flaw, and accept the ratio as a kind of poetic version of the true law. But this is only the beginning of his problem. 
For then, Bernoulli, and mathematical economists from then on, proceeded to multiply mathematical convenience illicitly by transforming his symbols into the new calculus form. For if these increases of income or utility are reduced to being infinitesimal, one can use both the symbolism and the powerful manipulations of the differential calculus. Infinitely small increases are the first derivatives of the amount at any given point, and the deltas above can become the first derivatives, d. And then the discrete jumps of human action can become the magically transformed smooth arcs and curves of the familiar geometric portrayals of modern economic theory. But Bernoulli did not stop there. Fallacious assumption and method are piled upon each other like Pelion on Asa. The next step towards a dramatic, seemingly precise conclusion is that every man's marginal utility not only diminishes as his wealth increases, but diminishes in fixed inverse proportion to his wealth. So that, if B is a constant and utility is Y instead of U, presumably for convenience in putting utility on the y-axis and wealth on the x-axis, then dy over dx is equal to b over x. What evidence does Bernoulli have for this preposterous assumption, for his assertion that an increase in utility will be inversely proportionate to the quantity of goods already possessed? None whatever. For this allegedly precise scientist has only pure assertion to offer. There is no reason, in fact, to assume any such constant proportionality. No such evidence can ever be found, because the entire concept of constant proportion in a non-existent entity is absurd and meaningless. Utility is a subjective evaluation, a ranking by the individual, and there is no measurement, no extension, and therefore no way for it to be proportional to itself. After coming up with this egregious fallacy, Bernoulli topped it by blithely assuming that every individual's marginal utility of money moves in the very same constant proportion, B. Modern economists are familiar with the difficulty, nay, the impossibility, of measuring utilities between persons, but they do not give sufficient weight to this impossibility. Since utility is subjective to each individual, it cannot be measured or even compared across persons. But more than that, utility is not a thing or an entity. It is simply the name for a subjective evaluation in the mind of each individual. Therefore, it cannot be measured even within the mind of each individual, much less calculated or measured from one person to another. Even each individual person can only compare values or utilities ordinarily. The idea of his measuring them is absurd and meaningless. 
From this multi-illegitimate theory, Bernoulli concluded fallaciously that there is no doubt that a gain of one thousand ducats is more significant to a pauper than to a rich man, though both gain the same amount. It depends, of course, on the values and subjective utilities of the particular rich man or pauper, and that dependence can never be measured or even compared by anyone, whether by outside observers or by either of the two people involved. Bernoulli's dubious contribution won its way into mathematics, having been adopted by the great early 19th-century French probability theorist Pierre Simon, Marquis de Laplace, 1749-1827, in his renowned Analytic Theory of Probability, 1812 but it was fortunately completely ignored in economic thought until it was dredged up by Jevons and the mathematically inclined wing of the late nineteenth-century marginal utility theorists. Its neglect was undoubtedly aided by its having been written in Latin. No German translation appeared until 1896, nor an English one until 1954. Chapter 14 the Brilliance of Turgot 1. The Man There is a custom in chess tournaments to award brilliancy prizes for particularly resplendent victories. Brilliancy games are brief, lucid, and devastating, in which the master innovatively finds ways to new truths and new combinations in the discipline. If we were to award a prize for brilliancy in the history of economic thought, it would surely go to Anne-Robert-Jacques Turgot, the Baron de Lone, 1727-1781. His career in economics was brief but brilliant, and in every way remarkable. In the first place, he died rather young and second, the time and energy he devoted to economics was comparatively little. He was a busy man of affairs, born in Paris to a distinguished Norman family which had long served as important royal officials. They were royal masters of requests, magistrates, intendants, governors. Turgot's father, Michel Etienne, was a counselor of state, President of the Grand Council, an appeals tribunal of the Parliament of Paris, a master of requests, and top administrator of the city of Paris. His mother was the intellectual and aristocratic Dame Magdalene Françoise Martineau. Turgot had a sparkling career as a student, earning honors at the seminary of Saint-Sulpice, and then at the great theological faculty of the University of Paris, the Sorbonne. As a younger son of a distinguished but not wealthy family, Turgot was expected to enter the church, the preferred path of advancement for someone in that position in eighteenth-century France. But although he became an abbé, Turgot decided instead to follow family tradition and join the royal bureaucracy. 
There he became magistrate, master of requests, intendant, and, finally, as we have seen, a short-lived and controversial minister of finance, or controller-general, in a heroic but ill-fated attempt to sweep away statist restrictions on the market economy in a virtual revolution from above. Not only was Turgot a busy administrator, but his intellectual interests were wide-ranging, and most of his spare time was spent in reading and writing, not in economics, but in history, literature, philology, and the natural sciences. His contributions to economics were brief, scattered, and hastily written, twelve pieces, totaling only 188 pages. His longest and most famous work, Reflections on the Formations and Distribution of Wealth, 1766, comprised only 53 pages. This brevity only highlights the great contributions to economics made by this remarkable man. Historians are wont to lump Turgot with the physiocrats, and to treat him as merely a physiocratic disciple in government, although he is treated also as a mere fellow-traveler of physiocracy, out of an aesthetic desire to avoid being trapped in sectarian ways. None of this does justice to Turgot. He was a fellow-traveler largely because he shared with the physiocrats a devotion to free trade and laissez-faire. He was not a sectarian because he was a unique genius, and the physiocrats were scarcely that. His grasp of economic theory was immeasurably greater than theirs, and his treatment of such matters as capital and interest has scarcely been surpassed to this day. In the history of thought, the style is often the man, and Turgot's clarity and lucidity mirrors the virtues of his thought, and contrasts refreshingly with the prolix and turgid prose of the physiocrat school. 2. Laissez-faire and Free Trade Turgot's mentor in economics and in administration was his great friend Jacques-Claude-Marie Vincent, Marquis de Gournay, 1712-1759. Gournay was a successful merchant, who then became royal inspector of manufactures and minister of commerce. Although he wrote little, Gournay was a great teacher of economics in the best sense, through numberless conversations, not only with Turgot, but with the physiocrats and others. It was Gournay who spread the word in France about Cantillon's achievement. In addition, Gournay translated English economists, such as Sir Josiah Child, into French, and his extensive notes on these translations were widely circulated in manuscript in French intellectual circles. It was from Gournay that Turgot absorbed his devotion to laissez-faire, and, indeed, the origin of the phrase laissez-faire, laissez-passer, has often been incorrectly attributed to him. It is fitting, then, that Turgot developed his laissez-faire views most fully in one of his early works, The Elegy to Gournay, 1759, a tribute offered when the Marquis died young after a long illness. 
Turgot made it clear that for Gournay, the network of detailed mercantilist regulation of industry was not simply intellectual error, but a veritable system of coerced cartelization and special privilege conferred by the state. Turgot spoke of innumerable statutes dictated by the spirit of monopoly, the whole purpose of which were to discourage industry, to concentrate trade within the hands of few people by multiplying formalities and charges, by subjecting industry to apprenticeships and journeymanships of ten years in some trades, which can be learned in ten days by excluding those who were not sons of masters, or those born outside a certain class, and by prohibiting the employment of women in the manufacture of cloth. For Turgot, freedom of domestic and foreign trade followed equally from the enormous mutual benefits of free exchange. All the restrictions forget that no commercial transactions can be anything other than reciprocal, and that it is absurd to try to sell everything to foreigners while buying nothing from them in return. Turgot then goes on in his elegy to make a vital pre-Hayakian point about the uses of indispensable particular knowledge by individual actors and entrepreneurs in the free market. These committed on-the-spot participants in the market process know far more about their situations than intellectuals aloof from the fray. There is no need to prove that each individual is the only competent judge of the most advantageous use of his lands and of his labor. He alone has the particular knowledge without which the most enlightened man could only argue blindly. He learns by repeated trials, by his successes, by his losses, and he acquires a feeling for it which is much more ingenious than the theoretical knowledge of the indifferent observer, because it is stimulated by want. In proceeding to more detailed analysis of the market process, Turgot points out that self-interest is the prime mover of that process and that, as Gournay had noted, individual interest in the free market must always coincide with the general interest. The buyer will select the seller who will give him the best price for the most suitable product, and the seller will sell his best merchandise at the lowest competitive price. Governmental restrictions and special privileges, on the other hand, compel consumers to buy poorer products at high prices. Turgot concludes that the general freedom of buying and selling is therefore the only means of assuring, on the one hand, the seller of a price sufficient to encourage production, and, on the other hand, the consumer of the best merchandise at the lowest price. Turgot concluded that government should be strictly limited to protecting individuals against great injustice and the nation against invasion. The government should always protect the natural liberty of the buyer to buy and the seller to sell. It is possible, Turgot conceded, that there will sometimes on the free market be a cheating merchant and a duped consumer but then the market will supply its own remedies. 
The cheated consumer will learn by experience and will cease to frequent the cheating merchant, who will fall into discredit and thus will be punished for his fraudulence. Turgot, in fact, ridiculed attempts by government to ensure against fraud or harm to consumers. In a prophetic rebuttal to the Ralph Naders of all ages, Turgot highlighted in a notable passage the numerous fallacies of alleged state protection. To expect the government to prevent such fraud from ever occurring would be like wanting it to provide cushions for all the children who might fall. To assume it to be possible to prevent successfully, by regulation, all possible malpractices of this kind, is to sacrifice to a chimerical perfection the whole progress of industry. It is to restrict the imagination of artificers to all narrow limits of the familiar. It is to forbid them all new experiments." It means forgetting that the execution of these regulations is always entrusted to men who may have all the more interest in fraud, or in conniving at fraud, since the fraud which they might commit would be covered in some way by the seal of public authority, and by the confidence which this seal inspires in the consumers. Turgot added that all such regulations and inspections always involve expenses, and that these expenses are always a tax on the merchandise, and, as a result, overcharge the domestic consumer and discourage the foreign buyer. Turgot concludes with a splendid flourish. Thus, with obvious injustice, Commerce, and consequently the nation, are charged with a heavy burden to save a few idle people the trouble of instructing themselves, or of making inquiries to avoid being cheated. To suppose all consumers to be dupes, and all merchants and manufacturers to be cheats, has the effect of authorizing them to be so, and of degrading all the working members of the community. Turgot goes on once more to the Hayekian theme of greater knowledge by the particular actors in the market. The entire laissez-faire doctrine of Gournay, he points out, is grounded on the complete impossibility of directing, by invariant rules and continuous inspection, a multitude of transactions, which by their immensity alone could not be fully known and which, moreover, are continually dependent on a multitude of ever-changing circumstances which cannot be managed or even foreseen. Turgot concludes his elegy to his friend and teacher by noting Gournay's belief that most people were well disposed toward the sweet principles of commercial freedom, but prejudice and a search for special privilege often bar the way. Every person, Turgot pointed out, wants to make an exception to the general principle of freedom, and this exception is generally based on their personal interest. One interesting aspect of the elegy is Turgot's noting of the Dutch influence on the laissez-faire views of Gournay. Gournay had had extensive commercial experience in Holland, 
and the Dutch model of relative free trade and free markets in the 17th and 18th century, especially under the Republic, served as an inspiration throughout Europe. In addition, Turgot notes that one of the books that most influenced Gournay was The Political Maxims of Johann de Witt, 1623-1672, the great martyred leader of the classical liberal Republican Party in Holland. Indeed, in an article on Fairs and Markets, written two years earlier for the Great Encyclopedia, Turgot had quoted Gournay as praising the free internal markets of Holland. Whereas other nations had confined trade to fairs in limited times and places, in Holland there are no fairs at all, but the whole extent of the state and the whole year are, as it were, a continuous fair, because commerce in that country is always and everywhere equally flourishing. Turgot's final writings on economics were as intendant at Limoges in the years just before becoming controller general in 1774. They reflect his embroilment in a struggle for free trade within the royal bureaucracy. In his last work, the letter to the Abbe Terre, the Controller General, on the duty on iron, 1773, Turgot trenchantly lashes out at the system of protective tariffs as a war of all against all, using state monopoly privilege as a weapon at the expense of the consumers. I believe, indeed, that iron masters, who know only about their own iron, imagine that they would earn more if they had fewer competitors. There is no merchant who would not like to be the sole seller of his commodity. There is no branch of trade in which those who are engaged in it do not seek to ward off competition, and do not find some sophisms to make people believe that it is in the state's interest to prevent at least the competition from abroad, which they most easily represent as the enemy of the national commerce. If we listen to them, and we have listened to them too often, all branches of commerce will be infected by this kind of monopoly. These fools do not see that this same monopoly which they practice, not, as they would have the government believe, against foreigners, but against their own fellow citizens, consumers of the commodity, is returned to them by these fellow citizens, who are sellers in their turn, in all the other branches of commerce where the first in their turn become buyers. Turgot, indeed, in anticipation of Bastiat, three-quarters of a century later, calls this system a war of reciprocal oppression, in which the government lends its authority to all against all. In short, a balance of annoyance and injustice between all kinds of industry, where everyone loses. He concludes that whatever sophisms are collected by the self-interest of a few merchants, the truth is that all branches of commerce ought to be free, equally free, and entirely free. Turgot was close to the physiocrats, not only in advocating freedom of trade, but also in calling for a single tax on the net product of land. 
Even more than in the case of physiocrats, one gets the impression with Turgot that his real passion was in getting rid of the stifling taxes on all other walks of life, rather than in imposing them on agricultural land. Turgot's views on taxes were most fully, if still briefly, worked out in his plan for a paper on taxation in general, 1763, an outline of an unfinished essay he had begun to write as intendant at Limoges for the benefit of the Controller General. Turgot claimed that taxes on towns were shifted backwards to agriculture, and showed how taxation crippled commerce, and how urban taxes distorted the location of towns, and led to the illegal evasion of duties. Privileged monopolies, furthermore, raised prices severely, and encouraged smuggling. Taxes on capital destroyed accumulated thrift, and hobbled industry. Turgot's eloquence was confined to pillorying bad taxes, rather than elaborating on the alleged virtues of the land tax. Turgot's summation of the tax system was trenchant and hard-hitting. It seems that public finance, like a greedy monster, has been lying in wait for the entire wealth of the people. On one aspect of politics, Turgot parted apparently from the physiocrats. Evidently, Turgot's strategy was the same as theirs, attempting to convince the king of the virtues of laissez-faire. And yet, one of Turgot's most incisive epigrams, delivered to a friend, was, I am not an encyclopedist because I believe in God. I am not an economist because I would have no king. However, the latter was clearly not Turgot's publicly stated view, nor did it guide his public actions. 3. Value, Exchange, and Price One of the most remarkable contributions by Turgot was an unpublished and unfinished paper, Value and Money, written around 1769. In this paper, Turgot, working in a method of successive approximations and abstractions, developed an Austrian-type theory, first of Crusoe economics, then of an isolated two-person exchange, which he later expanded to four persons, and then to a complete market. By concentrating first on the economics of an isolated Crusoe figure, Turgot was able to work out economic laws that transcend exchange and apply to all individual actions. In short, praxeological theory transcends and is deeper than market exchange. It applies to all action. First, Turgot examines an isolated man, and works out a sophisticated analysis of his value or utility scale. By valuing and forming preference scales of different objects, Crusoe confers value on various economic goods, and compares and chooses between them on the basis of their relative worth to him. Thus these goods acquire different values. Crusoe chooses not only between various present uses of goods, but also between consuming them now and accumulating them for future needs. 
He also sees clearly that more abundance of a good leads to a lower value, and vice versa. Like his French and other continental precursors, then, Turgot sees that the subjective utility of a good diminishes as its supply to a person increases, and, like them, he lacks only the concept of the marginal unit to complete the theory. But he went far beyond his predecessors in the precision and clarity of his analysis. He also sees that the subjective values of goods, their esteem value to consumers, will change rapidly on the market, and there is at least a hint in his discussion that he realized that this subjective value is strictly ordinal and not subject to measurement, and therefore to most mathematical procedures. Turgot begins his analysis at the very beginning. One isolated man, one object of valuation. Let us consider this man as exerting his abilities on a single object only. He will seek after it, avoid it, or treat it with indifference. In the first case, he would undoubtedly have a motive for seeking after this object. He would judge it to be suitable for his enjoyment he will find it good, and this relative goodness could, generally speaking, be called value. It would not be susceptible to measurement. Then Turgot brings in other goods. If the same man can choose between several objects suitable to his use, he will be able to prefer one to the other, find an orange more agreeable than chestnuts, a fur better for keeping out the cold than a cotton garment. He will regard one as worth more than another. He will consequently decide to undertake those things which he prefers and leave the others. This comparison of value, this evaluation of different objects, changes continually. These appraisals are not permanent. They change continually with the need of the person. Turgot proceeds not only to diminishing utility, but to a strong anticipation of diminishing marginal utility, since he concentrates on the unit of the particular goods. When the savage is hungry, he values a piece of game more than the best bearskin, but let his appetite be satisfied, and let him be cold, and it will be the bearskin that becomes valuable to him. After bringing the anticipation of future needs into his discussion, Turgot deals with diminishing utility as a function of abundance. Armed with this tool of analysis, he helps solve the value paradox. Water, in spite of its necessity and the multitude of pleasures which it provides for man, is not regarded as a precious thing in a well-watered country. Man does not seek to gain its possession, since the abundance of this element allows him to find it all around him. Turgot then proceeds to a truly noteworthy discussion, anticipating the modern concentration on economics as the allocation of scarce resources to a large and far less limited number of alternative ends. To obtain the satisfaction of these wants, man has only an even more limited quantity of strength and resources. 
Each particular object of enjoyment costs him trouble, hardship, labor, and, at the very least, time. It is this use of his resources applied to the quest for each object which provides the offset to his enjoyment, and forms, as it were, the cost of the thing. While there is an unfortunate real-cost flavor about Turgot's treatment of cost, and he called the cost of a product its fundamental value, he comes down generally to a rudimentary version of the later Austrian view that all costs are really opportunity costs, sacrifices foregoing a certain amount of resources that would have been produced elsewhere. Thus Turgot's actor, in this case an isolated one, appraises and evaluates objects on the basis of their significance to himself. First, Turgot says that this significance, or utility, is the importance of his time and toil expended. But then he treats this concept as equivalent to productive opportunity foregone, as the portion of his resources which he can use to acquire an evaluated object without thereby sacrificing the quest for other objects of equal or greater importance. Having analyzed the actions of an isolated Crusoe, Turgot brings in Friday. That is, he now assumes two men, and sees how an exchange will develop. Here, in a perceptive analysis, he works out the Austrian theory of isolated two-person exchange, virtually as it would be arrived at by Karl Menger a century later. First, he has two savages on a desert island each with valuable goods in his possession, but the goods being suited to different wants. One man has a surplus of fish, the other of hides, and the result will be that each will exchange part of his surplus for the others, so that both parties to the exchange will benefit. Commerce, or exchange, has developed. Turgot then changes the conditions of his example, and supposes that the two goods are corn and wood, and that each commodity could therefore be stored for future needs, so that each would not be automatically eager to dispose of his surplus. Each man will then weigh the relative esteem to him of the two products, and weight the possible exchange accordingly. Each will adjust his supplies and demands until the two parties agree on a price at which each man will value what he obtains in exchange more highly than what he gives up. Both sides will then benefit from the exchange. As Turgot lucidly puts it, this superiority of the esteem value attributed by the acquirer to the thing he acquires over the thing he gives up is essential to the exchange, for it is the sole motive for it. Each would remain as he was if he did not find an interest, a personal profit, in exchange, if in his own mind he did not consider what he receives worth more than what he gives. Turgot then unfortunately goes off the subjective value track by adding, unnecessarily, that the terms of exchange arrived at through this bargaining process will have 
equal exchange value, since otherwise the person cooler to the exchange would force the other to come closer to his price by a better offer. It is unclear here what Turgot means by saying that each gives equal value to receive equal value. There is perhaps an inchoate notion here that the price arrived at through bargaining will be halfway between the value scales of each. Turgot, however, is perfectly correct in pointing out that the act of exchange increases the wealth of both parties to the exchange. He then brings in the competition of two sellers for each of the products, and shows how the competition affects the value scales of the participants. As Turgot had pointed out a few years earlier in his most important work, The Reflections on the Formation and Distribution of Wealth, the bargaining process, where each party wants to get as much as he can and give up as little as possible in exchange, results in a tendency towards one uniform price of each product in terms of the other. The price of any good will vary in accordance with the urgency of need among the participants. There is no true price to which the market tends, or should tend, to conform. Finally, in his repeated analysis of human action as the result of expectations, rather than in equilibrium, or as possessing perfect knowledge, Turgot anticipates the Austrian emphasis on expectations as the key to actions on the market. Turgot's very emphasis on expectations, of course, implies that they can be, and often are, disappointed in the market. 4. The Theory of Production and Distribution in one sense, Turgot's theory of production followed the physiocrats, the unfortunate view that only agriculture is productive, and that in consequence there should be a single tax on land. But the main thrust of his theory of production was quite different from that of physiocracy. Thus, before Adam Smith's famous example of the pin factory and stress on division of labor, Turgot, in his reflections, had worked out a keen analysis of that division. If the same man who, on his own land, cultivates these different articles, and uses them to supply his own wants, was also forced to perform all the intermediate operations himself, it is certain that he would succeed very badly. The greater part of these operations require care, attention, and a long experience, such as are only to be acquired by working continuously and on a great quantity of materials. And further, even if a man did succeed in tanning a single hide, he only needs one pair of shoes. What will he do with the rest? Shall he kill an ox to make this pair of shoes? The same thing may be said concerning all the other wants of man, who, if he were reduced to his own field and his own labor, would waste much time and trouble in order to be very badly equipped in every respect, and would also cultivate his land very badly. Even though only land was supposed to be productive, 
Turgot readily conceded that natural resources must be transformed by human labor, and that labor must enter into each stage of the production process. Here Turgot had worked out the rudiments of the crucial Austrian theory that production takes time, and that it passes through various stages, each of which takes time, and that therefore the basic classes of factors of production are land, labor, and time. One of Turgot's most remarkable contributions to economics, the significance of which was lost until the twentieth century, was his brilliant and almost offhand development of the law of diminishing returns, or, as it might be described, the law of variable proportions. This gem arose out of a contest which he had inspired to be held by the Royal Agricultural Society of Limoges, for prize-winning essays on indirect taxation. Unhappiness with the winning physiocratic essay by Guérinot de Saint-Paravie led him to develop his own views in Observations on a Paper by Saint-Paravie, 1767. Here Turgot went to the heart of the physiocratic error, in the tableau of assuming a fixed proportion of the various expenditures of different classes of people. But, Turgot pointed out, these proportions are variable, as are the proportions of physical factors in production. There are no constant proportions of factors in agriculture, for example, since the proportions vary according to the knowledge of the farmers, the value of the soil, the techniques used in production, and the nature of the soil and the climatic conditions. Developing this theme further, Turgot declared that even if applied to the same field, it, the product, is not proportional to advances to the factors, and it can never be assumed that double the advances will yield double the product. Not only are the proportions of factors to product variable, but also, after a point, all further expenditures would be useless, and that such increases could even become detrimental. In this case, the advances would be increased without increasing the product. There is, therefore, a maximum point of production which it is impossible to pass. Furthermore, after the maximum point is passed, it is more than likely that, as the advances are increased gradually past this point, up to the point where they return nothing, each increase would be less and less productive. On the other hand, if the farmer reduces the factors from the point of maximum production, the same changes in proportion would be found. In short, Turgot had worked out in fully developed form an analysis of the law of diminishing returns, which would not be surpassed or possibly equaled until the twentieth century. According to Schumpeter, not until a journal article by Edgeworth in 1911. We have Turgot spelling out in words the familiar diagram in modern economics. Increasing the quantity of factors, in short, raises the marginal productivity, the quantity produced by each increase of factors, until a maximum point is reached 
after which the marginal productivity falls, eventually to zero, and then becomes negative. 5. The Theory of Capital, Entrepreneurship, Savings, and Interest in the roster of A.R.J. Turgot's outstanding contributions to economic theory, the most remarkable was his theory of capital and interest, which, in contrast with such fields as utility, sprang up virtually full-blown without reference to preceding contributions. Not only that, Turgot worked out almost completely the Austrian theory of capital and interest a century before it was set forth in definitive form by Eugen von Bernbaverck. Turgot's theory of capital proper was echoed in the British classical economists as well as the Austrians. Thus, in his great reflections, Turgot pointed out that wealth is accumulated by means of unconsumed and saved annual produce. Savings are accumulated in the form of money, and then invested in various kinds of capital goods. Furthermore, as Turgot pointed out, the capitalist entrepreneur must first accumulate saved capital in order to advance his payment to laborers while the product is being worked on. In agriculture, the capitalist entrepreneur must save funds to pay workers, buy cattle, pay for buildings and equipment, etc., until the harvest is reaped and sold, and he can recoup his advances and so it is in every field of production. Some of this was picked up by Adam Smith and the later British classicists, but they failed to absorb two vital points. One was that Turgot's capitalist was also a capitalist entrepreneur. He not only advanced savings to workers and other factors of production, he also, as Catillon had first pointed out, bore the risks of uncertainty on the market. Catillon's theory of the entrepreneur as a pervasive risk-bearer facing uncertainty, thereby equilibrating market conditions, had lacked one key element, an analysis of capital and the realization that the major driving force of the market economy is not just any entrepreneur, but the capitalist entrepreneur, the man who combines both functions. Yet Turgot's memorable achievement in developing the theory of the capitalist entrepreneur has, as Professor Hoselitz pointed out, been completely ignored until the twentieth century. If the British classicists totally neglected the entrepreneur, they also failed to absorb Turgot's proto-Austrian emphasis on the crucial role of time in production, and the fact that industries may require many stages of production with lengthy periods of advance payment before production and sale. Turgot perceptively pointed out that it is the owner of capital who will wait for the sale of the leather to return him not only all his advances, but also a profit sufficient to compensate him for what his money would have been worth to him had he turned it to the acquisition of an estate, and, moreover, the wages due to his labor and care, to his risk, and even to his skill. 
In this passage, Turgot anticipated the Austrian concept of opportunity cost, and pointed out that the capitalist will tend to earn his imputed wages and the opportunity that the capitalist sacrificed by not investing his money elsewhere. In short, the capitalist's accounting profits will tend to a long-run equilibrium, plus the imputed wages of his own labor and skill. In agriculture, manufacturing, or any other field of production, there are two basic classes of producers in society. The entrepreneurs, owners of capital, which they invest profitably as advances for setting men at work, and the workers, or simple artisans, who have no other property than their arms, who advance only their daily labor and receive no profit but their wages. At this point, Turgot incorporated a germ of valuable insight from the physiocratic tableau, that invested capital must continue to return a steady profit through continued circulation of expenditures, else dislocations in production and payments will occur. Integrating his analyses of money and capital, Turgot then pointed out that before the development of gold or silver as money, the scope for entrepreneurship, manufacturing, or commerce had been very limited. For to develop the division of labor and stages of production, it is necessary to accumulate large sums of capital and undertake extensive exchanges, none of which is possible without money. Seeing that advances of savings to factors of production are a key to investment, and that this process is only developed in a money economy, Turgot then proceeded to a crucial Austrian point. Since money and capital advances are indispensable to all enterprises, laborers are therefore willing to pay capitalists a discount out of production for the service of having money paid them in advance of future revenue. In short, the interest return on investment, what the Swedish-Austrian Knut Wicksell would, over a century later, call the natural rate of interest, is the payment by laborers to the capitalists for the function of advancing them present money, so that they do not have to wait for years for their income. As Turgot put it in his Reflections, since capitals are the indispensable foundation of all lucrative enterprises, those who, with their industry and love of labor, have no capitals, or do not have sufficient for the enterprise they wish to embark on, have no difficulty in deciding to give up to the owners of such capital or money who are willing to trust it to them a portion of the profits they expect to receive over and above the return of their advances. The following year, in his scintillating comments on the paper by Saint-Peravie, Turgot expanded his analysis of savings and capital to set forth an excellent anticipation of Say's law. Turgot rebutted pre-Keynesian fears of the physiocrats that money not spent on consumption would leak out of the circular flow and thereby wreck the economy. As a result, the physiocrats tended to oppose savings per se. 
Turgot, however, pointed out that advances of capital are vital in all enterprises, and where might the advances come from, if not out of savings? He also noted that it made no difference if such savings were supplied by landed proprietors or by entrepreneurs. For entrepreneurial savings to be large enough to accumulate capital and expand production, profits have to be higher than the amount required to reproduce current entrepreneurial spending, that is, replace inventory, capital goods, etc., as they are drawn down or wear out. Turgot goes on to point out that the physiocrats assume without proof that savings simply leak out of circulation and lower prices. Instead, money will return to circulation. Savings will immediately be used either to buy land, to be invested as advances to workers and other factors, or to be loaned out at interest. All these uses of savings return money to the circular flow. Advances of capital, for example, return to circulation in paying for equipment, buildings, raw material, or wages. The purchase of land transfers money to the seller of land, who in turn will either buy something with the money, pay his debts, or relend the amount. In any case, the money returns promptly to circulation. Turgot then engaged in a similar analysis of spending flows if savings are loaned at interest. If consumers borrow the money, they borrow in order to spend, and so the money expended returns to circulation. If they borrow to pay debts or buy land, the same thing occurs. And if entrepreneurs borrow the money, it will be poured into advances and investment, and the money will once again return to circulation. Money saved, therefore, is not lost. It returns to circulation. Furthermore, the value of savings invested in capital is far greater than piled up in hoards, so that money will tend to return to circulation quickly. Furthermore, Turgot pointed out, even if increased savings actually withdrew a small amount of money from circulation for a considerable time, the lower price of the produce will be more than offset for the entrepreneur by the increased advances and the consequent greater output and lowering of the cost of production. Here, Turgot had the germ of the much later von Mises von Hayek analysis of how savings narrows but lengthens the structure of production. The acme of Turgot's contribution to economic theory was his sophisticated analysis of interest. We have already seen Turgot's remarkable insight in seeing interest return on investment as a price paid by laborers to capitalist entrepreneurs for advances of savings in the form of present money. Turgot also demonstrated, far ahead of his time, the relationship between this natural rate of interest and the interest on money loans. He showed, for example, that the two must tend to be equal on the market, since the owners of capital will continually balance their expected returns in different channels of use, whether they be money loans or direct investment in production.
The lender sells the use of his money now, and the borrower buys that use, and the price of those loans, that is, the loan rate of interest, will be determined, as in the case of any commodity, by the variations in supply and demand on the market. Increased demand for loans, many borrowers, will raise interest rates. Increased supply of loans, many lenders, will lower them. People borrow for many reasons, as we have seen, to try to make an entrepreneurial profit, to purchase land, pay debts, or consume, while lenders are concerned with just two matters, interest return and the safety of their capital. While there will be a market tendency to equate loan rates of interest and interest returns on investment, Loans tend to be a less risky form of channeling savings. Thus, investment in risky enterprises will only be made if entrepreneurs expect that their profit will be greater than the loan rate of interest. Turgot also pointed out that government bonds will tend to be the least risky investment, so that they will earn the lowest interest return. He went on to declare that the true evil of government debt is that it presents advantages to the public creditors, but channels their savings into sterile and unproductive uses, and maintains a high interest rate in competition with productive uses. Or, as we would say nowadays, public debt crowds out productive private uses of savings. Pressing on to an analysis of the nature and use of lending at interest, Turgot engaged in an incisive and hard-hitting critique of usury laws, which the physiocrats were still trying to defend. A loan, Turgot pointed out, is a reciprocal contract, free between the two parties, which they make only because it is advantageous to them. But a contracted loan is then ipso facto advantageous to both the lender and the borrower. Turgot moved in for the clincher. Now on what principle can a crime be discovered in a contract advantageous to two parties, with which both parties are satisfied, and which certainly does no injury to anyone else? There is no exploitation in charging interest, just as there is none in the sale of any commodity. To attack a lender for taking advantage of the borrower's need for money by demanding interest is as absurd an argument as saying that a baker who demands money for the bread he sells takes advantage of the buyer's need for bread. And if the money spent on bread might be considered its equivalent, then in the same way the money which the borrower receives today is equally an equivalent of the capital and interest he promises to return at the end of a certain time. In short, a loan contract establishes the present value of a future payment of capital and interest. The borrower gets use of the money during the term of the loan. The lender is deprived of such use. The price of this advantage or disadvantage is interest. It is true, Turgot says to the anti-usury wing of the scholastics, that money as a mass of metal is barren and produces nothing. But money employed successfully in enterprises yields a profit, or invested in land yields revenue. 
The lender gives up, during the term of the loan, not only possession of the metal, but also the profit he could have obtained by investment, the profit or revenue he would have been able to procure by it, and the interest which indemnified him for this loss cannot be looked on as unjust. Thus Turgot integrates his analysis and justification for interest with a generalized view of opportunity cost, of income foregone from lending money. And then, above all, Turgot declares, there is the property right of the lender, a crucial point that must not be overlooked. A lender has the right to require an interest for his loan simply because the money is his property. Since it is property, he is free to keep it. If, then, he does lend, he may attach such conditions to the loan as he sees fit. In this, he does no injury to the borrower, since the latter agrees to the conditions, and has no right of any kind over the sum lent. As for the biblical passage in Luke that had for centuries been used to denounce interest, the passage that urged lending without gain, Turgot pointed out that this advice was simply a precept of charity, a laudable action inspired by generosity, and not a requirement of justice. The opponents of usury, Turgot explained, never press on to a consistent position of trying to force everyone to lend his savings at zero interest. In one of his last contributions, the highly influential Paper on Lending at Interest, 1770, A.R.J. Turgot elaborated on his critique of usury laws, at the same time amplifying his noteworthy theory of interest. He pointed out that usury laws are not rigorously enforced, leading to widespread black markets in loans. But the stigma of usury remains, along with pervasive dishonesty and disrespect for law. Yet every once in a while the usury laws are sporadically and unpredictably enforced, with severe penalties. Most importantly, Turgot, in the paper on lending at interest, focused on the crucial problem of interest. Why are borrowers willing to pay the interest premium for the use of money? The opponents of usury, he noted, hold that the lender, in requiring more than the principal to be returned, is receiving a value in excess of the value of the loan, and that this excess is somehow deeply immoral. But then Turgot came to the critical point. It is true that in repaying the principal, the borrower returns exactly the same weight of the metal which the lender had given him. But why, he adds, should the weight of the money metal be the crucial consideration, and not the value and usefulness it has for the lender and the borrower? Specifically, arriving at the vital Böhm-Bawerkian Austrian concept of time preference, Turgot urges us to compare the difference in usefulness which exists at the date of borrowing between a sum currently owned and an equal sum which is to be received at a distant date. The key is time preference, the discounting of the future and the concomitant placing of a premium upon the present. Turgot points to the well-known motto, A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. 
since a sum of money actually owned now is preferable to the assurance of receiving a similar sum in one or several years' time, the same sum of money paid and returned is scarcely an equivalent value, for the lender gives the money and receives only an assurance. But cannot this loss in value be compensated by the assurance of an increase in the sum proportioned to the delay? Turgot concluded that this compensation is precisely the rate of interest. He added that what has to be compared in a loan transaction is not the value of money loaned with the sum of money repaid, but the value of the promise of a sum of money compared to the value of money available now. For a loan is precisely the transfer of a sum of money in exchange for the current promise of a sum of money in the future. Hence, a maximum rate of interest imposed by law would deprive virtually all risky enterprises of credit. In addition to developing the Austrian theory of time preference, Turgot was the first person in his reflections to point to the corresponding concept of capitalization, that is, the present capital value of land or other capital good on the market, tends to equal the sum of its expected annual future rents or returns, discounted by the market rate of time preference or rate of interest. As if this were not enough to contribute to economics, Turgot also pioneered a sophisticated analysis of the interrelation between the interest rate and the quantity theory of money. There is little connection, he pointed out, between the value of currency in terms of prices and the interest rate. The supply of money may be plentiful, and hence the value of money low in terms of commodities but interest may at the same time be very high. Perhaps following David Hume's similar model, Turgot asks what would happen if the quantity of silver money in a country suddenly doubled, and that increase were magically distributed in equal proportions to every person. Specifically, Turgot asks us to assume that there are one million ounces of silver money in existence in a country, and that there is brought into the state, in some manner or other, a second million ounces of silver, and that this increase is distributed to every purse in the same proportion as the first million, so that he who had two ounces before now has four. Turgot then explains that prices will rise, perhaps doubling, and that therefore the value of silver in terms of commodities will fall. But, he adds, it by no means follows that the interest rate will fall if people's expenditure proportions remain the same, if all this money is carried to the market and employed in the current expenses of those who possess it. The new money will not be loaned out, since only saved money is loaned and invested. Indeed, Turgot points out that depending on how the spending savings proportions are affected, a rise in the quantity of money could raise interest rates. Suppose, he says, that all wealthy people decide to spend their incomes and annual profits on consumption, and spend their capital on foolish expenditures. 
the greater consumption spending will raise the prices of consumer goods, and there being far less money to lend or to spend on investments, interest rates will rise along with prices. In short, spending will accelerate and prices rise, while at the same time, time preference rates rise, people spend more and save less, and interest rates will increase. Thus, Turgot is over a century ahead of his time in working out the sophisticated Austrian relationship between what von Mises would call the money relation, the relation between the supply and demand for money, which determines prices or the price level, and the rates of time preference, which determine the spending-saving proportion and the rate of interest. Here, too, was the beginning of the rudiments of the Austrian theory of the business cycle, of the relationship between expansion of the money supply and the rate of interest. As for the movements in the rate of time preference or interest, an increase in the spirit of thrift will lower interest rates and increase the amount of savings and the accumulation of capital. A rise in the spirit of luxury will do the opposite. The spirit of thrift, Turgot notes, has been steadily rising in Europe over several centuries, and hence interest rates have tended to fall. The various interest rates and rates of return on loans, investments, land, etc., will tend to equilibrate throughout the market, and tend towards a single rate of return. Capital, Turgot notes, will move out of lower-profit industries and regions and into higher-profit industries. 6. Theory of Money While Turgot did not devote a great deal of attention to the theory of money proper, he had some important contributions to make. In addition to continuing the Hume model and integrating it with his analysis of interest, Turgot was emphatic in his opposition to the now dominant idea that money is purely a conventional token. In his critique of a prize-winning paper by J. J. Graslin, 1767, Turgot declares Graslin totally mistaken in regarding money purely as a conventional token of wealth. In contrast, Turgot declares, it is not at all by virtue of a convention that money is exchanged for all the other values. It is itself an object of commerce, a form of wealth, because it has a value, and because any value exchanges in trade for an equal value. In his unfinished dictionary article on value and money, Turgot develops his monetary theory further. Drawing on his knowledge of linguistics, he declares that money is a kind of language, bringing forms of various conventional things into a common term or standard. The common term of all currencies is the actual value, or prices, of the objects they try to measure. These measures, however, are hardly perfect, Turgot acknowledges, since the values of gold and silver always vary in relation to commodities as well as each other. All monies are made of the same materials, largely gold and silver, and differ only on the units of currency, 
and all these units are reducible to each other, as are other measures of length or volume by expressions of weight in each standard currency. There are two kinds of money, Turgo notes, real money, coins, pieces of metal marked by inscriptions, and fictitious money, serving as units of account or numeraires. When real money units are defined in terms of the units of account, the various units are then linked to each other and to specific weights of gold or silver. Problems arise, Turgo shows, because the real monies in the world are not just one metal, but two, gold and silver. The relative values of gold and silver on the market will then vary in accordance with the abundance and the relative scarcity of gold and silver in the various nations. 7. Influence one of the striking examples of injustice in the historiography of economic thought is the treatment accorded to Turgot's brilliant analysis of capital and interest by the great founder of Austrian capital and interest theory, Eugen von Böhm-Bawerk. In the 1880s, Böhm-Bawerk set out, in the first volume of his Capital and Interest, to clear the path for his own theory of interest by studying and demolishing previous competing theories. Unfortunately, instead of acknowledging Turgot as his forerunner in pioneering Austrian theory, Böhm-Bawerk brusquely dismissed the Frenchman as a mere physiocratic naive land productivity or fructification theorist. This unfairness to Turgot is all the more heightened by recent information that Böhm-Bawerk, in his first evaluation of Turgot's theory of interest in a still unpublished seminar paper in 1876, reveals the enormous influence of Turgot's views on his later developed thought. Perhaps we must conclude that, in this case, as in other cases, Böhm-Bawerk's need to claim originality and to demolish all his predecessors took precedence over the requirements of truth and justice. In the light of Böhm-Bawerk's mistreatment, it is heartwarming to see Schumpeter's appreciative summation of Turgot's great contributions to economics. Concentrating almost exclusively on Turgot's reflections, Schumpeter declares that his theory of price formation is almost faultless, and, barring explicit formulation of the marginal principle within measurable distance of that of Böhm-Bawerk, the theory of saving, investment, and capital is the first serious analysis of these matters, and proved almost unbelievably hardy. It is doubtful whether Alfred Marshall had advanced beyond it, certain that J.S. Mill had not. Böhm-Bawerk no doubt added a new branch to it, but substantially he subscribed to Turgot's propositions. Turgot's interest theory is not only by far the greatest performance the 18th century produced, but it clearly foreshadowed much of the best thought of the last decades of the 19th. All in all, it is not too much to say that analytic economics took a century to get where it could have got in twenty years after the publication of Turgot's treatise, had its content been properly understood and absorbed by an alert profession. 
Turgot's influence on later economic thought was severely limited, probably largely because his writings were unfairly discredited among later generations by his association with physiocracy, and by the pervasive myth that Adam Smith had founded economics. And those 19th-century economists who did read Turgot failed to grasp the significance of his capital, interest, and production theories. Though Adam Smith knew Turgot personally and read the reflections, the influence on Smith, whose conclusions, apart from a broadly laissez-faire approach, were so different, was apparently minimal. Ricardo, typically, was heedless and uncomprehending, simply admiring Turgot for his thankless political role as liberal reformer. James Mill had a similar reaction. Malthus admired Turgot's views on value, but the only substantial Turgotian influence in England was on the great champion of the subjective utility theory of value, Samuel Bailey. Although the influence on Bailey is patent, he unfortunately did not refer to Turgot in his work, so that the utility tradition in Britain could not rediscover its champion. It is on the French self-avowed Smithian, J. B. Say, that Turgot had the most influence, especially in the subjective utility theory of value, and to some extent in capital and interest theory. Say was the genuine heir of the French laissez-faire proto-Austrian 18th-century tradition. Unfortunately, his citations of Turgot underplayed the influence, and his obeisances to Smith were highly exaggerated, both probably reflecting Say's characteristic post-French revolutionary reluctance to identify himself closely with the pro-absolute monarchy, pro-agriculture physiocrats, with whom Turgot was unfortunately lumped in the eyes of most knowledgeable Frenchmen. Hence, the ritualistic turn toward Smith. 8. Other French and Italian Utility Theorists of the 18th Century Two other distinguished French writers on economics, both contemporaries of Turgot, must be mentioned as contributing greatly to economic thought. The Abbe Ferdinando Galliani, 1728-1787, was a fascinating character who, though a Neapolitan, may be counted as largely French. Reared by his uncle, the chief almoner to the king, Galliani early came into contact with the leaders of Neapolitan thought and culture. At the age of sixteen, Galliani translated some of Locke's writings on money into Italian, and began an eight-year study of money. During the same period, Galliani took religious orders. At the age of twenty-three, he published his remarkable major work, On Money, 1751, which set forth a utility-scarcity theory of the value of goods and money. Unfortunately, On Money has never been fully translated from the Italian. In 1759, the Abbe Galliani became secretary and later head of the Neapolitan embassy in Paris, where he stayed for ten years, and where the erratic, witty, erudite, four-and-a-half-foot-tall Galliani became the social lion of the Paris salons, 
After his return to Italy, though he wrote several minor works in linguistics and politics, and held several leading positions in the civil service, he considered himself an exile from his beloved France. In the late scholastic French-Italian tradition, Galliani expounded the value of goods as subjective valuation by consumers. Value is not intrinsic, he pointed out, but a sort of relationship between the possession of one good and that of another in the human mind. Man always compares the valuation of one good with another, and exchanges one good for another in order to increase the level of his satisfactions. The quantity demanded of a good is inverse to its price, and the utility of each good is in inverse relation to its supply. Alert to the law of diminishing utility upon increasing supply, Galliani, like his predecessors, stops just short of the marginal concept, but is, at any rate, able to solve the value paradox— the view that use-value is severed from price or exchange-value because bread or water, goods highly useful to man, are very cheap on the market, whereas fripperies like diamonds are highly expensive. Thus Galliani writes with great subtlety and perception, and with his usual flair, it is obvious that air and water, which are very useful for human life, have no value because they are not scarce. On the other hand, a bag of sand from the shores of Japan would be an extremely rare thing. Yet, unless it has a certain utility, it is without value. Galliani then states the alleged value paradox, quoting from the 17th-century Italian writer Bernardo Davanzati, Davanzati laments that a living calf is nobler than a golden calf, but how much less is its price? While others say a pound of bread is more useful than a pound of gold. Galliani then brilliantly demolishes this doctrine. This is a wrong and foolish conclusion. It is based on neglect of the fact that useful and less useful are relative concepts, which depend on the specific circumstances. If somebody is in want of bread and of gold, bread is surely more useful for him. This agrees with the facts of life, because nobody would forego bread, take gold, and die from hunger. People who mine gold never forget to eat and to sleep. But somebody who has eaten his fill will consider bread the least useful of goods. He will then want to satisfy other needs. This goes to show that the precious metals are companions of luxury, that is, of a status in which the elemental needs are taken care of. Davanzati maintains that a single egg, priced at one-half grain of gold, would have had the value of protecting the starving Count Ugolino from death at his tenth day in jail, a value in excess of that of all the gold in the world. But this confuses awkwardly the prices paid by a person unafraid to die from hunger without the egg, and the needs of Count Ugolino, how can Davanzati be sure that the Count would not have paid one thousand grains of gold for the egg? 
Davanzati obviously had made a mistake here, and although he is not aware of it, his further remarks indicate that he knows better. He says, What an awful thing is a rat! But when Casalino was under siege, prices went up so much that a rat fetched two hundred guilders, and this price was not expensive, because the seller died from hunger and the buyer could save himself. Professor Einaudi informed us in 1945 that this is the classical section which is always read in Italian seminars when a telling illustration of the principle of diminishing utility is to be given. In addition to illuminating this crucial principle, the above passage also shows how people, satiated with bread, turn to the consumption or use of other goods foregone. In addition to taking a subjectivist pre-Austrian approach to utility and value of goods, Galliani also introduced the same approach towards interest on loans, outlining at least the rudiments of the time-preference theory of interest in passages that influenced Turgot. Thus Galliani wrote, From this arises the rate of exchange and the rate of interest, brother and sister, the former equalizes the present and the spatially distant money. It operates with the help of an apparent agio, which equates the real value of the one to that of the other, one being reduced because of lesser convenience or greater risk. Interest equalizes present and future money. Here the effect of time is the same as that of spatial distance in the case of the rate of exchange. The basis of either contract is the equality of the real value. Galliani defines a loan as the surrender of a good with the proviso that an equivalent good is to be returned, not more. But in contrast to the centuries-long tradition of anti-usury writers who proceed from the same premise to denounce all interest on loans as illegitimate, Galliani points out what would later be a fundamental insight of the Austrian school. A good, in this case an equivalent, is not to be described by its physical properties or similarities, but rather by its subjective value in the minds of individual actors. Thus Galliani writes that those who conventionally define the equivalence of goods as weight or similarity of form focus on the physical objects in each exchange, such as units of money. But, he adds, those who adopt such definitions understand little of human activities. He reiterates instead that value is not an objective characteristic inherent in goods, but rather it is the relationship of goods to our needs. But then, goods are equivalent when they provide equal convenience to the person with reference to whom they are considered as equivalent. Another prefigurement of the Austrian approach was Galliani's intimations towards a theory of distribution, which were not taken up until Bernbawerk, probably independently, arrived at a similar but much fuller analysis a century and a half later. For Galliani hinted in his On Money that it was not labor costs that determine value, but the opposite. It is value that determines labor costs. 
or, more concretely, that the utility of products and the scarcity of various types of labor determine the prices of labor on the market. Though he begins his discussion by stating that labor in the sense of human energy is the sole source of value, he quickly goes on to point out that human talents vary greatly, so that the price of labor will vary. Thus, I believe that the value of human talents is determined in the very same way as that of inanimate things, and that it is regulated by the same principles of scarcity and utility combined. Men are born endowed by providence with aptitudes for different trades, but in different degrees of scarcity. It is not utility alone, therefore, which governs prices, for God causes the men who carry on the trades of greatest utility to be born in large numbers, and so their value cannot be great, these being, so to speak, the bread and wine of men. But scholars and philosophers, who may be called the gems among talents, deservedly bear a very high price. Galliani was undoubtedly over-optimistic about the very high price to be commanded by scholars and philosophers on the market, having overlooked his own scintillating example of scarce goods, such as bags of sand from the shores of Japan, which, though rare, may have little or no utility or value in the minds of consumers. On the theory of money proper, the Abbe Galliani paved the way for the Austrian Menger von Mises analysis of the origin of money by demonstrating that money, the medium of exchange, must originate on the market as a useful metal, and that it cannot be selected de novo, as a convention by some sort of social contract. In a lively assault on money as a convention that could apply to any social contract explanation of the origin of the state, Galliani derided those who insist that all men had once come to an agreement, making a contract providing for the use as money of the per se useless metals, thus attaching value to them. Where did these conventions of all mankind take place, and where were the agreements concluded? In which century? At which place? Who were the deputies with whose help the Spaniards and Chinese, the Goths and the Africans, made an agreement so lasting that during the many centuries which have passed the opinion never was changed? Galliani pointed out that the sort of metal that would be chosen on the market would have to be universally acceptable, and hence would need to be highly valuable as a non-monetary commodity, easily portable, durable, uniform in quality, easily recognizable and calculable, and be difficult to counterfeit. Wiser than Smith and Ricardo after him, Galliani warned that money should not be regarded as ideally an invariable measure of value, for the value of a unit of account necessarily varies as the purchasing power of money changes, and therefore such an invariable standard cannot exist. As Galliani put it with typical pungency, finally this concept of stable money is a dream, a mania. 
every new and richer mine that is discovered immediately changes all measures, without showing an effect on them, but changing the price of the goods measured. Galliani made clear throughout on money that his entire analysis was embedded in the conceptual framework of the natural law. Natural laws, he explained, have a universal validity in economic affairs, as much as in the laws of gravity or of fluids. Like physical laws, economic laws can only be violated at one's peril. Any action defying the order of nature will be certain to fail. The Abbe proved his point by citing a hypothetical case. Suppose that a Mohammedan country suddenly converts to Christianity. The drinking of wine, previously prohibited, now becomes legal, and its price will rise because of the small quantity available in the country. Merchants will bring wine into the country, and new wine producers will enter the field, until profits in dealing with wine fall back to their normal equilibrium level, as when waves are made in a vessel of water, after the confused and irregular movement, the water returns to its original level. This equilibrating action of the market, which Galliani shows also applies to money, is furthermore propelled, marvelously enough, by self-interest, greed, and the quest for profit. And this equilibrium wonderfully suits the right abundance of commodities of life and earthly welfare, although it derives not from human prudence or virtue, but from the very vile stimulus of sordid profit. Providence, having contrived the order of everything for her infinite love of men, that our vile passions are often, in spite of us, ordered to the advantage of the whole. The economic process, Galliani concluded, was guided by a supreme hand, shades of Adam Smith's invisible hand, a generation later. The institution of money, indeed, enables all people to live together, to be interdependent on each other, while still benefiting greatly in pursuing their individual ends. As Galliani eloquently puts it, I saw, and everyone can now see, that trade and money, which drives it, from the miserable state of nature in which everyone thinks for himself, have brought us to the very happy one of living together, where everyone thinks and works for everybody else. And in this state, not for the principle of virtue and piety alone, which are insufficient in dealing with entire nations, but we earn our living for the purpose of our personal interest and welfare. Galliani's analysis is fueled by an original and profound comparative analysis of seeing, mentally, what happens in different social systems. Thus he noted that, to avoid the inconveniences of barter, people might try living together, literally, in communities, as monasteries and convents do. But this is hardly feasible for entire nations. In a larger society there might be a system where everyone produces whatever goods he wishes, and then deposits them in a public warehouse, where everyone could draw on the common store. Galliani might have phrased it as, from each according to his ability, to each according to his needs. 
but the system would collapse because lazy people would try to live at the expense of exploiting the hard-working ones, who in turn would work less. The public warehouse could, on the other hand, give producers receipts, which would then exchange for other goods at relative prices fixed by the prince. But one problem is that the prince might well inflate by printing an excessive number of such receipts, so that metals are the only viable money. Galliani's youthful work on money was his great contribution to economics. In his early days, an ardent Catholic, abbe and monsignore, in Paris, Galliani became a free thinker, roué, and Voltairean wit, in the course of rising in the bureaucracy, he completely changed his economic views, publishing the well-known Dialogues on the Grain Trade in 1770, which ridiculed laissez-faire and free trade, natural rights, and the very idea of economic laws transcending time and place. Thus Galliani was not only an excellent utility theorist, but in his later years a forerunner of the nineteenth-century historicists. In his private letters, Galliani reveals quite frankly the underlying reason for his later conservatism, adherence to the status quo, cynical Machiavellianism, and critique of any liberal or laissez-faire disruption of the existing state of affairs. Attacking the idea of worrying about anyone's welfare but one's own, Galliani writes, The devil take one's neighbor, and that all nonsense and disturbance arise from the fact that everybody is busy pleading somebody else's cause, and nobody his own. He wrote that he was well satisfied with the existing French government, because it was frankly expedient for him to do so. Specifically, he did not wish to lose his luxurious income of 15,000 livres. Of course, Galliani found it expedient to confine his Machiavellianism to private letters while pretending to moralism in his public writings. Thus, in his On Money, in both the original edition and in the second edition in 1780, Galliani bitterly denounced the institution of slavery— there is nothing that appears to me more monstrous than to see human beings like ourselves vilified, enslaved, and treated like animals. But his approach was very different in a letter written in 1772. I believe that we should continue to buy Negroes as long as they are sold, unless we succeed in letting them live in America. The only profitable trade is to exchange the blows one gives for the rupees one collects. It is the trade of the strongest. In short, anything is right if it succeeds. Another Italian utility theorist, in his case an analyst of exchange, was the highly influential Neapolitan Abate Antonio Genovesi, 1712-1769. Genovese was born near Salerno and became a priest in 1739. At first a professor of ethics and moral philosophy at the University of Naples, Genovese shifted his interests and became a professor of economics and commerce, in which he was a notable teacher. 
In his rather disjointed Lessons on Civil Economy, 1765, the learned Genovese took a moderate free trade stance. More important, he pointed out the essential double inequality of value involved in any exchange. In any exchange, he said, each party desires the object he acquires more than he does the object given up. The superfluous is given up for the necessary. Hence, the mutual benefit necessarily present in any exchange. The last gasp of subjective utility theory in the 18th century was set forth brilliantly by the French philosopher Etienne Bonneau de Condillac, Abbé de Moreau, 1715-1780. Condillac, a leading empiricist sensationalist philosopher, was the younger brother of the communist writer Gabriel Bonneau de Mably, and son of the Vicomte de Mably, who served as secretary to the Parliament of Grenoble. After being educated at a theological seminary in Paris, Condillac left to pursue philosophy, publishing several philosophical works in the 1740s and 1750s. In 1758, Condillac went to Italy as tutor to the son of Duke Ferdinand of Parma. There his interest was stimulated in economics by acquaintance with the pro-free trade economic policymaker T.O., State Secretary to the Duke. At the same time, Condillac learned of the work of Galliani and other Italian subjective value theorists. After a decade as tutor of the future Duke, Condillac published a 16-volume course of studies he had prepared for his pupil. When Condillac returned to Paris in the late 1760s, interest in trade, political economy, and physiocracy was at its height, and Condillac, always favoring free trade on his own subjectivist grounds, very different from the physiocrats, was stimulated to write his last work, Commerce and Government, published in 1776, only a month before The Wealth of Nations. In Commerce and Government, unfortunately destined to be swept away by Smith's all-commanding influence, Condillac set forth and defended a sophisticated subjective utility theory of value. The last of the utility-scarcity theorists, before the advent of the British classicists, Condillac declared that the source of value of a good is its utility as evaluated by individuals in accordance with their needs and desires. Utility of goods increases with scarcity and decreases with abundance. Exchange arises because the utility and value of the two goods exchanged is different, indeed the reverse, for the two people engaging in the exchange. As in the case of Genovese, in exchange the superfluous is exchanged for the object in insufficient supply. But Condillac was careful to point out that exchange does not mean we give up things which are totally useless. An exchange only implies, as a later commentator summed it up, that what we acquire is worth more to us than what we part with. As Condillac put it, it is true that I might sell a thing that I wanted, but as I would not do so except to procure one that I wanted still more, 
it is evident that I regard the first as useless to me in comparison with the one that I acquire. The point is relative rather than absolute superabundance, and this set of superfluous for scarce exchanges greatly increases the all-round productivity of the market economy. Notes Condiac, the superabundance of the cultivators forms the basis of commerce. The cultivators procure the thing which has a value for them, while they give up one which has a value for others. If they could make no exchanges, their superabundance would remain in their hands and would have no value for them. In fact, the superabundant corn which I keep in my granary and which I cannot exchange is no more wealth for me than the corn which I have not yet produced from the earth. Hence next year I shall sow less. Furthermore, Condiac pressed on and generalized Galliani's utility theory of costs and distribution, declaring that a thing does not have value because it costs, as people suppose. It costs because it has a value. And the value is determined by the subjective opinions of individuals on the market. Condiac, moreover, refuted the typical classical and pre-classical doctrine, dominant since Aristotle, that the fact that one good exchanges for another must mean that the two goods are of equal value. Condiac rebutted this point neatly, a rebuttal which was promptly lost for one hundred years. It is false that in exchanges one gives equal value for equal value. To the contrary, each of the contractors always surrenders a lesser for a greater value. Since consumer utility and demand determines value, people will tend to receive income from production to whatever extent they satisfy consumers in the production process. Hence, as Hutchison summarizes, people could expect to receive in income whatever they could expect to receive from the sale of such productive agents as they commanded. Pay was regulated in markets by sellers and buyers, and depended on productivity and the expected utility of what was produced. Since greater intelligence and skill is in scarcer supply, it will tend to command a higher price, or wage, on the market. Condillac's theory of entrepreneurship followed Cantillon, profits of the entrepreneur depending on the way in which he meets uncertainty and is able to forecast future markets. Like Cantillon, too, Condillac denied that money's value is arbitrary or determined by mere convention or government. The value of metallic money depends on the utility of monetary metals and their supply on the market, so that money's value is determined, as is that of other goods, by supply and demand. And Condillac also followed Cantillon in analyzing the equilibrating, self-adjusting processes in international money flows and the balance of payments. It was, then, not a great exaggeration when, nearly a century afterwards, the British economist Henry Dunning MacLeod waxed rhapsodic over his rediscovery of the then-forgotten Condillac. 
McLeod noted that Condillac drew from his insights an ardent devotion to complete free trade, and to an attack far more consistent than that of his contemporary Adam Smith on all forms of government intervention in the economy. McLeod noted Condillac's discussion of the mischievous consequences produced by all violations of and attacks on the principle of free markets. These are wars, custom houses, taxes on industry, privileged and exclusive companies, taxes on consumption, tamperings with the currency, government loans, paper money, laws about the export and import of corn, laws about the internal circulation of grain, tricks of monopolists. Condillac, McLeod went on, first proclaimed, as far as we are aware, the doctrine that in commerce both sides gain. The old doctrine sanctioned by Montaigne, Bacon, and many others was that what one side gains, the other loses. This pernicious folly was the cause of many bloody wars. The physiocrats then maintained that in exchange the values are equal— but Condillac laid down the true doctrine, that in commerce both sides gain, and he shows truly that the whole of commercial dynamics arise from these inequalities of value. Himself joining in anticipation of the imputation or marginal productivity theory of wages or other factor pricing, McLeod also underlined the significance of Condillac's insight that costs are determined by a good's value to the consumer rather than the other way around. In that way, Condillac helped inadvertently to refute the entire Smithian labor theory of value apparatus which was coming into being the same year that Condillac published his work. As MacLeod puts it, thus too he strikes at the root of many of the prevailing theories of value, which are based upon labor. He says that people pay for things because they value them, and they do not value them because they pay for them, as is commonly supposed. This is exactly the doctrine of Dr. Archbishop Richard Whateley, when he says that people dive for pearls because they fetch a high price, and they do not fetch a high price because people dive for them. That it is not labor that is the cause of value— but value that attracts labor. McLeod concludes his discussion with a rhetorical flourish. Noting that Condillac and Smith's classic works were published in the same year, he contrasted Smith's universal celebrity with Condillac's neglect, but then notes that the world is rediscovering Condillac and learning of the superiority of his conception of economics to that of Smith. And, besides, MacLeod wrote, not without justification, the beautiful clearness and simplicity of Condillac contrasts notably with the incredible confusions and contradictions of Adam Smith. However, at length, he will receive justice. If we contrast, however, the hypertrophy of Smith's bicentennial celebration with the non-existence of Condillac's, we might not be so quick to conclude that history has yet judged correctly. Chapter 15. The Scottish Enlightenment 
The temptation is to entitle this chapter The Forerunners of Adam Smith, himself a leading product of the Scottish Enlightenment. The problem, however, is that Smith, in most aspects of economics, was a retrogression and deterioration rather than an advance from his notable predecessors. By the later 17th and during the 18th century, the once mighty Oxford and Cambridge universities, previously in the forefront of thought and scholarship, had deteriorated to being merely the playground of wealthy young men, Instead, for over a century, the intellectual leadership of Great Britain devolved on the two great universities of Scotland, the University of Glasgow, and, particularly, the University of Edinburgh. 1. The Founder, Gershom Carmichael The founder of the tradition of academic economics in Scotland was Gershom Carmichael, circa 1672 to 1729. Carmichael's father was a Presbyterian minister who was exiled for heresy by the Scottish Presbyterian-run government. Born in England, Carmichael graduated from Edinburgh University. He then became regent at St. Andrews and Glasgow Universities, where courses were taught by regents, who were essentially young graduate students. After that, Carmichael was Presbyterian minister at Fife. When the regenting system was abolished in 1727, Carmichael was named the first professor of moral philosophy at Glasgow, where he died two years later. Economics, or political economy, was taught as a subset of a course in moral philosophy, and thus the analysis of trade and the economy was embedded in a groundwork and treatment of natural law. In many ways, the 18th-century Scottish professors followed the post-medieval and late Spanish scholastic method of including economic analysis as one segment of an integrated tome covering ethics, natural law, jurisprudence, ontology, and theology, as well as economics proper. The term Protestant scholastic has been coined for such writers as John Locke, and, indeed, the phrase is a coherent one, since one does not have to be Catholic to use the rational scholastic method or arrive at scholastic conclusions. A fascinating example of this was perhaps the first Protestant scholastic, the Dutch jurist Hugo Grotius, 1583-1645. Grotius, who studied law at the University of Leiden and later became chief magistrate of Rotterdam, was an eminent natural law theorist who brought the concepts of natural law and natural rights to the Protestant countries of northern Europe. In his outstanding work, which made him the founder of international law, on the law of war and peace, 1625, Grotius clearly pushed natural law to its logical and rationalist conclusion. Even if God did not exist, natural law would still be eternal and absolute. Such law is discoverable by unaided human reason, and even God could not negate, even if he wanted to, such natural law insights as two plus two equals four. Natural law required the rights of property to be secure in order to enjoy social cooperation, 
and under Grotius influence, the idea of the rights of property became expanded to the economic sphere. In a prefigurement of 18th-century natural law-natural rights theory, Grotius believed in the harmony of human interaction based on free action and property rights. Grotius had been able to work in the rationalist and natural law tradition because his mentor, Jacobus Arminius, had previously broken off from orthodox Calvinism to stress the freedom of will of every individual. On these important matters of social philosophy, the Armenians had what might be called a neo-Catholic position. In politics, Grotius was a leader in the classical liberal, free-trade, republican party in Holland, then engaged in their century-long struggle with the monarchist orthodox Calvinists. Particularly influential on northern European theorists was the late 16th-century Spanish Jesuit scholastic Francisco Suarez. Suarez and his school heavily influenced two men who are generally considered founders of modern philosophy, the early 17th-century Frenchman René Descartes and the late 17th-century German Gottfried Leibniz. Suarez's Metaphysical Disputations was his most influential work, published in Salamanca in 1597. Particularly important was the second edition, published in Mainz, Germany in 1600, which became the leading philosophy textbook in most European universities, both Catholic and Protestant, for over a century. Leibniz, indeed, referred to the disputations as the Philosophia Recepta, the received philosophy. Suarez's work was heavily influential in Protestant Central Europe, Bohemia, Germany, and Holland. The University of Leiden, a leading academic center in Holland during the 17th century, was a particular focus of Suarezian dominance, and it was at Leiden that Hugo Grotius pursued his studies. Though Gershom Carmichael, who inaugurated the teaching of economics in Scotland, launched the tradition of reading and studying Grotius, a tradition that was followed by Adam Smith in the 18th century line of Scottish intellectual descent, more directly important for Carmichael was Grotius' best-known follower, Samuel Baron von Pufendorf, 1632-1694. Pufendorf was born in Saxony, son of a Lutheran pastor. He first studied theology, and then shifted to mathematics, jurisprudence, and natural law. Graduating from the University of Jena, Pufendorf went to Leiden, where he published his first work on jurisprudence in 1661. On the basis of this achievement, Karl Ludwig, the Elector Palatine, created for the young Pufendorf a chair of natural and international law at the University of Heidelberg. In 1672, while teaching at the University of Lund in Sweden, Pufendorf published his great work, De Jure Naturae et Gentium, the following year, he produced the De Officio Hominis et Civis, a resume or abstract of his great de jure. 
It turned out, not surprisingly, that the more concise De Officio proved more useful as a teaching tool, and therefore became the far more directly influential, if inferior, product of Pufendorf's pen. Not only did Professor Gershom Carmichael bring the study of the new natural and international law teachings of Grotius and Pufendorf to British shores, but also he was himself the English translator of De Officio. Carmichael published the English translation in 1718, along with extensive notes and a supplementary commentary. This work turned out to be Carmichael's most important achievement, certainly in economics or the social sciences. Six years later, Carmichael published an improved second edition of De Officio, and this edition was reprinted in 1769. Carmichael saw to it that his students were steeped in Pufendorf and in his own commentaries. Carmichael was the first teacher in Scotland to expound Locke, Leibniz, and Descartes, as well as Grotius and Pufendorf. A knowledgeable observer has called Gershom Carmichael the true founder of the Scottish school of philosophy. A contemporary noted that he was of very great reputation and was exceedingly valued both at home and abroad. So much so, in fact, that another observer noted that on Mr. Carmichael's death all the English students have left the university, and indeed it's very thin this winter, and his name and reputation brought many to it. Thus Carmichael led the way in the emerging custom of bright English students deserting Oxbridge and going up to a Scottish university for intellectual attainment. On Carmichael's commentary on the De Officio, the testimony of Carmichael's most distinguished student, Francis Hutcheson, is telling. Pufendorf's smaller work, De Officio Hominis et Civis, which that worthy and ingenious man, the late Professor Gershom Carmichael of Glasgow, by far the best commentator on that book, has so supplied and corrected that the notes are of much more value than the text. Samuel von Pufendorf, like the 18th-century French and Spanish scholastics, was a pre-Austrian subjective utility-scarcity theorist. That is, he believed that the value of goods on the market was determined by their common valuation placed on them by the consumers, and that the more abundant the supply, the lower the value. Thus Pufendorf. Of common value, the foundation is that aptitude of the good or service by which it helps directly or indirectly to meet human needs. Yet there are some things most useful for human life upon which no definite value is set. The necessity of the good or its great usefulness are so far from always being the first determinant that we can observe men putting a very low value on what is indispensable to human life. This is because nature gives us a plentiful supply of such goods. In fact, a high value proceeds from scarcity. In his notes to Pufendorf, Carmichael adds some valuable and not-so-valuable insights. He stresses the subjective nature of utility, pointing out that the usefulness of a good, which is essential to its value, may be either real or imagined. 
Unfortunately, he also muddied the waters by adding to scarcity as a determinant of value the difficulty of acquiring goods, an obvious real-cost attempt to measure the value of goods by the effort put into their production. 2. Francis Hutcheson, Teacher of Adam Smith Carmichael's most prominent student and follower was his successor at the Chair of Moral Philosophy at Glasgow, Francis Hutcheson, 1694-1746. Hutcheson, too, was the son of a Presbyterian minister of Ulster Scottish, or Scots-Irish, stock, who was born in Ireland. Educated in Glasgow and then Dublin, Hutcheson succeeded to the Moral Philosophy Chair at Glasgow in 1730 upon the demise of Carmichael, where he taught until his death sixteen years later. Hutcheson brought to Scottish philosophy a solid belief in natural rights and the beneficence of nature. Hence Hutcheson brought to Scottish thought the basic classical liberal worldview. Francis Hutcheson was a stimulating and dynamic lecturer who introduced the style of pacing up and down in front of his class. The never-to-be-forgotten Dr. Hutcheson, as Adam Smith referred to him in a letter half a century later, was the first Glasgow professor to teach in English instead of Latin, and also the first to become friend, guardian, and even banker to his students. His lectures on philosophy, politics, law, ethics, and political economy drew students from all over Britain, the most famous of whom was Adam Smith, who studied under him from 1737 to 1740. Hutcheson's major work, The System of Moral Philosophy, 1755, was published by his son after his death. Hutcheson's treatment of value in his system is virtually identical to that of Pufendorf. Again, utility and scarcity are the determinants of value. Beginning with the statement, when there is no demand, there is no price, Hutcheson also points out that some highly useful things, such as air and water, have little or no value because of the bountiful supply furnished by nature. An increasingly scarce supply will raise the value or price of a good. A more abundant supply will lower them. Furthermore, Hutcheson perceptively defines use highly subjectively, not simply as a good which naturally yields pleasure, but as any tendency to give any satisfaction by prevailing custom or fancy. Unfortunately, however, Hutcheson also took the Carmichael confusion about real costs and escalated it. For Hutcheson not only brought in the difficulty of labor as a determinant, he also made it even more determining where the demand for two sorts of goods is equal. Foreshadowing Adam Smith's famous analysis, Francis Hutcheson stressed the importance of an advancing division of labor in economic growth. Liberty on the market involves reciprocal aid through mutually beneficial exchange, a prime example of the beneficence of nature. The division of labor is a key to the preservation of human life and Hutcheson shows the enormous advantages of specialization, skill, and exchange over the puny productivity of an isolated Crusoe. 
Extended division of labor also connotes a more extensive communication of knowledge and permits greater use of machinery in production. In his analysis of money, Hutchison set forth an analysis of which commodities are likely to be chosen as money on the market that used to be standard in money and banking texts until governments destroyed the gold standard in the early 1930s. Money, Hutchison pointed out, is a commodity generally accepted in a particular country that becomes used as a general medium of exchange and as a common standard of value and measure for economic calculation. Commodities which are chosen as money on the market are those with the most moneyish qualities, already generally desirable and acceptable in exchange, divisible into small quantities without losing their pro-rata share of value, durable for long periods of time, and portable, for which quality they must have a high value per unit weight. Generally, he pointed out, silver and gold have been the two commodities that have been chosen as by far the most suitable as money, with coins becoming the most popular form precisely for being divisible and easily carrying a warrant of purity. Debasement of coins increases their supply proportionately and raises prices of goods in terms of the money unit. As in the case of all other goods, an increase in the supply of gold or silver, Hutchison pointed out, lowers their value in terms of other goods, that is, increases their prices in terms of specie. Hutchison's most impressive achievement was his sharp rebuttal of the satiric Bernard de Mandeville, 1670-1733, whose enormously popular Fable of the Bees, or Private Vices, Public Benefits, was published in 1714 and expanded and reprinted in several editions over the next fifteen years. In a pre-physiocratic, proto-Keynesian piece of mischief, the fable maintained that the vice of luxury, no matter how deplorable, performs the important economic function of maintaining the prosperity of the economy. Many historians, especially F. A. von Hayek, have held Mandeville to be a forerunner of Smithian laissez-faire, since Smith held that individual self-interest is harmonized with the interests of all through the operation of competition and the free market. But the intent and the analysis are very different. For Mandeville stressed the alleged paradox of private vice, public benefits, and the benefit was to come through the pre-Keynesian mechanism of consumption spending. Mandeville, furthermore, did not in any sense draw laissez-faire conclusions from this analysis. On the contrary, in a letter to Dion, 1732, published shortly before his death, Mandeville insisted that not the free market, but the wisdom and dexterous management of a skillful politician are needed to transform private vices into public gain. Mandeville's work, furthermore, was virtually the living embodiment of what the 19th-century French laissez-faire economist Frédéric Bastiat would call the broken-window fallacy. Mandeville not only defended the importance of luxury, but also of fraud, 
as providing work for lawyers, and theft for having the virtue of employing locksmiths. And then there was Mandeville's classically imbecilic defense in his Fable of the Bees of the Great Fire of London. The fire of London was a great calamity, but if the carpenters, bricklayers, smiths, and all, not only that are employed in building, but likewise those that made and dealt in the same manufactures and other merchandises that were burnt, and other trades again that got by them when they were in full employed, were to vote against those who lost by the fire, the rejoicings would equal, if not exceed, the complaints. Keynesianism gone mad, or rather, carried to its consistent conclusion. Mandeville's defense of the vice of luxury was enough to outrage both the rational economist and the Presbyterian in Francis Hutcheson. In rebuttal, in a prefigurement of Say's law, he pointed out that income not spent in one way will be spent in another and if not wasted in luxury, will be devoted to useful, prudent purposes. Luxurious spending, then, is scarcely necessary for economic prosperity. In fact, he went on, it is the thrifty and the industrious who provide prosperity by supplying goods to the public. Declared Hutchison, the good arising to the public is in no way owing to the luxurious, intemperate, or proud, but to the industrious, who must supply all customers. Ridiculing Mandeville, the ordinarily sober Hutchison reposted, Who needs to be surprised that luxury or pride are made necessary to public good, when even theft and robbery are supposed by the same author, Mandeville, to be subservient to it, by employing locksmiths? The money saved by not spending on luxury or locks would be profitably employed elsewhere, unless all other wants had been totally saturated." that is, unless all men be already so well provided with all sorts of convenient utensils that nothing can be added. As a general proposition, Hutchison called for liberty and the natural right of property. As he put it in his system, each one has a natural right to exert his powers according to his own judgment and inclination for those purposes in all such industry, labor, or amusements as are not harmful to others in their persons or goods, while no more public interests necessarily require his labors. This right we call natural liberty. An unexceptionable statement, except for the ominous vagueness in the concept of public interest that requires a man's labor. Hutchison's devotion to laissez-faire, however, was limited and guarded. Thus, in his Introduction to Moral Philosophy, he opines that the populace often needs also to be taught and engaged by laws into the best methods of managing their own affairs and exercising their mechanic arts. In international trade, for example, Hutchison was mired in old-fashioned mercantilism, advocating state regulation to ensure a favorable balance of trade and high protective tariffs, as well as government subsidies of shipping, to develop industry. 
Hutchison's devotion to natural rights was weakened still further by his being the first to adumbrate the chimerical and disastrous formula of utilitarianism, the greatest happiness for the greatest number, possibly after having acquired it or its equivalent from Gershom Carmichael. The specific influences of Hutchison on Adam Smith will be detailed further below. Suffice it to say here that the order of topics of Hutchison's lectures, as published in the system and as heard by young Smith at the University of Glasgow, is almost the same as the order of chapters in The Wealth of Nations. 3. The Scottish Enlightenment and Presbyterianism The Enlightenment was a general movement in European thought in the 18th century that stressed the power of human reason to discern truth. Generally, it was dedicated to natural law and natural rights, although in the later years of the century it began to shade off into utilitarianism. While scholasticism was compatible with an emphasis on natural law and natural rights, it was generally discarded and reviled as ignorant superstition, along with revealed religion. In religion, therefore, Enlightenment thinkers tended to discard Christianity, attack the Christian church, and adopt skepticism, deism, or even atheism. In this atmosphere, corrosive of Christian faith and values, it is remarkable that the Scottish Enlightenment was linked very closely with the Presbyterian Church. How did this happen? How did a Scottish kirk, which in the sixteenth century under the aegis of John Knox had been fiery and militant, become softened into a church that welcomed the Enlightenment, that is, natural law, reason, and latitudinarian, if not skeptical, Christianity. The answer is that in the two centuries since John Knox, the hard-nosed Calvinist faith had weakened in Scotland. In particular, after 1752, a powerful group of moderate Presbyterian clergy was able to take over and dominate the Church of Scotland the established church, which, since the union of Scotland and England in 1707, had been established by the British crown, even though it was Presbyterian rather than Anglican, as was the Church of England. Bitterly opposed to the moderates were the evangelical party, that is, clergy true to the basic Calvinist faith. The well-connected and highly educated moderates, strong in the lowland areas of Edinburgh and Glasgow, and on the east coast up to Aberdeen, were able to form the dominant power elite in the Church of Scotland after the 1750s, even though they represented a minority of the local Kirks. The moderates, embodying a soft and latitudinarian theological outlook, were intimately connected with the Edinburgh and Glasgow intellectuals who constituted the Scottish Enlightenment. Most of their tactics were planned in meetings in Edinburgh taverns. The dominant figure among the moderates was the Reverend William Robertson, 1721-1793, an incessant talker and indefatigable organizer who led the moderates since their formation in 1752, and who became the moderator or head of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland from 1766 to 1780. 
In 1762, furthermore, Robertson became the principal of the University of Edinburgh, and it was his leadership and administration that vaulted Edinburgh into the front ranks of European universities. Robertson was also the founder and leading light of various learned societies, which brought together weekly for papers, discussion, and socializing the leading figures of the Scottish Enlightenment, including university professors, lawyers, and the major figures of the moderate clergy. Thus Robertson founded the Select Society of Edinburgh in 1750, Prominent during the 1750s, the Select Society met weekly and included in its ranks such university figures as Robertson, David Hume, Adam Ferguson, and Adam Smith, classical liberal lawyers such as Henry Hume, Lord Kames, and Alexander Wedderburn, later Lord Chancellor of Great Britain, and such youthful but prominent moderate clergy as Robertson, Alexander Jupiter Carlyle, Robert Wallace, Hugh Blair, John Hume, and John Jardine. Carlyle was a charismatic figure as well as a heavy drinker, as many moderate clergymen were in that era. Wallace was in charge of Church of Scotland patronage as well as being royal chaplain. Wallace, in his private papers, favored illicit sex almost to the point of promiscuity, quickly warning that the activity would have to be kept hidden. Blair, in addition to his duties in the clergy, was professor of rhetoric at the University of Edinburgh. Jardine was a shrewd politician whose daughter married the son of Lord Kames, who in turn was a cousin of David Hume. John Hume was a moderate clergyman and secretary to Lord Bute, close friend of David Hume and a playwright, an activity which in itself was a matter of deep suspicion to the dour fundamentalist evangelical clergy. Thus Hume wrote a play, Douglas, in 1756, which was put on with many top leaders of the moderate Enlightenment acting in the play, including the Reverend Robertson, Alexander Carlyle, David Hume, Hugh Blair, and the Reverend Adam Ferguson, professor of moral philosophy at the University of Edinburgh. The lax views of the moderates were under constant attack from the evangelical forces. Particular targets were Lord Kames and especially the philosopher David Hume, who was almost excommunicated for heresy by the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland but was saved by his powerful, moderate friends. Even his moderate university connections, however, could not gain for Hume any post in a Scottish university, so great was the enmity of the Presbyterian evangelicals. It should be noted that one of the key leaders of the moderate party was none other than Francis Hutcheson, Thus the Enlightenment intellectuals, philosophers, and economists of 18th-century Scotland were intimately connected with the fortunes and the institutions of the establishment moderate wing of the Church of Scotland. Hutcheson, Hume, and Smith then, while scarcely Orthodox Calvinists, were dedicated Presbyterians according to their own lights and hence their rationalism and theological laxity were nevertheless infused from time to time with hard-nosed Presbyterian values. 4. David Hume and the Theory of Money 
David Hume, 1711-1776, the famous Scottish philosopher, was a close friend of Adam Smith, who was named Smith's executor, an acquaintance of Turgot and the French adherents of laissez-faire, and member of the moderate elite of the Scottish Enlightenment. Born in Edinburgh, the son of a Scottish lord, Hume studied on the continent, where he published his epical philosophical work, A Treatise of Human Nature, 1739 and 1740, at the age of twenty-eight. Hume's treatise was pivotal in its corrosive and destructive skepticism, managing unfairly to discredit the philosophy of natural law, to create an artificial split between fact and value, and therefore to cripple the concept of natural rights on behalf of utilitarianism, and indeed to undermine the entire classical realist analysis of cause and effect. There is no figure more important in the unfortunate discrediting of the classical philosophical tradition of natural law realism, a tradition that had lasted from Plato and Aristotle at least through Aquinas and the late scholastics. In a sense, Hume completed the corrosive effect of the 17th-century French philosopher René Descartes' influential view that only the precisely mathematical and analytic could provide certain knowledge. Hume's skeptical and shaky empiricism was the other side of the Cartesian coin. While highly influential in later decades, Hume's treatise was ignored in his own day, and after writing it he turned to brief essays on political and economic topics, and eventually to his then-famous multi-volume History of England, which he presented from a Tory point of view. Barred from academia for his skepticism and alleged irreligion, Hume joined the diplomatic corps and served as secretary to Lord Hertford, the British ambassador to France. In 1765, Hume became the British chargé d'affaires in Paris, and two years later rose to the post of undersecretary of state. Finally, in 1769, Hume retired to Edinburgh. Hume's contribution to economics is fragmentary, and consists of approximately 100 pages of essays in his Political Discourses, 1752. The essays are distinguished for their lucid and even sparkling style, a style that shone in comparison to his learned but plodding contemporaries. Hume's most important contribution is his elucidation of monetary theory, in particular his clear exposition of the price-specie-flow mechanism that equilibrates national balances of payments and international price levels. In monetary theory proper, Hume vivifies the Lockean quantity theory of money with a marvelous illustration, highlighting the fact that it doesn't matter what the quantity of money may be in any given country. Any quantity, smaller or larger, will suffice to do money's work of facilitating exchange. Hume pointed up this important truth by postulating what would happen if every individual overnight should find the stock of money in his possession to have doubled miraculously. For suppose that, by miracle, every man in Great Britain should have five pounds slipped into his pocket in one night. 
This would much more than double the whole money that is at present in the kingdom. Yet there would not next day, nor for some time, be any more lenders, nor any variation in the interest. Prices, then, following Locke's quantity theory of money, will increase proportionately. The price-specie-flow mechanism is the quantity theory extrapolated into the case of many countries. The rise in the supply of money in country A will cause its prices to rise, but then the goods of country A are no longer as competitive compared to other countries. Exports will therefore decline, and imports from other countries with cheaper goods will rise. The balance of trade in country A will therefore become unfavorable, and specie will flow out of A in order to pay for the deficit. But this outflow of specie will eventually cause a sharp contraction of the supply of money in country A, a proportional fall in prices, and an end to, indeed, a reversal of, the unfavorable balance. As prices in A fall back to previous levels, specie will flow back in until the balance of trade is in balance, and until the price levels in terms of specie are equal in each country. Thus, on the free market, there is a rapidly self-correcting force at work that equilibrates balances of payments and price levels and prevents an inflation from going very far in any given country. While Hume's discussion is lucid and engaging, it is a considerable deterioration from that of Richard Cantillon. First, Cantillon did not believe in aggregate proportionality of money and price level changes, instead engaging in a sophisticated microprocess analysis of money going from one person to the next. As a result, money and prices will not rise proportionately even in the eventual new equilibrium state. Second, Cantillon included the income effect of more money in a country, whereas Hume confined himself to the aggregate price effect. In short, if the money supply in country A increases, it will equilibrate not only by prices rising in A, but also by the fact that monetary assets and incomes are higher in A, and therefore more money will be spent on imports. This income, or more precisely the cash balance effect, will generally work faster than the price effect. There are more problems with Hume's analysis, problems other than the omission of previously discovered truths. For while Hume conceded that it does not matter for production or prosperity what the level of the money supply may be, he did lay great importance on changes in that supply. Now it is true that changes do have important consequences, some of which Cantillon had already analyzed. But the crucial point is that all such changes are disruptive and distort market activity and the allocation of resources. But David Hume, on the contrary, in a pre-Keynesian fashion, hailed the allegedly vivifying effects of increases in the quantity of money upon prosperity, and called upon the government to make sure that the supply of money is always at least moderately increasing. 
The two contradictory prescriptions of Hume for the supply of money are actually presented in two successive sentences. From the whole of this reasoning we may conclude that it is of no manner of consequence with regard to the domestic happiness of a state whether money be in a greater or less quantity. The good policy of the magistrate consists only in keeping it, if possible, still increasing, because by that means he keeps alive a spirit of industry in the nation. Hume goes on, in proto-Keynesian fashion, to claim that the invigorating effect of increasing the supply of money occurs because employment of labor and other resources increases long before prices begin to rise. But Hume stops, as Keynes did, just as the problem becomes interesting. For then it must be asked, why were resources underemployed before? and what is there about an increase in the money supply that might add to their employment? As W. H. Hutt was to point out in the 1930s, deeper reflection would show that the only possible reason for unwanted unemployment of resources is if the resource owner demands too high a price or wage for its use. And more money could only reduce such unemployment when selling prices rise before wages, or the price of resources, so that workers or other resource owners are fooled into working for a lower real, though not lower money, wage. Furthermore, why should idle resources, as Hume implicitly postulates, reappear after the effects of new money have been fully digested in the economy in the form of higher prices? The answer can only be that after the price increases are accomplished and a new equilibrium attained, wages and other resource prices have caught up, and the money illusion has evaporated. Real resource prices return to being excessively high for the full employment of resources. Hume's inner contradictions on the quantity of money and inflation permeate his meager writings on economics. On the one hand, continuing inflation over the centuries is depicted as bringing about economic growth. On the other, Hume sternly favored ultra-hard money in relation to the banking system. Thus Hume delivered a hard-hitting attack on the unproductive and inflationary nature of the very existence of fractional reserve banking. He wrote of, Those institutions of banks, funds, and paper credit, with which we are in the kingdom so much infatuated, these render paper equivalent to money, circulate it throughout the whole state, make it supply the place of gold and silver, raise proportionately the price of labor and commodities, and by that means either banish a great part of those precious metals or prevent their further increase. What can be more short-sighted than our reasoning on this head? We fancy because an individual would be much richer were his stock of money doubled, that the same good effect would follow were the money of everyone increased not considering that this would raise as much the price of every commodity, and reduce every man in time to the same condition as before. 
Elsewhere, Hume noted that inconveniences result from the increase of genuine money, specie, but at least they are compensated by the advantages which we reap from the possession of these precious metals, including bargaining power in negotiations with other nations. But, he added, there appears no reason for increasing that inconvenience by a counterfeit money, which foreigners will not accept of in any payment, and which any great disorder in the state will reduce to nothing. To endeavor to increase paper credit artificially, then, merely increases money beyond its natural proportion to labor and commodities, thereby increasing their prices. Hume concluded his penetrating analysis with an ultra-hard money policy proposal, 100% specie reserve banking. It must be allowed that no bank could be more advantageous than such a loan as locked up all the money it received and never augmented the circulating coin. Hume added that this was the practice of the famous 100% specie reserve bank of Amsterdam. Another important flaw in Hume's analysis of money was his propensity, picked up and magnified by Smith, Ricardo, and the classical school, for leaping from one long-run equilibrium state to another, without bothering about the dynamic process through time by which the real world actually moves from one state to another. It is this brusque neglect, or comparative statics, that leads Hume to omit the Cantillonian analysis of micro-changes in cash balances and income, and that causes him to neglect income effects in the price-specie-flow mechanism of international monetary adjustment. Ironically, by doing so, and thereby neglecting the distribution effects of changing assets and incomes during the process, Hume, as well as countless other economists following him, distorts what happens in equilibrium itself. For they then cannot see that the new equilibrium will be very different from the old. Thus, when the money supply changes, there will not be an equiproportionate increase in all prices across the board. Professor Salerno puts the point very well. There is some truth to Keynes' statement that Hume began the practice amongst economists of stressing the importance of the equilibrium position as compared with the ever-shifting transition towards it. For in reading Hume, one gets an unmistakable whiff, if not the full flavor, of the notion that it is in the states of long-run equilibrium that the economy actually resides most of the time. The transition between these states Hume conceives as proceeding rapidly and terminating before another change in the economic data can intervene and propel the economy toward a new equilibrium. This notion at times leads Hume to truncate a full step-by-step analysis of a given change in the data, thus slighting or skipping over altogether its short-run effects in order to focus upon a comparative static analysis of its ultimate consequences. In reality, as the Austrians have emphasized, the situation is precisely the reverse of the Hume-British classical assumptions. 
Rather than the long-run equilibrium state being the fundamental reality, it never exists at all. Long-run equilibrium provides the tendency towards which the market is ever moving, but is never reached because the underlying data of supply and demand, and therefore the ultimate equilibrium point, are always changing. Hence, a full step-by-step analysis of a given change in the data is precisely what is needed to explain the process of successive short-run states, which tend towards but never reach equilibrium. In the real world, the long run is not equilibrium at all, but a series of such short-run states, which will keep changing direction as underlying data are altered. A final problem with Hume's monetary views is that in contrast to the French laissez-faire school, he believed that money need not be a useful marketable commodity, but was a mere convention. Writing to Abbe André Morellet, 1727-1819, a disciple of Gournay and lifelong friend of Turgot, Hume opines that money functions as such because of the belief that others would accept it. Very true. But this does not mean that money originated as a mere convention. And Hume acknowledges that money should be made of materials which have intrinsic value, for otherwise it would be multiplied without end and would sink to nothing. Hume's thoughts on interest are illuminating, if only in contrast to the profundity and brilliance of Turgot's exposition twenty years later. Since money's impact is ultimately on prices only, Hume shows that interest can only be a phenomenon of real capital rather than of money. He discusses the relation between interest rates and profit rates, that is, the fundamental rates of return on investment. Here he points out correctly that no man will accept of low profits where he can have high interest, and no man will accept of low interest where he can have high profits. In short, interest and profit rates tend to be equal on the market. Very true. But which causes which, or what is the underlying cause of both? Hume characteristically abandons the search for cause, and says that both arise from an extensive commerce and mutually forward each other. Bermbaverk is surely right when he says that this view is somewhat superficial. But more than that, it is incorrect and reverses cause and effect by stating that extensive commerce, by producing large stocks, capital, diminishes both interest and profits. For there is no reason why larger stocks of capital should lower interest or profit rates. What they do lower is the prices of capital goods and consumer goods. The causal chain is the other way round. Lower time preference rates, which usually but not always attend higher standards of living and greater prosperity, will cause both capital to accumulate and profit and interest rates to fall. The two, as the Austrian school would later point out, are different sides of the same coin. Turning to the other areas of economics, it is possible that some of the deep flaws in Adam Smith's value theory were the result of David Hume's influence. 
for Hume had no systematic theory of value and had no idea whatever of utility as a determinant of value. If anything, he kept stressing that labor was the source of all value. On political economy, David Hume may be considered a free trader and opponent of mercantilism. A friend and mentor of Adam Smith from their first meeting in 1752, Hume came to know the French laissez-faireists during his years in that country, and Turgot himself translated Hume's political discourses into French. Chapter 16 The Celebrated Adam Smith 1. The Mystery of Adam Smith Adam Smith, 1723 to 1790, is a mystery in a puzzle wrapped in an enigma. The mystery is the enormous and unprecedented gap between Smith's exalted reputation and the reality of his dubious contribution to economic thought. Smith's reputation almost blinds the sun. From shortly after his own day until very recently, he was thought to have created the science of economics virtually de novo. He was universally hailed as the founding father. Books on the history of economic thought, after a few well-deserved sneers at the mercantilists and a nod to the physiocrats, would invariably start with Smith as the creator of the discipline of economics. Any errors he made were understandably excused as the inevitable flaws of any great pioneer. Innumerable works have been written about him. At the bicentennial of his magnum opus, An Inquiry into the Nature and the Causes of the Wealth of Nations, 1776, a veritable flood of books, essays, and memorabilia poured forth about the quiet Scottish professor, his profile, sculpted on a medallion by Tassie, is known throughout the world. A hagiographic movie was even made about Smith during the bicentennial by a free-market foundation, and businessmen and free-market advocates have long hailed Adam Smith as their patron saint. Adam Smith ties were worn as a badge of honor in the upper echelons of the Reagan administration. On the other hand, Marxists, with somewhat more justice, hail Smith as the ultimate inspiration of their own founding father, Karl Marx. Indeed, if the average person were asked to name two economists in history whom he has heard of, Smith and Marx would probably be the runaway winners of the poll. As we have already seen, Smith was scarcely the founder of economic science, a science which existed since the medieval scholastics, and in its modern form since Richard Cantillon. But what the German economists used to call, in a narrower connection, das Adam Smith problem, is much more severe than that. For the problem is not simply that Smith was not the founder of economics. The problem is that he originated nothing that was true, and whatever he originated was wrong. That, even in an age that had fewer citations or footnotes than our own, Adam Smith was a shameless plagiarist, acknowledging little or nothing and stealing large chunks, for example, from Cantillon. 
Far worse was Smith's complete failure to cite or acknowledge his beloved mentor, Francis Hutcheson, from whom he derived most of his ideas, as well as the organization of his economic and moral philosophy lectures. Smith indeed wrote in a private letter to the University of Glasgow of the never-to-be-forgotten Dr. Hutcheson, but apparently amnesia conveniently struck Adam Smith when it came time to writing The Wealth of Nations for the general public. Even though an inveterate plagiarist, Smith had a Columbus complex, accusing close friends incorrectly of plagiarizing him. And even though a plagiarist, he plagiarized badly, adding new fallacies to the truths he lifted. In castigating Adam Smith for errors, therefore, we are not being anachronistic, absurdly punishing past thinkers for not being as wise as we who come later. For Smith not only contributed nothing of value to economic thought, his economics was a grave deterioration from his predecessors, from Cantillon, from Turgot, from his teacher Hutcheson, from the Spanish scholastics, even, oddly enough, from his own previous works, such as the Lectures on Jurisprudence, unpublished, 1762 and 63 and 1766, and The Theory of Moral Sentiments, 1759. The mystery of Adam Smith, then, is the immense gap between a monstrously overinflated reputation and the dismal reality. But the problem is worse than that, for it is not just that Smith's wealth of nations has had a terribly overblown reputation from his day to ours. The problem is that the wealth of nations was somehow able to blind all men, economists and laymen alike, to the very knowledge that other economists, let alone better ones, had existed and written before 1776. The wealth of nations exerted such a colossal impact on the world that all knowledge of previous economists was blotted out. Hence Smith's reputation as founding father. The historical problem is this. How could this phenomenon have taken place with a book so derivative, so deeply flawed, so much less worthy than its predecessors? The answer is surely not any lucidity or clarity of style or thought. For the much-revered wealth of nations is a huge, sprawling, inchoate, confused tome, rife with vagueness, ambiguity, and deep inner contradictions. There is, of course, an advantage in the history of social thought to a work being huge, sprawling, ambivalent, and confused. There is a sociological advantage to vagueness and obscurity. The bemused German Smithian, Christian J. Krauss, once referred to the wealth of nations as the Bible of political economy. In a sense, Professor Krauss spoke wiser than he knew. For in one way the wealth of nations is like the Bible. It is possible to derive varying and contradictory interpretations from various, or even the same, parts of the book. Furthermore, the very vagueness and obscurity of a work can provide a happy hunting ground for intellectuals, students, and followers. To make one's way through an obscure and difficult tract, to weave dimly perceived threads of a book into a coherent pattern, 
These are rewarding tasks in themselves for intellectuals. And such a book also provides a welcome built-in exclusion process, so that only a relatively small number of adepts can bask in their expertise about a work or a system of thought. In that way, they increase their relative income and prestige and leave other admirers behind to form a cheering section for the leading disciples of the Master. Adam Smith did not found the science of economics, but he did indeed create the paradigm of the British classical school, and it is often useful for the creator of a paradigm to be inchoate and confused thereby leaving room for disciples who will attempt to clarify and systematize the contributions of the Master. Until the 1950s, economists, at least those in the Anglo-American tradition, revered Smith as the founder, and saw the later development of economics as a movement linearly upward into the light with Smith succeeded by Ricardo and Mill, and then, after a bit of diversion created by the Austrians in the 1870s, Alfred Marshall, establishing neoclassical economics as a neo-Ricardian and hence neo-Smithian discipline. In a sense, John Maynard Keynes, Marshall's student at Cambridge, thought that he was only filling in the gaps in the Ricardian-Marshallian heritage. Into this complacent miasma of Smith worship, Joseph A. Schumpeter's History of Economic Analysis, 1954, came as a veritable blockbuster. Coming from the continental Valrassian and Austrian traditions, rather than from British classicism, Schumpeter was able, for virtually the first time, to cast a cold and realistic eye upon the celebrated Scott. Writing with thinly-veiled contempt, Schumpeter generally denigrated Smith's contribution, and essentially held that Smith had shunted economics off on a wrong road, a road unfortunately different from that of his continental forebears. Since Schumpeter, historians of economic thought have largely retreated to a fallback position. Smith, it is conceded, created nothing, but he was the great synthesizer and systematizer, the first one to take up all the threads of his predecessors and weave them together into a coherent and systematic framework. But Smith's work was the reverse of coherent and systematic and Ricardo and Say, his two major disciples, each set themselves the task of forging such a coherent system out of the Smithian muddle. And furthermore, while it is true that pre-Smithian writings were incisive but sparse, Turgot, or embedded in moral philosophy, Hutcheson, it is also true that there were two general treatises on economics per se, before the wealth of nations. One was Cantillon's great essay, which, after Smith, fell into grievous neglect, to be rescued a century later by Jevons. The other, and the first book to use political economy in its title, was Sir James Stewart's, 1712-1780, outdated two-volume work, Principles of Political Economy, 1767. Stuart, a Jacobite who had been involved in Bonnie Prince Charlie's rebellion, was for much of his life an exile in Germany, 
where he became imbued with the methodology and ideals of German cameralism. Cameralism was a virulent form of absolutist mercantilism that flourished in Germany in the 17th and 18th centuries. Cameralists, even more than Western European mercantilists, were not economists at all. That is, they did not analyze the processes of the market, but were technical advisers to rulers on how and in what way to build up state power over the economy. Stuart's principles was in that tradition, scarcely economics, but rather a call for massive government intervention and totalitarian planning, from detailed regulation of trade to a system of compulsory cartels to inflationary monetary policy. His only contribution was to refine and expand previously fleeting and inchoate notions of a labor theory of value, and to elaborate a proto-Marxian theory of inherent class conflict in society. Furthermore, Stuart had written an ultra-mercantilist tome just at the time when classical liberal and laissez-faire thought was rising and becoming dominant, at least in Britain and France. Even though Stuart's principles was out of step with the emerging classical liberal zeitgeist, it was no foregone conclusion that the work would have little or no influence. The book was well received, highly respected, and sold very well, and five years after its publication in 1772, Stuart won out over Adam Smith in acquiring a post as monetary consultant to the East India Company. One reason that the Schumpeter view of Smith shocked the economics profession is that historians of economic thought, similar to historians of other disciplines, have habitually treated the development of science as a linear and upward march into the truth. Each scientist patiently formulates, tests, and discards hypotheses, and thereby each succeeding one stands on the shoulders of the one who came before. What might be called this Whig theory of the history of science has now been largely discarded for the far more realistic Kuhnian theory of paradigms. For our purposes, the important point of the Kuhn theory is that a very few people patiently test anything, particularly the fundamental assumptions or basic paradigm of their theory and shifts in paradigms can take place even when the new theory is worse than the old. In short, knowledge can be and is lost as well as gained, and science often proceeds in a zigzag rather than linear manner. We might add that this would be particularly true in the social or humane sciences. As a result, paradigms and basic truths get lost, and economists, as well as people in other disciplines, can get worse and not better over time. The years may well bring retrogression, as well as progress. Schumpeter had heaved a bombshell into the temple of the Whig historians of economic thought, specifically of the partisans of the Smith, Ricardo, Marshall tradition. We have thus posed our own version of the Das Adam Smith problem. How did so badly flawed a work as the wealth of nations rapidly become so dominant as to blot out all other alternatives?
But before considering this question, we must examine the various aspects of Smithian thought in more detail. 2. The Life of Smith Adam Smith was born in 1723 in the small town of Kirkcaldy near Edinburgh. His father, also Adam Smith, 1679-1723, who died shortly before he was born, was a distinguished judge-advocate for Scotland, and later controller of customs at Kirkcaldy, who had married into a well-to-do local landowning family. Young Smith was therefore raised by his mother. The town of Kirkcaldy was militantly Presbyterian, and in the borough school in the town he met many young Scottish Presbyterians, one of whom, John Drysdale, was to become twice moderator of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. Smith indeed came from a customs official family. In addition to his father, his cousin Hercules Scott Smith served as collector of customs at Kirkcaldy, and his guardian, again named Adam Smith, was to become customs collector at Kirkcaldy, as well as inspector of customs for the Scottish outports. Finally, still another cousin named Adam Smith later served as customs collector at Alloa. From 1737 to 1740, Adam Smith studied at Glasgow College, where he fell under the spell of Francis Hutcheson and imbibed the excitement of the ideas of classical liberalism, natural law, and political economy. In 1740, Smith earned an M.A. with great distinction at the University of Glasgow. His mother had baptized Adam in the Episcopalian faith, and she was eager for her son to become an Episcopalian minister. Smith was sent to Balliol College, Oxford, on a scholarship designed to nurture future Episcopalian clerics, but he was unhappy at the wretched instruction in the Oxford of his day, and returned after six years, at the age of twenty-three, without having taken holy orders. Despite his baptism and his mother's pressure, Smith remained an ardent Presbyterian, and returning to Edinburgh in 1746, he remained unemployed for two years. Finally, in 1748, Henry Hume, Lord Kames, a judge and a leader of the liberal Scottish Enlightenment and a cousin of David Hume, decided to promote a series of public lectures in Edinburgh to educate lawyers. Along with Smith's childhood friend, James Oswald of Dunnockir, Kames got the Philosophical Society of Edinburgh to sponsor Smith in several years of lectures on natural law, literature, liberty, and commercial freedom. In 1750, Adam Smith obtained the chair in logic at his alma mater, the University of Glasgow, and he found no difficulty in the requisite signing of the Westminster Confession before the Presbytery of Glasgow. Finally, in 1752, Smith had the satisfaction of ascending to his beloved teacher Hutchison's Chair of Moral Philosophy at Glasgow, where he was to remain for twelve years. Smith's Edinburgh and Glasgow lectures were very popular, and his major stress was on the system of natural liberty, on the system of natural law and laissez-faire, which he was then advocating with far less qualification than later in his more cautious Wealth of Nations.
He also managed to convert many of the leading merchants of Glasgow to this exciting new creed. Smith also plunged into the social and educational associations that were beginning to be formed by the moderate Presbyterian clergy, university professors, literati, and attorneys in both Glasgow and Edinburgh. It is likely that David Hume attended Smith's Edinburgh lectures in 1752, for the two became fast friends shortly thereafter. Smith was a founding member of the Glasgow Literary Society the following year. The Society engaged in high-level discussions and debates, and met diligently every Thursday evening from November to May. Hume and Smith were both members, and at one of the first sessions Smith read an account of some of Hume's recently printed political discourses. Oddly enough, the two friends, clearly the brightest members of the society, were extremely diffident, and never said a word in any of the discussions. Despite his diffidence, Smith was a busy and inveterate clubman, becoming a leading member of the Philosophical Society of Edinburgh, and of the Select Society, Edinburgh, which flourished in the 1750s, and met weekly bringing together the moderate power elite from the clergy, university men, and the legal profession. Smith was also an active member of the Political Economy Club of Glasgow, the Oyster Club, Edinburgh, Simpson's Club of Glasgow, and the Poker Club, Edinburgh, founded by his friend Adam Ferguson, professor of moral philosophy at the University of Edinburgh, specifically to promote the martial spirit. As if this were not enough, Adam Smith was one of the leading contributors and editors of the abortive Edinburgh Review, 1755 and 1756, dedicated largely to the defense of their friends Hume and Kames against the hardcore evangelical Calvinist clergy of Scotland. The Edinburgh Review was founded by the brilliant young lawyer Alexander Wedderburn, 1733-1805, who was to become a judge, a member of Parliament in England, and finally Lord Chancellor, 1793-1801. Wedderburn was so latitudinarian as to favor the licensing of brothels. Other luminaries on the Edinburgh Review were top moderate leaders— the politician John Jardine, 1715-1760, whose daughter married Lord Kames' son, the powerful Reverend William Robertson, and the Reverend Hugh Blair, 1718-1800, professor of rhetoric at the University of Edinburgh. The intensity of Adam Smith's Presbyterianism, even though not fundamentalist, may be seen in his relationship to Hugh Blair. Blair, the minister at the High Kirk, Greyfriars, was in constant hot water with the Orthodox Calvinist clergy, who repeatedly denounced him to the Glasgow and Edinburgh presbyteries. In The Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith delivered the following encomium to the Presbyterian clergy. There is scarce, perhaps, to be found anywhere in Europe a more learned, decent, independent, and respectable set of men than the greater part of the Presbyterian clergy of Holland, Geneva, Switzerland, and Scotland. 
to which his old friend Blair, though himself a leading, if embattled, Presbyterian clergyman, commented in a letter to Smith, you are, I think, by much too favorable to Presbytery. After Smith published his moral philosophy in his Theory of Moral Sentiments, 1759, his increasing fame won him a highly lucrative position in 1764 as tutor to the young Duke of Buccleuch. For three years of tutoring, which he spent with the young Duke in France, Smith was awarded a lifetime annual salary of three hundred pounds, twice his annual salary at Glasgow. In three pleasant years in France he made the acquaintance of Turgot and the physiocrats. His tutorial task accomplished, Smith returned to his home town of Kirkcaldy, where, secure in his lifetime stipend, he worked for ten years to complete The Wealth of Nations, which he had started at the beginning of his stay in France. The fame of the wealth of nations led his proud erstwhile pupil, the Duke of Buccleuch, to help secure for Smith in 1778 the highly paid post of Commissioner of Scottish Customs at Edinburgh. With a pay of six hundred pounds per annum from his government post, which he kept until the day of his death in 1790, added to his handsome lifetime pension, Adam Smith was making close to a thousand pounds a year, a princely revenue, as one of his biographers has described it. Even Smith himself wrote in this period that he was fully as affluent as I could wish. He regretted only that he had to attend to his customs post, which took time away from his literary pursuits. And yet his regrets were scarcely profound. In contrast to most historians who have treated Smith's customs post embarrassedly as virtually a no-show sinecure in reward for intellectual achievements, recent research has shown that Smith worked full-time at his post, often chairing the daily meetings of the Board of Customs Commissioners. Moreover, Smith sought the appointment and apparently found the position enjoyable and relaxing. It is true that Smith spent little time or energy on scholarship and writing after his appointment, but there were leaves of absence available which Smith showed no interest in pursuing. Furthermore, the groundwork for Smith's quest for the appointment was not so much his intellectual attainments as a reward for his advice as consultant on taxes and the budget to the British government since the mid-1760s. 3. THE DIVISION OF LABOR It is appropriate to begin a discussion of Smith's wealth of nations with the division of labor, since Smith himself begins there, and since, for Smith, this division had crucial and decisive importance. His teacher, Hutcheson, had also analyzed the importance of the division of labor in the developing economy, as had Hume, Turgot, Mandeville, James Harris, and other economists. But for Smith, the division of labor took on swollen and gigantic importance, putting into the shade such crucial matters as capital accumulation and the growth of technological knowledge. As Schumpeter has pointed out, never for any economist before or since did the division of labor assume such a position of commanding importance. 
But there are more troubles in the Smithian division of labor than his exaggerating its importance. The older and truer perception of the motive power for specialization and exchange was simply that each party to an exchange, which is necessarily two-party and two-commodity, benefits, or at least expects to benefit, from the exchange. Otherwise, the trade would not take place. But Smith unfortunately shifts the main focus from mutual benefit to an alleged irrational and innate propensity to truck, barter, and exchange, as if human beings were lemmings determined by forces external to their own chosen purposes. As Edwin Canaan pointed out, Smith took this tack because he rejected the idea of innate differences in natural talents and abilities, which would naturally seek out different, specialized occupations. Smith instead took the egalitarian environmentalist position, still dominant today in neoclassical economics, that all laborers are equal and therefore the differences between them can only be the result, rather than a cause, of the system of the division of labor. In addition, Smith failed to apply his analysis of the division of labor to international trade, where it would have provided powerful ammunition for his own free trade policies. It was to be left to James Mill to make such an application in his excellent theory of comparative advantage. Furthermore, domestically, Smith placed far too much importance on the division of labor within a factory or industry, while neglecting the more significant division of labor among industries. But if Smith had an undue appreciation of the importance of the division of labor, he paradoxically sowed great problems for the future by introducing the chronic modern sociological complaint about specialization that was picked up quickly by Karl Marx and has been advanced to a high art by socialist gripers about alienation. There is no gainsaying the fact that Smith totally contradicted himself between Book I and Book V of The Wealth of Nations. In the former, the division of labor alone accounts for the affluence of civilized society, and indeed the division of labor is repeatedly equated with civilization throughout the book. And yet, while in Book One the division of labor is hailed as expanding the alertness and intelligence of the population, in Book Five it is condemned as leading to their intellectual as well as moral degeneration, to the loss of their intellectual, social, and martial virtues. There is no way that this contradiction can be plausibly reconciled. Adam Smith, though himself a plagiarist of considerable dimensions, also had a Columbus complex, often accusing other people unfairly of plagiarizing him. In 1755 he actually laid claim to having invented the concept of laissez-faire, or the system of natural liberty, asserting that he had taught these principles since his Edinburgh lectures in 1749. That may be, but the claim ignores previous such expressions by his own teachers, as well as by Grotius and Pufendorf, to say nothing of Bois-Gilbert and the other French laissez-faire thinkers of the late seventeenth century.
In 1769, the contentious Smith levied a plagiarism charge against Principal William Robertson upon the occasion of the publication of the latter's History of the Reign of Charles V. It is not known what the topic of the literary theft was supposed to be, and it is difficult to guess, considering the remoteness from Smith's work of the theme of the Robertson book. The most famous plagiarism charge hurled by Smith was against his friend Adam Ferguson on the question of the division of labor. Professor Hamowy has shown that Smith did not break with his old friend, as had previously been thought, because of Ferguson's use of the concept of the division of labor in his Essay on the History of Civil Society in 1767. In view of all the writers who had employed the concept earlier, this behavior would have been ludicrous, even for Adam Smith. Hamowy conjectures that the break came in the early 1780s because of Ferguson's discussion at their club of what would later be published as part of his Principles of Moral and Political Science in 1792. For in the Principles, Ferguson summed up the Pin Factory example that constituted the single most famous passage in The Wealth of Nations. Smith had pointed to a small pin factory where ten workers, each specializing in a different aspect of the work, could produce over 48,000 pins a day, whereas if each of these ten had made the entire pin on his own, they might not have made even one pin a day, and certainly not more than twenty. In that way, the division of labor enormously multiplied the productivity of each worker. In his principles, Ferguson wrote, A fit assortment of persons, of whom each performs but a part in the manufacture of a pin, may produce much more in a given time than perhaps double the number, of which each was to produce the whole, or to perform every part in the construction of that diminutive article. When Smith upbraided Ferguson for not acknowledging Smith's precedence in the pin factory example, Ferguson replied that he had borrowed nothing from Smith, but indeed that both had taken the example from a French source, where Smith had been before him. There is strong evidence that the French source for both writers was the article on pins in the Encyclopedia, 1755 since that article mentions eighteen distinct operations in making a pin, the same number repeated by Smith in The Wealth of Nations, although in English pin factories twenty-five was the more common number of operations. Thus Adam Smith broke up a long-standing friendship by unjustly accusing Adam Ferguson of plagiarizing an example which, in truth, both men had taken without acknowledgment from the French Encyclopedia. The Reverend Carlyle's comment that Smith had some little jealousy in his temper seems a vast understatement and we are informed by his obituary notice in the 1790 Monthly Review that Smith lived in such constant apprehension of being robbed of his ideas that if he saw any of his students take notes of his lectures, he would instantly stop him and say, I hate scribblers, 
While there is also evidence that Smith allowed students to take notes, the point about his crabbed temper and Columbus complex is well made. Smith's use of an example of a small French pin factory rather than a larger British one highlights a curious fact about his celebrated wealth of nations. The renowned economist seems to have had no inkling of the Industrial Revolution going on all about him. Although he was a friend of Dr. John Roebuck, the owner of the Caron Iron Works, whose opening in 1760 marked the beginning of the Industrial Revolution in Scotland, Smith showed no indication that he knew of its existence. Although he was at least an acquaintance of the great inventor James Watt, Smith displayed no knowledge whatever of some of Watt's leading inventions. He made no mention in his famous book of the canal boom, which had begun in the early 1760s, of the very existence of the burgeoning cotton textile industry, or of pottery, or of the new methods of making beer. There is no reference to the enormous drop in travel costs that the new turnpikes were bringing about. In contrast, then, to those historians who praise Smith for his empirical grasp of contemporary economic and industrial affairs, Adam Smith was oblivious to the important economic events around him. Much of his analysis was wrong, and many of the facts he did include in The Wealth of Nations were obsolete and gathered from books thirty years old. 4. Productive versus Unproductive Labor One of the physiocrats' more dubious contributions to economic thought was their view that only agriculture was productive, that only agriculture contributed a surplus to the economy. Smith, heavily influenced by the physiocrats, retained the unfortunate concept of productive labor, but expanded it from agriculture to material goods in general. For Smith, then, labor on material objects was productive, but labor on, say, consumer services, on immaterial production, was unproductive. Smith's bias in favor of material objects amounted to a bias in favor of investment in capital goods, since a stock of capital goods, by definition, has to be embodied in material objects. Consumer goods, on the other hand, either consist of immaterial services, or they get used up, consumed, in the process of consumption. Smith's imprimatur on material production, therefore, was an indirect way of advocating investment in an accumulation of capital goods, as against the very goal of producing capital goods, increased consumption. When discussing exports and imports, Smith realized full well that there was no point to amassing intermediate objects except that they eventually be consumed that the only goal of production is consumption. But, as Professor Roger Garrison has pointed out, and as we shall see further on the question of usury laws, Adam Smith's Presbyterian conscience led him to value the expenditure of labor per se for its own sake, and led him to balk at free-market time preferences between consumption and saving.
Clearly, Smith wanted far more investment towards future production and less present consumption than the market was willing to choose. One of the contradictions of this position, of course, is that accumulating more capital goods at the expense of present consumption will eventually result in a higher standard of living, unless Smith prepared to counsel a perpetual and accelerated shift toward more and more never-to-be-consumed means of production. In Book Two of The Wealth of Nations, Smith opines that labor on material objects is productive, while other labor is not, because it does not fix or realize itself in any particular subject, which endures after that labor is past, and for which an equal quantity of labor could afterward be purchased. Included in immaterial, and hence unproductive, labor are servants, churchmen, lawyers, physicians, men of letters of all kinds, players, buffoons, musicians, opera singers, opera dancers, etc. To Smith, the important point was that the work of all unproductive laborers perishes in the very instant of its production. Or, as he put it, like the declamation of the actor, the harangue of the orator, or the tune of the musician, the work of all of them perishes in the very instant of its production. Smith also writes that productive labor adds to the value of the subject on which it is bestowed, whereas unproductive labor does not. Another way of putting the fact that labor on services is not embodied in any particular subject. Productive labor, moreover, allegedly creates a surplus for profit in manufacturing. Adam Smith's lingering physiocratic bias was also shown in his preposterous assertion that agriculture is a far more productive industry than manufacturing, because in agriculture nature works alongside man and provides extra rent for landlords as well as profit for capitalists. In addition to other fallacies, Smith here failed to realize that nature in the form of ground land collaborates in all activities of man, not just agriculture, and that all activities, including manufacturing, will therefore yield ground rent to landowners. In his thorough and searching critique of Adam Smith, Edwin Cannon speculated that Smith, if pressed, would probably have admitted that the declamation, harangues, and tunes have a value. Smith oddly identified the build-up of material capital goods with annual production. On the latter, as Cannon points out, the durability of the things produced by labor is in reality of no significance. The declamations, harangues, and tunes are just as much a part of the annual produce as champagne or boots. Yet Smith, in Book Two, excludes all production of immaterial services from the annual product, which is allegedly produced entirely by the productive laborers, who in turn maintain not only themselves, but all the unproductive classes of labor as well. In a witty and charming passage, Cannon then comments, 
People have always been rather apt to imagine that the class which they happen to think the most important maintains all the other classes with which it exchanges commodities. The landowner, for instance, considers, or used to consider, his tenants as his dependents. All consumers easily fall into the idea that they are doing a charitable act in maintaining a multitude of shopkeepers. Employers of all kinds everywhere believe that the employed ought to be grateful for their wages, while the employed firmly hold that the employer is maintained entirely at their expense. So the physiocrats alleged that the husbandman maintained himself and all other classes, and Adam Smith alleged that the husbandman, the manufacturer, and the merchant maintained themselves and all other classes. The physiocrats did not see that the husbandman was maintained by the manufacturing industries of thrashing, milling, and baking, just as much as the millers or the tailors are maintained by the agricultural industries of plowing and reaping. Adam Smith did not see that the manufacturer and merchant are maintained by the menial services of cooking and washing, just as much as the cooks and laundresses are maintained by the manufacturer of bonnets and the import of tea. It is not just durable objects, however, that Adam Smith was interested in. It was durable capital goods. Durable consumer goods, like houses, were, again, for Smith, unproductive, although he grudgingly conceded that a house is no doubt extremely useful to the person who lives in it. But it is not productive, wrote Smith, because if it is to be let to a tenant for rent, as the house itself can produce nothing, the tenant must always pay the rent out of some other revenue, which he derives either from labor or stock, capital or land. Again, Cannon provides the proper riposte. It did not occur to Adam Smith to reflect that if a plow is let for rent, as a plow itself can produce nothing, the tenant must always pay the rent out of some other revenue. Adam Smith's bias against consumption and in favor of saving and investment is summed up in Professor Rima's analysis. It is clear from his third chapter in Book Two on the accumulation of capital or of productive and unproductive labor that he is concerned with the effect of using savings to satisfy the desire for luxuries by those who are prodigal, instead of channeling them into uses that will enhance the supply of fixed or circulating capital. He is in effect arguing that savings should be used in such a way that they will create a flow of income and new equipment and that failure to use savings in this manner is an impediment to economic growth. Perhaps. But it also means that Smith was not content to abide by free market choices between growth on the one hand and consumption on the other. Professor Edwin West, a modern admirer of Smith, who generally portrays the Scotsman as an advocate of laissez-faire, admits Smith's bias. 
Yet Smith, like a prudent steward of a Scottish aristocrat's estate, could hardly disguise a strong personal preference for much private frugality, and therefore for productive labor in the interests of the nation's future accumulation. He then proceeds to concede implicitly Professor Garrison's insight that Smith exhorted us to negative, or at least zero, time preference. Citing Smith's theory of moral sentiments, West notes that the virtue of frugality commands the esteem of Smith's alter ego, man's innate moral sense, the impartial spectator. Quoting from Smith, the spectator does not feel the solicitations of our present appetites. To him, the pleasure which we are to enjoy a week hence, or a year hence, is just as interesting as that which we are to enjoy this moment. We might note that the lofty refusal to discount future satisfactions in favor of the present that is, the rejection of positive time preference, is all too easy of any impartial spectator. But is the impartial spectator truly human, or is he simply a floating wraith who does not participate in the human condition, and therefore whose insight can be brusquely dismissed? Adam Smith's Calvinistic scorn of consumption can be seen in his attack on dancing as primitive and rude. As we shall see in his Paradox of Value, Smith dismissed diamonds in an excessive way as having scarce any value in use. He also puritanically denounced luxury as being biologically harmful, reducing the birth rate of the upper classes. Luxury in the fair sex, while it inflames perhaps the passion for enjoyment, seems always to weaken and frequently to destroy altogether the powers of generation. Smith furthermore favored low and criticized high profits, because high profits induce capitalists to engage in excessive consumption and since large capitalists set an influential example for others in society, it is all the more important for them to keep to the path of thrift and industry. Thus, besides all the bad effects to the country in general, which have already been mentioned as necessarily resulting from a high rate of profit, there is one more, fatal, perhaps, than all these put together, but which, if we may judge from experience, is inseparably connected with it. The high rate of profit seems everywhere to destroy that parsimony which in other circumstances is natural to the character of the merchant. When profits are high, that sober virtue seems to be superfluous, and expensive luxury to suit better the affluence of his situation. Because of the influence of the example of the higher orders, Smith adds, if his employer is attentive and parsimonious, the workman is very likely to be so too. But if the master is dissolute and disorderly, the servant who shapes his work according to the pattern which his master prescribes to him will shape his life according to the example which he sets him. Accumulation is thus prevented in the hands of all those who are naturally the most disposed to accumulate. The capital of the country, instead of increasing, gradually dwindles away. 
But if Adam Smith was excessively in favor of capital investment as against consumption, he at least was sound in realizing that capital investment was important in economic development, and that saving was the necessary and sufficient condition of such investment. The only way to increase capital, then, is by private savings or thrift. Thus, Smith wrote, whoever saves money, as the phrase is, adds proportionately to the general mass of capital. The world can augment its capital only in one way, by parsimony. Savings, and not labor, is the cause of accumulation of capital, and such savings promptly puts into motion an additional quantity of industry, labor. The saver, then, spends as readily as the spendthrift, except that he does so to increase capital and eventually benefit the consumption of all. Hence, every frugal man is a public benefactor. All this was a pale shadow of the scintillating and creative work of Turgot, with his emphasis on time, the structure of production, and time preference, and it was probably cribbed from Turgot to boot. But at least it was sound, and it stamped its imprint indelibly on classical economics. As Schumpeter put it, in discussing what he calls the Turgot-Smith theory of saving and investment, Turgot, then, must be held responsible for the first serious analysis of these matters, as A. Smith must, at the least, with having it inculcated into the minds of economists. Finally, apart from the Marxists, even the abject Smithians of today reject, or at least dismiss, the master's productive versus unproductive labor distinction. Characteristically, however, Smith was not even clear and consistent in his fallacies. His presentation in Book One of The Wealth of Nations contradicts Book Two. In Book One, he properly states that every man is rich or poor according to the degree in which he can afford to enjoy the necessaries, conveniences, and amusements of human life, a phrase almost directly lifted from Cantillon. But in that case, of course, there is no difference in productivity between material objects and immaterial services, all of which contribute to such necessaries, conveniences, and amusements. And indeed, Smith's discussion of wages proceeds in Book One as if there were no distinction between productive and unproductive work. 5. The Theory of Value Adam Smith's doctrine on value was an unmitigated disaster, and it deepens the mystery in explaining Smith. For in this case, not only was Smith's theory of value a degeneration from his teacher Hutcheson, and indeed from centuries of developed economic thought, but it was also a similar degeneration from Smith's own previous unpublished lectures, in Hutchison, and for centuries, from the late scholastics onward, the value and price of a product were determined first by its subjective utility in the minds of the consumers, and second by the relative scarcity or abundance of the good being evaluated. The more abundant any given good, the lower its value, 
the scarcer the good, the higher its value. All that this tradition needed to complete its explanation was the marginal principle of the 1870s, a focus on a given unit of the good, the unit actually chosen or not chosen on the market. But the rest of the explanation was in place. In his lectures, furthermore, Smith had solved the value paradox neatly, in much the same way as had Hutchison and other economists for centuries. Why is water so useful and yet so cheap, while a frippery like diamonds is so expensive? The difference, said Smith in his lectures, was their relative scarcity. It is only on account of the plenty of water that it is so cheap as to be got for the lifting, and on account of the scarcity of diamonds that they are so dear. Furthermore, with different supply conditions, the value and price of a product would differ drastically. Thus Smith points out in his lectures that a rich merchant, lost in the Arabian desert, would value water very highly, and so its price would be very high. Similarly, if the quantity of diamonds could by industry be multiplied, the price of diamonds on the market would fall rapidly. But in the wealth of nations, for some bizarre reason, all this drops out and falls away. Suddenly, only ten or a dozen years after the lectures, Smith finds himself unable to solve the value paradox. In a famous passage in Book One, Chapter Four of Wealth, Smith sharply and hermetically separates and sunders utility from value and price, and never the twain shall meet. The word value has two different meanings, and sometimes expresses the utility of some particular object, and sometimes the power of purchasing other goods which the possession of that object conveys. The one may be called value in use, the other value in exchange. The things which have the greatest value in use have frequently little or no value in exchange and, on contrary, those which have the greatest value in exchange have frequently little or no value in use. Nothing is more useful than water, but it will purchase scarce anything. Scarce anything can be had in exchange for it. A diamond, on the contrary, has scarce any value in use, but a very great quantity of other goods may frequently be had in exchange for it. And that is that. No mention of the solution of the value paradox by stressing relative scarcities. Indeed, scarcity, that concept so fundamental and crucial to economic theory, plays virtually no role in the wealth of nations. And with scarcity gone as the solution to the value paradox, subjective utility virtually drops out of economics, as well as does consumption and consumer demand. Utility can no longer explain value and price, and the two sundered concepts will reappear in later generations as left-wingers and socialists happily prate about the crucial difference between production for profit and production for use, the air of the Smithian emphasis on the alleged gulf between value in use and value in exchange. 
And since economic science was reborn after Adam Smith, since all previous economists were cast into limbo by prevailing fashions of thought, the entire tradition of subjective utility, scarcity as determinants of value and price, a tradition dominant since Aristotle and the medieval and Spanish scholastics, a tradition that had continued down through writers in 18th century France and Italy, that great tradition gets poured down the Orwellian memory hole by Adam Smith's fateful decision to discard even his own previous concepts. Although Samuel Bailey almost restored it, the great tradition was not to be fully resurrected until its independent rediscovery by the Austrians and other marginalists in the 1870s. Adam Smith has a lot to answer for at the bar of history. Paul Douglas put it eloquently in a commemorative volume for the Adam Smith sesquicentennial. Smith helped to divert the writers of English classical school into a cul-de-sac from which they did not emerge, insofar as their value theory was concerned, for nearly a century. And we can understand the anguish of Professor Emil Cowder when, after lamenting the sinking into oblivion of the great French and Italian economists of the eighteenth century, he wrote, Yet it was the tragedy of these writers that they wrote in vain. They were soon forgotten. No scholar appeared to make out of these thoughts the new science of political economy. Instead, the father of our economic science wrote that water has a great utility and a small value. With these few words, Adam Smith had made waste and rubbish out of the thinking of two thousand years. The chance to start in 1776 instead of 1870 with a more correct knowledge of value principles had been missed. How could Smith have made such a colossal blunder? In effect, he turned away from his almost sole emphasis on explaining market price in the lectures to another concept, which for him took on overriding importance. The natural price, or what might be called the long-run normal price. This concept, similar to Cantillon's intrinsic value, or Hutchison's fundamental value, had appeared in the lectures, but occupied a minor role, as it did in the work of these other economists. But suddenly the natural price and its alleged determinants now became more important, more truly real, than the market price of the real world that had always been the prime focus of economists. Value and price theory shifts because of Adam Smith's unfortunate and drastic change of focus in the wealth of nations, from prices in the real world to a mystical non-existent price in the never-never land of long-run equilibrium. But this alleged natural price is neither more real than nor equally real as the current market price. It is, in fact, not real at all. Only the market price is the real price. At best, the long-run price is useful in providing a vital clue to the direction of price and production changes in the real world. 
but the long-run price is never reached, and never can be reached, for it keeps shifting as underlying supply and demand forces continually change. The long-run normal price is important, but only for explaining the directional tendencies and the underlying architectonic structure of this economy, and also for analysis of how uncertainty affects real-world income and economic activity. The virtually exclusive classical and neoclassical absorption in the unreal long run to the neglect and detriment of analyzing real-world prices and economic activity shunted economic thought onto a long, fallacious, and even tragic detour from which it has not yet fully recovered. Another terrible loss inflicted on economic thought by Adam Smith was his dropping out of the concept of the entrepreneur, so important to the contributions of Cantillon and Turgot. The entrepreneur disappeared from British classical thought, never to be resurrected, until some of the continental thinkers, and especially the Austrians. But the point is that there is no room for the entrepreneur, if the focus is to be on the unchanging certain world of long-run equilibrium. Before the wealth of nations, economists had always concentrated on the market price, and had seen readily that it was determined by the forces of supply and demand, and hence of utility and scarcity. Indeed, while David Hume knew nothing of utility, and spoke of labor as the source of value, he was far sounder on value theory than his close friend Adam Smith. On receiving a copy of the newly published Wealth of Nations, Hume, on his deathbed, was able to write to his friend on one important criticism. I cannot think that the rent of farms make any part of the price of produce, but that the price is determined altogether by the quantity and the demand. In short, compared to Smith, Hume was in the continental tradition, and almost proto-Austrian. But if Smith stressed the long run, what is supposed to determine the non-real concept of a natural or long-run normal price? Following up unfortunate hints of his 18th-century predecessors, Smith concluded that the natural price is equal to, and determined by, costs of production, a concept that had only occupied a fitful and subordinate place in economic thought since the medieval scholastics. Not that the long-run normal price, or as we now call it, the equilibrium price, is nonsense. The equilibrium price is the long-run tendency of the market price. As Adam Smith indeed saw, if the market price is higher than the long-run equilibrium, then extra gains will be made, and resources will flow into this particular industry, until the market price falls to reach equilibrium. Conversely, if the market price is lower than equilibrium, the resulting losses will drive resources out of the industry until the price rises to reach equilibrium. The equilibrium concept is highly useful in pointing to the direction in which the market will move, 
but equilibrium will only be reached in reality if the data of the market are magically frozen, that is, if the values, resources, and technological knowledge on the market continue to remain precisely the same. In that case, equilibrium would be reached after a certain span of time. But since these data are always changing in the real world, equilibrium is never attained. Cost of production is defined by Adam Smith as total expenses paid to factors of production, that is, wages, profits, and rent. More specifically, in what was to become the famous classical triad, Smith reasoned that there were three types of factors of production, labor, land, and capital. Labor receives wages, land earns rent, and capital earns profits, actually long-run rather than short-run rates of return, or what might be called the natural rate of interest. In equilibrium, which Smith seems to have believed was more real and hence far more important than the actual market price, the wage rate equals the average or the natural rate and the other returns similarly equal the natural rent and the long-run average rate of profit. There is one striking fallacy in his analysis of cost that Adam Smith shared, though in an aggravated fashion, with earlier writers. Whereas market price is changeable and ephemeral, cost is somehow determined objectively and exogenously, that is, from outside the world of market economic activity. But cost is not intrinsic or given. On the contrary, it itself is determined, as the Austrians were later to point out, by the value foregone in using resources in production. This value, in turn, is determined by the subjective valuations that consumers place on those products. In brief, rather than cost in some fundamental sense determining value, cost at any and all times is itself determined by the subjective value or expected value that consumers place on the various products. So that, even if we might say that prices will equal cost of production in long-run equilibrium, there is no reason to assume that such costs determine long-run price. On the contrary, expected consumer valuation determines what the value of costs will be on the market. Cost is strictly dependent on utility in the short and long runs, and never the other way around. Another grave problem with all cost-of-production theory is that it necessarily abandons any attempt to explain the pricing of goods and services that have no cost because they are not produced, goods that are simply there or were produced in the past but are unique and not reproducible, such as artworks, jewelry, archaeological discoveries, etc., Similarly, immaterial consumer services such as the prices of entertainment, concerts, physicians, domestic servants, etc., can scarcely be accounted for by costs embodied in a product. 
In all these cases, only subjective demand can explain the pricing or the fluctuations in those prices. But this analysis scarcely exhausts Smith's sins in discussing the central concept in economics, the theory of value. For side by side with the standard cost of production analysis as equaling wages plus rents plus profits, another new and far more bizarre theory was set forth. In this alternative view, the relevant cost of production that determines equilibrium price is simply the quantity of labor embodied in its production. It was, indeed, Adam Smith who was almost solely responsible for the injection into economics of the labor theory of value. And hence it was Smith who may plausibly be held responsible for the emergence and the momentous consequences of Marxism. Side by side and unintegrated with Smith's cost of production theory of the natural price lay his new quantity of labor pain theory. Thus, the real price of everything, what everything really costs to the man who wants to acquire it, is the toil and trouble of acquiring it. What everything is really worth to the man who has acquired it and who wants to dispose of it or exchange it for something else is the toil and trouble which it can save to himself and which it can impose upon other people. What is bought with money or with goods is purchased by labor, as much as what we acquire by the toil of our own body. They contain the value of a certain quantity of labor which we exchange for what is supposed at the time to contain the value of an equal quantity. Thus goods exchange on the market for equal quantities, which they contain, of labor hours, at least in their real, long-run prices. Immediately Smith recognized that he faced a profound difficulty. If labor quantity is the source and measure of all value, how can the mere quantity of labor hours be equated to the quantity of labor pain or labor toil? Surely they are not automatically equal. As Smith himself admitted, in addition to labor time, the different degrees of hardship endured or ingenuity exercised must likewise be taken into account. Yet such equating is not easy, for indeed there may be more labor in an hour's hard work than in two hours' easy business, or in an hour's application to a trade which it cost ten years' labor to learn than in a month's industry at an ordinary and obvious employment. How does this crucial equating take place? According to Smith, by the higgling and bargaining of the market, bringing them into a rough sort of equality. Yet here Smith fell into an iron trap of circular reasoning. For, like Ricardo and Marx after him, he attempted to explain prices and values by the quantity of labor, and then appealed to the settling of values on the market to determine what the quantity of labor is, by weighting it by differences in the degree of labor hardship and toil.
Smith tried to escape such circularity by his egalitarian assumption, still held in orthodox neoclassical economics, that all laborers are equal, and that hence wages, at least in the natural long run, will all be equal, or rather will be equal for equal quantities of labor toil among all the workers. According to Smith, competition on the market will tend to equate wages per unit of sacrifice or labor toil. As Douglas put it, Smith believed he had established the fact that equal units of labor in the sense of disutility were at any one time compensated for by equal amounts of money wages. Thus Smith opined in an 18th-century egalitarian way that the difference between the most dissimilar characters, between a philosopher and a common street porter, seems to arise not so much from nature as from habit, custom, and education. There are no unique individuals and irreducible differences between people. In this reductionist view, now active again in the twentieth century, the mind of a human being is merely a tabula rasa on which external environment fills in the content. Hence, according to Smith, skilled labor earns more than unskilled merely to compensate for years of apprenticeship and training when earnings were much lower so that their labor hours and toil, and hence wages, would be equalized over a lifetime. Wages in occupations which are active in only part of the year should be higher to compensate for the fewer days of work, so that annualized incomes would be equal. Other things being equal, furthermore, workers in unpleasant or dangerous occupations would receive higher wages to compensate them for the higher labor sacrifice, while prestigious occupations would receive lower wages since their sacrifice or unpleasantness is lower. While all these distinctions make some sense and have to be taken into account in any theory of wages, they founder on the a priori assumption that every person's mind is a uniform tabula rasa. Once enter the realistic assumption of innate differences in talent, and the egalitarian leveling of wage rates to equal units of sacrifice, assuming, of course, that the latter could be measured, falls to the ground. As it is, Smith ran into considerable difficulty in explaining why prestigious occupations, far from earning low wages in the real world, actually earn higher wages than the average. When discussing the high-income physician or attorney, for example, he lamely fell back on the implication that they were positions of great trust and therefore presumably faced onerous and painful responsibilities to their clients, and were compensated thereby. His other attempt to rationalize the high incomes of attorneys was to make the dubious assumption that the average income in such occupations was lower than in others, since a flood of people are attracted by the glittering prizes of very high incomes accruing to the few top people in the profession. 
Adam Smith, in addition, muddied the waters still further by putting forward, side by side with the labor-cost theory of value, the very different labor-command theory. The labor-command theory states that the value of a good is determined not by the quantity of labor units contained in it, the labor theory of value, but by the amount of labor that can be purchased by the good. Thus, the value of any commodity to the person who possesses it is equal to the quantity of labor which it enables him to purchase or command. If in the real world the price of every commodity precisely equaled the amount of labor units contained in its production, then the two quantities, the labor cost and the labor command of a good, would indeed be identical. But if rents and profits, that is, interest, are included in cost, then the price or relative purchasing power of each good would not be equal to the labor cost. Labor cost and labor command for each good would differ. In his typically purblind way, Adam Smith did not perceive the contradiction between these two labor theories in a world where rent and profits exist as, indeed, he did not seem to see the difference between the labor and the cost of production theories of value. Ricardo was to see the problem, and struggle with it, in vain, while Marx tried to resolve it by his theory of surplus value going to the non-workers in the form of rent and profits, a theory that foundered on Marx's attempt to reconcile two contradictory propositions the labor-cost, or quantity-of-labor theory of value, and the acknowledged tendency toward an equalization of profit rates on the market. For, as we shall see further in the treatment of Marx, chapters 9 through 13 in volume 2, the surplus value of profits out of labor should be greater in labor-intensive than in capital-intensive industries and yet profits tend to equalize everywhere. Paul Douglas, properly and with rare insight, noted that Marx was, in this matter, simply a Smithian Ricardian trying to work out the theory of his masters. Marx has been berated by two generations of orthodox economists for his value theory. The most charitable of the critics have called him a fool, and the most severe have called him a knave, for what they deem to be transparent contradictions of his theory. Curiously enough, these very critics generally commend Ricardo and Adam Smith very highly. Yet the sober facts are that Marx saw more clearly than any English economist the differences between the labor-cost and the labor-command theories, and tried more earnestly than anyone else to solve the contradictions which the adoption of a labor-cost theory inevitably entailed. He failed, of course, but with him Ricardo and Smith failed as well. The failure was a failure not of one man, but of a philosophy of value, and the roots of the ultimate contradiction made manifest in the third volume of Das Kapital lie embedded in the first volume of The Wealth of Nations.
Adam Smith also gave hostage to the later emergence of socialism by his repeatedly stated view that rent and profit are deductions from the produce of labor. In the primitive world, he opined, the whole produce of labor belongs to the laborer. But as soon as stock, capital, is accumulated, some will employ industrious people in order to make a profit by the sale of the materials. Smith indicates that the capitalist, the undertaker, reaps profits in return for the risk, and for interest on the investment for maintaining the workers until the product is sold, so that the capitalist earns profit for important functions. He adds, however, that in this state of things the whole produce of labor does not always belong to the laborer. He must, in most cases, share it with the owner of the stock who employs him. By using such phrases, and by not making clear why laborers might be happy to pay capitalists for their services, Smith left the door open for later socialists who would call for restructuring institutions so as to enable workers to capture their whole product. This hostage to socialism was aggravated by the fact that Smith, unlike the later Austrian school, did not demonstrate logically and step by step how industrious and thrifty people accumulate capital out of savings. He was content simply to begin with the alleged reality of a minority of wealthy capitalists in society, a reality which later socialists were, of course, not ready to endorse. Smith was even less kindly to the role of landlords, where he recognized no economic function whatever that they might perform. In pungent passages he writes that, as soon as the land of any country has all become private property, the landlords like to reap where they never sowed, and demand a rent even for its natural produce. And again, as soon as the land becomes private property, the landlord demands a share of almost all the produce which the laborer can either raise or collect from it. There is no hint of recognition here that the landlord performs the vital function of allocating the land to its most productive use. Instead, these passages were to become understandable red meat for socialists and for Henry Georgists in calls for the nationalizing of land. As we shall see further below, Smith's labor theory of value did inspire a number of English socialists before Marx, generally named Ricardian, but actually Smithian socialists, who decided that if labor produced the whole product, and rent and profit are deductions from labor's produce, then the entire value of the product should rightfully go to its creators, the laborers. Douglas justly concluded that it is then from the Whiggish pages of the wealth of nations that the doctrines of the English socialists, as well as the theoretical exposition of Karl Marx, spring. The history of social thought furnishes many instances where theories elaborated by one writer have been taken over by others to justify social doctrines antagonistic to those to which the promulgator of the theory gave adherence. 
But had the gift of prevision been granted to those men, few would have been more startled than Adam Smith in seeing himself as the theoretical founder of the doctrines of nineteenth-century socialism. Modern writers have tried to salvage the unsalvageable labor theory of value of Adam Smith by asserting that, in a sense, he did not really mean what he was saying, but was instead seeking to find an invariable standard by which he could measure value and wealth over time. But to the extent that this search was true, Smith simply added another fallacy on top of all the others. For since value is subjective to each individual, there is no invariant measure or yardstick of value, and any attempts to discover them can, at best, distort the enterprise of economic theory, and send it off chasing an impossible chimera. At worst, the entire structure of economic theory is permeated with fallacy and error, Professors Robertson and Taylor, indeed, go so far as to call the admitted failure of Adam Smith a grand and noble failure, and one which they assert to be far more inspiring in its essential bankruptcy than if Adam Smith had continued in the subjective value tradition of his forebears. In a bizarre passage, Robertson and Taylor acknowledge the correctness of Professor Cowder's anguished critique of Smith as leading economic theory into a century-long blind alley. But they still laud Smith for his very failure. If a true explanation is given here of the reasons for Adam Smith turning from scarcity and utility to a labor theory of value— did he not, in fact, do more for the progress of economics by a grand failure in an impossible but fundamental task than he would have done had he been content to add a seventh rung or even to strengthen some of the existing steps in the rickety ladder of subjective value theory, such as, according to Dr. Cowder, it appeared in 1776? Is it hopelessly banal to counter that truth is always superior to fundamental error in advancing a scientific discipline? There is a more fundamental and convincing reason for Adam Smith's throwing over centuries of sound economic analysis, his abandonment of utility and scarcity, and his turn to the erroneous and pernicious labor theory of value. This is the same reason that Smith dwelled on the fallacious doctrine of productive versus unproductive labor. It is the explanation stressed by Emil Cowder, and partially by Paul Douglas, Adam Smith's dour Calvinism. It is Calvinism that scorns man's consumption and pleasure, and stresses the importance of labor virtually for its own sake. It is the dour Calvinist who made the extravagant statement that diamonds had scarce any value in use. And perhaps it is also the dour Calvinist who scorned, in the words of Robertson and Taylor, real-world market values which depended on monetary whims and fashions on the market and turned his attention instead to the long-run price, where such fripperies played no part, 
and the grim eternal verities of labor toil seemingly played the decisive economic role. Surely this is a far more realistic view of Adam Smith than the quixotic romantic in quest of the impossible dream of an invariable measure of value. And while Smith's most famous follower, David Ricardo, was not a Calvinist, his leading immediate disciple, Dugald Stewart, was a Scottish Presbyterian, and the leading Ricardians, John R. McCullough and James Mill, were both Scottish and educated in Dugald Stewart's University of Edinburgh. The Calvinist connection continued to dominate British, and hence classical, economics. 6. THE THEORY OF DISTRIBUTION Adam Smith's theory of distribution was fully as disastrous as his theory of value. Though he was aware of the functions performed by the capitalist, his only venture in explaining the rate of long-run profit was to opine that the greater the amount of stock, the lower the rate of profit. He arrived at this highly dubious conclusion from his perfectly valid observation that capitalists tend to move out of low-profit and into high-profit industries, their competition tending to equalize the rates of profit throughout the economy. But more production, lowering selling price and raising costs in a particular industry, is scarcely the same causal claim as more capital throughout the economy, lowering profit rates. Indeed, the rate of interest, or long-run rate of profit, is related not to the quantity of accumulated capital, but to the amount of annual saving, and, moreover, falling profit rates are not caused by increasing saving. On the contrary, as the Austrians would point out, both are the results of lower rates of time preference in the society. It is perfectly possible for a highly capitalized economy to experience rising rates of time preference, which in turn would bring about higher rates of interest. Smith saw correctly that increasing capital means an increase in the demand for labor, and therefore higher wages, so that an advancing society necessarily means a secular increase in wage rates. Unfortunately, Smith's mechanistic view of the profit rate as being inversely proportional to the total amount of capital led him to believe that wages and profits are always moving inversely to the other, an adumbration of an allegedly inherent class struggle which Ricardo would do much to aggravate. Moreover, if the supply of labor increases to absorb the increase in demand, wage rates will then fall. At this point, Adam Smith provided the Malthusian hook, for, as we shall see further, the Reverend Malthus was a devoted follower of Adam Smith. Smith, indeed, was picking up a theme common in the eighteenth century— that the population of a species tends to press on the means of its subsistence. As Smith put it, every species of animals naturally multiplies in proportion to the means of its subsistence. 
so that Smith saw the secular trend of the economy as capital increasing, wages rising, and the rise in wages calling forth an increase in population. The liberal reward of labor, by enabling them to provide better for their children, and consequently to bring up their number, naturally tends to widen and extend those limits, the means of subsistence. If this demand for labor is continually increasing, the reward of labor must necessarily encourage in such a manner the marriage and multiplication of laborers, as may enable them to supply that continually increasing demand by a continually increasing population. In this way, wages tend to settle at the minimum subsistence level for the existing population. A fall in wages below subsistence will forcibly reduce the population, and hence the supply of labor, raising wages to the subsistence rate. And if wages should rise above subsistence, the excessive multiplication of workers would soon lower it to this necessary rate. One of the many problems of this Malthusian approach is that it assumes that human beings will not be able to act on their own to limit population growth in order to preserve a newly achieved standard of living. In addition to Smith's erroneous Malthusian view that long-run wage rates are at the means of subsistence, he also introduced into economics the unfortunate fallacy that wages, at least in the shorter run, are determined by the relative bargaining power of employers and workers. It was a simple leap from that position to the view that employers have greater bargaining power than workers, thus setting the stage for later pro-union propagandists, claiming erroneously that unions can raise overall wage rates throughout the economy. In his view of rent, Smith characteristically held several unintegrated views running side by side. On the one hand, as we have seen, rent is demanded by landlords who reap where they have never sowed. Why are they able to collect such a rent? Because, now that land has become private property, the laborer must pay for the license to cultivate the land, and must give to the landlord a portion of what his labor either collects or produces. Smith concludes that the rent of land, therefore, is naturally a monopoly price, since he regards private property in land in the same category as monopolization. Surely socialist and Henry Georgite calls for land nationalization found here their fundamental inspiration. Smith also sensibly points out that rent will vary according to superior fertility and location of the land. Furthermore, as we have indicated, he attributes rent to the powers of nature, which supposedly earns an extra return in agriculture as compared to other occupations. Smith is also inconsistent on whether land rent is included in cost. At various points he includes land rent in cost, and therefore as an alleged determinant of long-run price. 
On the other hand, he also asserts that high or low rents are the effect of high or low product prices, and that since the supply of land is fixed, the full incidence of taxes upon rent will fall on land, rather than being shifted. All these inconsistencies can be cleared up if we regard all costs as determined by expected future selling prices, and individual costs to be the opportunity foregone to contribute to expected productive revenue elsewhere. More specifically, while costs do not determine price directly, they do limit supply, and in this sense every expenditure, whether on rent or elsewhere, is definitely a part of cost. But, as we have seen, the greatest of the many defects in Smith's theory was his totally discarding Cantillon's and Turgot's brilliant analysis of the entrepreneur. It was as if these great eighteenth-century Frenchmen had never written. Smith's analysis rested solely on the capitalist investing stock, and on his labor of management and inspection. The very idea of the entrepreneur as a risk-bearer and forecaster was thrown away, and again classical economics was launched into another lengthy blind alley. If, of course, one persists in fixing one's vision on the never-never land of long-run equilibrium, where all profits are low and equal, and there are no losses, there is no point in talking about entrepreneurship at all. The political implications of this omission were also not lost on nineteenth-century socialists. For if there is no role for entrepreneurial profits in a market economy, then any existing profits must be exploitative, far more so than the low uniform rate existing in long-run equilibrium. The perceptive Scottish historian of economics, Alexander Gray, wrote of Smith's theory of wages that he presented several theories not wholly consistent with each other, which lie together in somewhat uneasy juxtaposition. Gray then slyly added that it is a tribute to the greatness of Smith that all schools of thought may trace to him their origin and inspiration. Other words for such inchoate confusion, for what Gray referred to aptly as a vast chaos, come more readily to mind. 7. THE THEORY OF MONEY We have seen that David Hume's famous elucidation of the price-specie-flow mechanism in international monetary relations, though attractively written, was itself a deterioration from the pioneering and highly sophisticated analysis of Richard Cantillon. It was, however, better than nothing. Yet, as Jacob Viner put it, one of the mysteries of the history of economic thought is that Adam Smith, though a close friend of Hume for many years, included none of the Humean analysis in his Wealth of Nations. Instead, Smith propounded the primitive and erroneous view that every country will have as much specie as it allegedly needs to circulate trade the surplus overflowing channels of circulation to seek that profitable employment which it cannot find at home. 
Gone is any reference whatever to the causal nexus between the quantity of money, price levels, and balances of trade. The mystery deepens when we realize that the wealth of nations is a grave deterioration even from Smith's own lectures of over a dozen years earlier. For in those lectures, unpublished in Smith's own day, we find a clear presentation and summary of the Humean analysis. Thus, in his lectures, Smith had written that Hume proves that whenever money is accumulated beyond the proportion of commodities in any country, the price of goods will necessarily rise, that this country will be undersold in the foreign market, and consequently the money must depart into other nations. But, on the contrary, whenever the quantity of money falls below the proportion of goods, the price of goods diminishes, the country undersells others in foreign markets, and, consequently, money returns in great plenty. Thus, money and goods will keep near about a certain level in every country." Even Smith's modern admirers despair of his confused and scattered, as well as hopelessly inadequate, theory of money and theory of international monetary relations. Professor Petrella tries to explain Smith's later rejection of Hume's specie-flow-price mechanism as a reaction to Hume's giving hostage to the alleged employment benefits of mercantilistic increases in the quantity of money, benefits which Smith was anxious to deny. Petrella cites in support a sentence critical of Hume following the passage from the lectures just quoted. Mr. Hume's reasoning is exceedingly ingenious. He seems, however, to have gone a little into the notion that public opulence consists in money. But here Petrella attempts to prove too much, for why couldn't Smith simply continue to adopt the specie-flow-price mechanism, and then repeat or elaborate on his criticisms of Hume's position, demonstrating the latter's inconsistency? It seems clear, in contrast, that the mystery of Smith's abandonment of the price-specie-flow mechanism can be solved if we realize that this particular deterioration in his economic analysis was not unique. Indeed, we have noted a similar fatal deterioration in his value theory from the time of the lectures to the wealth of nations. It seems plausible that the cause of the decay in each case was the same. Smith's shift of concentration from the real world of market prices to the exclusive vision of long-run natural equilibrium, the shift from the real world of market process to focusing on equilibrium states, made Smith impatient with the process analysis that was the hallmark and the merit of the specie-flow approach. Instead, Smith treats only a world of pure specie money, and assumes that all countries are always in equilibrium. Moreover, any departures from worldwide monetary equilibrium are eradicated swiftly, leaving the world in a virtually perpetual equilibrium state. Smith's focus on the long run, in fact, led him to apply his general labor-cost-of-production theory of value to the value of money.
The value of money, that is, the value of the metal commodity, gold or silver, then becomes the embodiment of the labor cost of producing it. In that way, Smith attempted to integrate the values of money and other goods by assimilating all of them into a labor cost theory. Thus Smith wrote in The Wealth of Nations, Gold and silver, however, like every other commodity, vary in their value, are sometimes cheaper and sometimes dearer. The quantity of labor which any particular quantity of them can purchase or command, or the quantity of other goods which it will exchange for, depends always upon the fertility or barrenness of the mines. The discovery of the abundant mines of America reduced in the sixteenth century the value of gold and silver in Europe to about a third of what it had been before. As it cost less labor to bring those metals from the mine to the market, so when they were brought thither they could purchase or command less labor. Even those few economists who laud Adam Smith as really adopting the Humean price-specie-flow mechanism concede that he dropped this approach when considering a mixed monetary system, including banknotes or paper money. Indeed, even though Smith occasionally adhered to the quantity theory of specie money and its effects on prices, he here throws it over altogether— and asserts that convertible banknotes are always equal in value to gold, and hence their quantity will always remain the same. Any increase of banknotes beyond the total of specie will overflow the channel of circulation, and therefore return to the banks in what was later called a reflux, in exchange for specie which immediately flows out of the country. Smith, therefore, explicitly denies that an increase in banknotes can raise the prices of commodities. But why did Smith abandon the quantity theory completely here in exchange for such nonsense? Plausibly, because of Smith's need to integrate all value theory on the basis of the labor cost of production. If he ever conceded that an increase in the quantity of paper money could affect values, even temporarily, then Smith would have had to admit an enormous hole in his labor cost theory. For the labor cost involved in printing paper money obviously bears no relation whatever to the exchange value of that money. Therefore, paper money, including bank paper, had to be assimilated tightly to the value of specie. Adam Smith wrote in an eighteenth-century Britain where virtually all his predecessors had denounced the new institution of fractional reserve banking as inflationary and illegitimate. His friend, David Hume, 1752, had called for the radical repudiation of this institution on behalf of 100% specie reserve banking. Other important writers had taken the same position, including Jacob Vanderlint, died 1740, in his Money Answers All Things, 1734 and Joseph Harris, 1702-1764, Master of the Royal Mint, in his An Essay Upon Money and Coins, 1757 and 1758. 
Harris had stated that banks were convenient so long as they issued no bills without an equivalent in real treasure, but that their increases of credit beyond that limit are inflationary and will eventually endanger the bank's own credit. If Smith had continued in his predecessor's footsteps, his commanding authority and prestige might have been able to bring about a fundamental reform of the fractional reserve banking system. But unfortunately, Smith, in his need to meld all monetary theory into a long-run labor-cost-of-production approach, abandoned the quantity theory and the specie-flow-price mechanism in his discussion of paper money. He thus set economic theory once again on an erroneous and fateful road by embracing the institution of fractional reserve credit. No longer holding such credit to be inflationary, Smith went on to adumbrate one of the major defenses of paper money still held to this day that gold and silver are mere dead stock, accomplishing nothing. The banks, by substituting their paper notes for specie, enable the country to convert a great deal of this dead stock into active and productive stock. Indeed, so far did Adam Smith rhapsodize about paper money that he likened its accomplishments to providing a sort of highway through the air. The gold and silver money which circulates in any country may very properly be compared to a highway, which, while it circulates and carries to market all the grass and corn of the country, produces itself not a single pile of either. The judicious operations of banking, by providing a sort of wagon way through the air, enable the country to convert, as it were, a great part of its highways into good pastures and cornfields, and thereby to increase considerably the annual produce of its land and labor. Adam Smith failed to realize that the stock of gold and silver was far from dead. On the contrary, it performed the vital function of being a money commodity, among other functions providing to every member of society an insurance against paper money inflation, whether launched by government or banks. The stock of gold, in short, performs a store-of-value service, which Smith totally overlooks. Smith's critique of specie as dead stock also stems from his belief that money is not a commodity serving as a medium of exchange, but a claim, a sign, a voucher to purchase. The French economist Charles Riest is justly highly critical of the dead stock approach and its influence on later generations. This idea was seized upon with extraordinary alacrity and found high favor. It dominated the thought of English writers in the nineteenth century. The belief that the use of metallic money is a retrograde and costly system, to be discouraged by all possible means, is firmly fixed in British thought on currency and banking. The use of the check and the banknote was for a long time regarded only from this point of view. These two instruments were considered merely as means of economizing money. The idea was taken as the guide to the country's currency policy, and the most disastrous conclusions were drawn from it. 
8. The Myth of Laissez-Faire If, then, Adam Smith contributed nothing of value to economic thought, if, in fact, he introduced numerous fallacies, including the labor theory of value, and thereby caused a significant deterioration of economic thought from previous French and British economists of the 18th century, did he make any positive contribution to economics? A common answer is that the significance of the wealth of nations was political rather than analytic, that his great achievement was to initiate and take the lead in the advocacy of free trade, free markets, and laissez-faire. It is true that Smith articulated the political-economic sentiments of his day. As Joseph Schumpeter wrote, those who extolled Adam Smith's work as an epoch-making, original achievement were, of course, thinking primarily of the policies he advocated. Smith's views, Schumpeter added, were not unpopular, they were in fashion. In addition, Schumpeter shrewdly noted that Smith was very much a judiciously diluted Rousseauian in his eighteenth-century egalitarianism. Human beings seemed to him to be much alike by nature, all reacting in the same simple ways to very simple stimuli differences being due mainly to different training and different environments. But while Schumpeter's explanation of Smith's vast popularity, that he was a plotter in tune with the zeitgeist, holds part of the truth, it still scarcely accounts for the way in which Smith swept the board, blotting out general knowledge of all previous and contemporary economists. This puzzle will be examined further in the next chapter, for the mystery of Smith's total triumph deepens when we realize that he scarcely originated laissez-faire thought. As we have seen, he was merely in an eighteenth-century tradition, flourishing in Scotland and especially in France. Why, then, were these preceding economists, analytically far superior to Smith, and also in the laissez-faire framework, so readily forgotten. Smith's greatest achievement has generally been supposed to be the enunciation of the way in which the free market guides its participants to pursue the good of the consumers by following their own self-interest. As Smith wrote in perhaps his most famous passage, a man will be more likely to prevail if he can interest their self-love in his favor and show that it is for their own advantage to do for him what he requires of them. It is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interest. We address ourselves not to their humanity, but to their self-love, and never talk to them of our own necessities, but of their advantages." And in an equally famous passage bringing out the general principles of this point, As every individual, therefore, endeavors as much as he can both to employ his capital in the support of industry, and so to direct that industry that its produce may be of the greatest value, every individual necessarily labors to render the annual revenue of the society as great as he can, he generally, indeed, neither intends to promote the public interest, nor knows how much he is promoting it. 
by directing that industry in such a manner as its produce may be of the greatest value, he intends only his own gain, and he is in this, as in many other cases, led by an invisible hand to promote an end which was no part of his intention. Smith goes on to caution wisely against alleged aims to promote the public good directly. Nor is it always the worse for the society that it was no part of it. By pursuing his own interest, he frequently promotes that of the society more effectually than when he really intends to promote it. I have never known much good done by those who affected to trade for the public good. Hostile critics of laissez-faire have latched on to Smith's terminology of the invisible hand to indict him for ostensibly beginning his analysis with a mystical and therefore flagrantly unscientific a priori assumption that providence manipulates people for everyone's good by an invisible hand. Actually, Smith was simply engaging in an a posteriori conclusion from his scientific analysis, and from the free market analysis generally, that pursuit of self-interest on the market leads to advancing the interest of all. Similar pursuits in government by no means lead to the same harmonious and happy result, Smith being alive to the pernicious consequences of government's creation of monopolies and its conferring privileges on special interest groups. Smith, a religious man, was simply expressing his quite justified wonderment at the harmonizing influence of the free market, and his by an invisible hand was a metaphor which contained an implicit as-if before his use of the phrase. Despite the undoubted importance of these passages, however, Adam Smith's championing of laissez-faire was scarcely consistent. In the first place, Smith retreated from the absolutist natural law position that he had set forth in his ethical work, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, 1757. In this book, free interaction of individuals creates a harmonious natural order, which government interference can only cripple and distort. In Wealth of Nations, on the other hand, laissez-faire becomes only a qualified presumption rather than a hard and fast rule, and the natural order becomes imperfect and to be followed only in most cases. Indeed, it is this deterioration of the case for laissez-faire that German scholars were to label Das Adam Smith problem. Indeed, the list of exceptions Smith makes to laissez-faire is surprisingly long. His devotion to the militarism of the nation-state, for example, induced him to take the lead in the pernicious modern view of excusing any government intervention that might plausibly be labeled for the national defense. On that basis, Smith supported the Navigation Acts, that bulwark of British mercantilism and systemic subsidy for British shipping. One of Smith's reservations about the division of labor, indeed, is that it leads to a decay of the martial spirit, and Smith goes on at length about the decay of the martial spirit in modern times, and about the great importance of restoring and sustaining it. 
The security of every society must always depend, more or less, upon the martial spirit of the great body of the people. It was an anxiety to see government foster such a spirit that led Smith into another important deviation from laissez-faire principle, his call for government-run education. It is also important, opined Smith, to have governmental education in order to inculcate obedience to it among the populace, scarcely a libertarian or laissez-faire doctrine. Wrote Smith, An instructed and intelligent people, besides, are always more decent and orderly than an ignorant and stupid one. They feel themselves, each individually, more respectable, and more likely to obtain the respect of their lawful superiors, and they are therefore more disposed to respect those superiors. They are less apt to be misled into any wanton or unnecessary opposition to the measures of government. In addition to navigation acts and public education, Adam Smith advocated the following forms of government intervention in the economy. Regulation of bank paper, including the outlawing of small denomination notes, after allowing fractional reserve banking. Public works, including highways, bridges, and harbors, on the rationale that private enterprise would not have the incentive to maintain them properly. Government coinage. The post office, on the simple grounds, which will draw a bitter laugh from modern readers, that it is profitable. Compulsory building of firewalls. Compulsory registration of mortgages. Some restrictions on the export of corn, that is, wheat. The outlawing of the practice of paying employees in kind, forcing all payment to be in money. There is also a particularly lengthy list of taxes advocated by Adam Smith, each of which interferes in the free market. For one thing, Smith paved the way for Henry Georgism and the single tax by urging higher taxes on uncultivated land, displaying his animus against the landlord. He also favored moderate taxes on the import of foreign manufactures and taxes on the export of raw wool, thus gravely weakening his alleged devotion to freedom of international trade. Adam Smith's Calvinist abhorrence of luxury is also seen in his proposals to levy heavy taxes on luxurious consumption. Thus he called for heavier highway tolls on luxury carriages than on freight wagons, specifically to tax the indolence and vanity of the rich. His puritanical hostility to liquor also emerges in his call for a heavy tax on distilleries, in order to crack down on hard liquor and induce people to drink instead the wholesome and invigorating liquor of beer and ale. His devotion to ale, however, was minimal, for Smith also advocated a tax on the retail sale of all liquor in order to discourage the multiplication of small alehouses. And, finally, Adam Smith advocated the the soak-the-rich policy of progressive income taxation. 
Perhaps Smith's most flagrant violation of laissez-faire was his strong advocacy of rigid usury laws, a sharp contrast to the opposition to such laws by Cantillon and Turgot. Smith did not, indeed, wish to adhere to the medieval prohibition of all credit. Instead, he urged an interest rate ceiling of 5%, slightly above the rate charged to prime borrowers a price which is commonly paid for the use of money by those who can give the most undoubted security. His reasoning followed his predilection, as we have already noted, for hostility to free market time preferences between consumption and saving. Driven by Calvinist hostility to luxurious consumption, Smith tried to skew the economy in favor of more productive labor in capital investment and less in consumption. By forcing interest rates below the free market level, Smith hoped to channel credit into the sober hands of prime borrowers and away from credit into the hands of speculators and of prodigal consumers. As Professor West admits, Adam Smith condemned the demand for loans by prodigals and projectors, in which the prodigal dissipates in the maintenance of the idle what was destined for the support of the industrious. In that way, the ceiling on interest rates, as West notes, would reallocate credit into the most productive hands. Yet West, a free-market adherent, who is generally an uncritical admirer of Smith, then maintains that Smith was curiously inconsistent in not realizing in this one case that price controls would create a greater shortage of credit. Here West echoes the brilliant essay, The Defense of Usury, by the Smithian Jeremy Bentham, in accusing the master of inconsistency in his usual advocacy of the free market. But, as Professor Garrison indicates in his comment on West, Smith knew only too well what he was doing. In urging a reallocation of credit by the government into the most productive hands, Adam Smith was precisely trying to create a shortage of credit for consumers and speculators, and thereby to channel credit into the hands of sober, low-risk businessmen. As Garrison points out, Smith was not interested in reducing the cost of borrowing with his credit controls. He was trying to reduce the amount of funds borrowed for certain categories of loans, and his anti-usury scheme was well suited for this. Smith notes that money is lent to the government at three percent, and to sound businessmen at four and four and a half. Only prodigals and projectors, people who are most likely to waste and destroy capital, would be willing to borrow at eight or ten percent. Smith, therefore, recommended an interest ceiling at five percent. This policy was not aimed at allowing the prodigals and projectors to obtain funds more cheaply, but at preventing them from obtaining any funds at all. These funds would be diverted, then, into the hands of those who are more future-oriented. In short, Smith knew full well that a low-interest ceiling would not benefit marginal borrowers by providing them with cheap credit. 
He knew that usury laws would dry up credit altogether for marginal borrowers, and he sought precisely that result. For Smith virtually embraced the idea of zero time preference as the ideal, the non-time preference of his mythical impartial spectator. And, concludes Garrison, it is not difficult to see how Smith's standard of zero time preference, coupled with his awareness of sharply positive time preferences, could lead him to make the very policy recommendations that West found to be surprising. He sought to reallocate resources away from the present and toward the future. Perhaps most important of all, how do we square Smith's alleged role as champion of free trade and laissez-faire with his spending the last twelve years of his life as a commissioner of Scottish customs, cracking down on smugglers, violating Britain's extensive mercantilist laws, and evading import taxes? Did he treat the job as a sinecure? No, Recent studies show that his role as a top enforcer of mercantilist laws and tariffs was active and hard-working. Was he driven by penury? Hardly, since with his great reputation he probably could have commanded an equivalent sum in a top academic post. Did he suffer from qualms of conscience? Apparently not since he not only approached his job with enthusiasm, but was also particularly vigilant and hard-nosed in trying to enforce the onerous restrictions and tariffs to the hilt. Edwin West, an inveterate admirer of Smith as an alleged devotee of laissez-faire, speculates that he entered the high customs bureaucracy as a practical free trader, trying to remove or lighten the customs burden on the Scottish economy. But, as Anderson and others reply, if Smith had been deeply concerned with reducing the cost to the economy resulting from customs, the most effective strategy at the level of his responsibilities would have been to reduce the efficiency of the enforcement apparatus. But Smith did not do this. On the contrary, Smith showed no appreciation whatever of the social and economic value of the underground economy, or the great British tradition of smuggling. Instead, he tried his best to make enforcement of the mercantilist laws and burdens as efficient as possible. Neither did he use his high post to promote reforms in the direction of free trade. On the contrary, his major reform proposal as commissioner was for compulsory automatic warehousing of all imports, which would have made inspection and enforcement far easier for the customs officials at the expense of the smugglers, international trade, and the nation's economy. As Anderson and others note, Smith was proposing a reform that was likely to increase the costs to the economy from customs duties. And finally, Smith's correspondence as commissioner shows no particular desire to cut tariffs or restrictions. In contrast, his dominant emotion seems to have been pride at cracking down on smugglers, and thereby increasing government revenue. 
In December 1785, he writes to a fellow customs official that it may perhaps give the gentleman pleasure to be informed that the net revenue arising from the customs in Scotland is at least four times greater than it was seven or eight years ago. It has been increasing rapidly these four or five years past, and the revenue of this year has overleaped by at least one-half the revenue of the greatest former year. I flatter myself it is likely to increase still further. Well, happy day! This from an alleged champion of laissez-faire. 9. On Taxation over the centuries, economists have contributed little of interest or value on the subject of taxation. In addition to describing forms of taxation, they have generally approached the subject from the point of view of the state, as a kindly or not-so-kindly despot, seeking to maximize its revenue while doing minimum harm to the economy. There are variations among the different schools, but the general thrust is the same. Thus, the Cameralists were frankly interested solely in maximizing state revenue, as were the French absolutists. The more liberal economists admonished the government to keep tax rates lower than had been customary. The more liberal economists had tried to strictly demarcate functions which government should and should not perform. By ruling out various kinds of government intervention, the thrust, other things being equal, is to reduce total government taxation and spending. But they have offered us very few guidelines beyond that. If, for example, as in the case of Smith, the government is supposed to supply public works, how many should it provide, and how much should be spent? There have been almost no preferred criteria, then, for total spending or for overall levels of taxation. There has been more discussion of the distribution of taxation. That is, given from some arbitrary external dictate that the total level of taxation should be a certain amount, T, there has been considerable discussion of how T should be distributed. In short, the two main problems of taxation are how much should be levied and who should pay, and there has been considerably more thought devoted to the latter question. But none of this has been very satisfactory. Again, the basic point of view seems to be that of a highwayman or slave master interested in extracting the maximum from his charges while keeping their complaints as minimal as possible. In the discussion in 18th century France, there were two favorite tax proposals, proportional income or property taxation, or, as in the case of Marshal Vauban and later the physiocrats, a single tax on land, revenue to a fixed and visible source of income that seems fixed, unchanging, and therefore easy for the state to get at. Adam Smith's discussion of taxation in The Wealth of Nations became, like the rest of his work, a classic, setting the central focus for economic thought from that point on. And, like the rest of the work, it was a confused mixture of the banal and the fallacious, 
Thus Smith set forth four canons of evident justice and utility in taxation, which were to become famous from then on. Of the four, three are banal, that the tax payment be made as convenient as possible for the payer, that the cost of collection be kept to a minimum, since the state does not even benefit from these levies on the taxpayer, and that the tax be certain rather than arbitrary. The substantive canon was Smith's first in the list, that tax be proportional to incomes. Thus, the subjects of every state ought to contribute toward the support of the government as nearly as possible in proportion to their respective abilities, that is, in proportion to the revenue which they respectively enjoy under the protection of the state. The expense of government to the individuals of a great nation is like the expense of a great estate, who are all obliged in proportion to respective interests to the estate. In the first place, this passage is hopelessly confused in presenting, as if they were identical, two very different criteria for justice or propriety in taxation the ability to pay, and the benefit principles. Smith maintains that people's ability to pay taxes is proportionate to income, and that benefits derived from the state are proportional in the same way. Yet he offers no justification for either of these dubious propositions. On ability, it is by no means clear that people's ability to pay, however that be defined, is proportionate to income. What, for example, of the influence of a person's relative wealth as contrasted to income, his medical or other expenses, etc.? And one thing is certain. Adam Smith presented no arguments for this bald assertion. The idea that one's benefit derived from the state is proportional to one's income is even shakier. How precisely do the wealthy, by virtue of that wealth, benefit proportionately from the state as compared to the poor? That would only be true if the government were responsible for the wealth, by means of a subsidy, monopoly grant, or some form of special privilege. If not from special privilege, then how do the rich benefit proportionately to their income? Surely not from redistributive measures, by which the state takes money from the wealthy and gives it to bureaucrats or the poor. In that case, it is the latter group who benefit, and the rich who suffer from this redistribution. So who, then, should pay for such benefits? The bureaucrats and the poor? and benefits from police protection or the public schools? But surely the wealthy could far more afford to pay for private provision of these services, and therefore the rich benefit less than the middle class, or certainly than the poor, from such expenditures. Neither would it save the theory to say that since A, for example, makes five times as much money as B, that A therefore benefits five times as much from society, and therefore should pay five times the taxes. The fact that A makes five times as much as B shows that A's services are individually worth five times as much as B to his fellows on the market. 
Therefore, since A and B in truth benefit similarly from the existence of society, the reverse argument would be far more plausible, that the differential between A's and B's incomes is due to A's superior productivity, and that society, if indeed it can be held to be responsible for anything specific at all, can be held responsible for their equal core incomes below that differential. The implication of that point would be that both persons, and therefore all persons, should pay an equal tax, that is, a tax equal in absolute numbers. Finally, whatever society's claim to part of people's incomes may be, society, the division of labor, the body of knowledge and culture, etc., is in no sense the state. The state contributes no division of labor to the production process, and does not transmit knowledge or carry civilization forward. Therefore, whatever each of us may owe to society, the state can hardly claim, any more than any other group in society, to be surrogate for all social relations in the country. Chapter 17 The Spread of the Smithian Movement 1. The Wealth of Nations and Jeremy Bentham Contrary to received opinion, the wealth of nations was not an instant success. Of the leading British journals of the day, the annual register gave it a brief, tepid review, while the gentleman's magazine ignored it altogether. The most influential journal, the monthly review, was ambivalent about the book. Indeed, there were no citations to the wealth of nations in articles on economics for ten years after its publication, and no one mentioned the book in Parliament until 1783. It was only in the 1780s that the book began to roll. By 1789 the wealth of nations had already gone into five editions, between 1783 and 1800, members of Parliament in Britain appealed to the authority of Adam Smith 37 times. The noted English philosopher Jeremy Bentham, 1748-1832, son of a wealthy lawyer, proclaimed himself a fervent disciple of Smith. His first economic work, however, was bold enough to take his master to task for inconsistency in his own free-market views by upholding usury laws. In The Defense of Usury, 1787, Bentham pointed out that usury laws create a scarcity of credit. He also stressed that usury is what would now be called a victimless crime, and therefore not really a crime at all. He had noted elsewhere, in a work on morals and legislation, that usury, which, if it must be an offense, is an offense committed with consent, that is, with the consent of the party supposed to be injured, cannot merit a place in the catalogue of offenses, unless the consent were either unfairly obtained or unfreely. In the first case it coincides with defraudment, in the other with extortion. In short, in the latter cases, no special laws against usury would be needed beyond the common legal prohibitions of force and fraud. 
There are hints in Bentham's defense of usury for the first time in Britain that the fundamental cause of interest is time preference. Thus Bentham refers to lending as exchanging present money for future, and also defines a saver as someone who has the resolution to sacrifice the present to the future. He also understands that added to pure interest is a risk premium proportionate to the risks a creditor expects to incur in a particular loan. Some Smith biographers have accepted the legend that Bentham's defense of usury converted Smith to the free market in lending position, but there is no real evidence to that effect. Moreover, it goes against what we know of Smith's general intractability. A Scottish friend wrote to Bentham that Smith is supposed to have told a third party that he admired the defense, and that he could not complain about the treatment Bentham had accorded to Smith. The friend concluded that Smith had seemed to admit that you were right. On reading this, the eager Bentham wrote to Smith, asking him whether he had actually converted him to opposition to usury laws. Smith, however, received the letter virtually on his deathbed, and he could only send Bentham a copy of The Wealth of Nations. All this is far too flimsy an evidence of any recantation by Smith. 2. The Influence of Dugald Stewart Adam Smith's lectures converted the merchants of Glasgow to a free-trade position, but most of his influence was spread through the wealth of nations. A triumphant movement of Smithian disciples really begins only with Dugald Stewart, 1753-1828. Stewart was the son of Matthew Stewart, a professor of mathematics at Edinburgh University. Stewart succeeded his teacher, Adam Ferguson, as professor of moral philosophy at Edinburgh in 1785. Stuart made himself the leading disciple of Smith, and after the death of his master, Stuart became his first biographer, reading his account of the life and writings of Adam Smith in 1793 to the Royal Society of Edinburgh. But by this time Britain was in the throes of a hysterical counter-revolution, a veritable white terror against the French Revolution and all its ancillary liberal views. Consequently, Stuart was very circumspect in his memoir, and stayed off any controversial topics, such as the necessity for free markets. Stuart was a highly prolific writer and an outstanding and notable orator, but he kept his lectures, as well as writings, bland and acceptable to the powers that be. Thus, in 1794, Stuart recanted his earlier praise of the great French laissez-faire liberal and close friend and biographer of Turgot, Marie-Jean-Antoine-Nicolas de Caritat, the Marquis de Condorcet, 1743-1794. This Girondist revolutionary was too hot a topic, and Stuart also made sure to praise the British Constitution in his lectures. By the turn of the century, however, the worst of the counter-revolutionary hysteria had blown over, and Stuart felt safe enough to propound his true classical liberal views in books and in lectures. 
Hence, in 1799 and 1800, Stuart began to lecture on political economy, in addition to his general lectures on moral philosophy. He kept giving these lectures until his retirement from Edinburgh in 1810. His 1800 lectures remained unpublished until printed as Stuart's Lectures on Political Economy in 1855. Since the retirement of the great Thomas Reed, founder of the Common Sense School of Philosophy, from his post as Professor of Moral Philosophy at Glasgow in the 1780s, and his death a decade later, Dugald Stewart had become the only distinguished philosopher in all of Great Britain. Oxford and Cambridge were still in deep decline. With the European war blocking trips to or from the continent, it became the fashion for bright young students all over Britain to come to Edinburgh and study under Dugald Stewart. In this way, and clinging passionately to the Smithian line, in this way, and clinging passionately to the Smithian line, Dugald Stewart, in the first decade of the nineteenth century, profoundly influenced and converted a host of future economists, writers, and statesmen. These included James Mill, John Ramsay McCullough, the Earl of Lauderdale, Canon Sidney Smith, Henry Broome, Francis Horner, Francis Jeffrey, and the Viscount Palmerston. Economics was thereby developed as a discipline, Stuart giving rise to text writers, publicists, editors, reviewers, and journalists. Typical of this illustrious group was the case of Francis Horner, 1778-1817, who was born in Edinburgh, the son of a merchant, and studied under Stuart at the university. Returning from England, Horner enrolled in Stuart's new special course in political economy in 1799, where he studied the wealth of nations and eagerly read Condorcet and Turgot. Horner, indeed, was so impressed by Turgot that he wanted to translate Turgot's writings into English. Becoming a lawyer shortly thereafter, Horner went to London and became a member of Parliament in 1806. Inspired by Stuart's teachings, his students, Sidney Smith, Henry Broome, Francis Jeffrey, and Francis Horner, founded the Edinburgh Review in 1802 as a new scholarly Whig periodical devoted to educating the intelligent public in liberty and laissez-faire. This Whig magazine was the only economic journal in Great Britain, and as such enjoyed great influence. The last decade of teaching by Dugald Stewart proved, however, to be the last great burst of the Scottish intellectual ascendancy in Great Britain. For the shades of night were rapidly closing in on the Scottish Enlightenment. In the first place, Tory repression of liberal and Whig ideas during the generation of war with France continued to be far greater in Scotland than in England. More important in the long run was the great revival of militant evangelical Protestantism that swept Western Europe and then the United States in the early years of the nineteenth century. The liberal, moderate, and even deistic views that had spread throughout the Western world in the last half of the eighteenth century were swept aside by resurgent Christianity. 
In Scotland, the result was an intellectual counter-revolution against moderate control of the Presbyterian Church, and a purging of the Scottish faculties of moral philosophy and theology of moderate, skeptical, and secularist teachings. Smith and Hutchison were now denounced in retrospect as guilty of a refined paganism and with a resumption of strict theological control of the moral philosophy faculty, Scottish universities lost their preeminence in Britain and slid rapidly downhill, intellectually if not theologically. Neither classical liberal social philosophy nor political economy could survive in that kind of academic climate. As a result, intellectual leadership shifted from Scotland to England and out of academia altogether for a considerable period. Since English universities were still not hospitable to the new discipline of political economy, the locus of economic thought now shifted from Scottish academics to English businessmen, publicists, and government officials. The shift was symbolized by the fact that while the Edinburgh Review continued to be published for decades, and its nominal home was still Edinburgh, three of its four editors had moved to England within a few months of the start of the publication. One of them, who died at a very young age, was Francis Horner. Moving to London as an attorney, Horner quickly became a Whig member of Parliament, and his expertise on monetary matters made him chairman of the famous Bullion Committee in 1810, which was to strike a crucial blow for hard money. There he worked closely with David Ricardo. In the first issue of the Edinburgh Review, Horner reviewed the famous monetary work of Henry Thornton, as well as a highly important essay by Lord King in a later issue. Horner was a member of prominent Whig clubs in London, the King of Clubs and Brooks, in both of whom he had David Ricardo as a fellow member. Horner also shared scientific interests with Ricardo, and both men were members of the board of the Geological Society of London. Another illustration of the intellectual shift from Scotland to England is what happened to two bright young Scotsmen who studied under Stuart and were later to become major leaders in British economics. James Mill, 1773-1836, was the son of a Scottish shoemaker who studied under Stuart and was then licensed to preach in the Presbyterian ministry. Failing to find a ministerial post in the increasingly militant Calvinist climate in Scotland, Mill was obliged to move to London, where he became editor of the literary journal. Eventually, Mill found employment in the London office of the East India Company, which gave him a base to pursue his very active economic and philosophical work in his off-hours. The younger John Ramsay McCullough, 1789-1864, who studied with Stuart in his last years, wrote economic articles in The Scotsman and the Edinburgh Review, and organized an economics lecture series. But despite his obvious merits, McCullough was unable to find an academic post in Scotland, and finally moved to London to teach political economy at the newly established University of London. 
but after four years he spent the rest of his life working as a financial controller in England, again writing and being active in economics in addition to his regular work. One beneficial result of the Stuart-led sweep of Smithianism in Great Britain is that it swamped the competing strain to political economy, the political arithmeticians. These political arithmeticians, or statistical collectors, as Stuart contemptuously called them, had formed a competing school in economics since the writings of Sir William Petty, 1623 to 1687, and his followers in the late 17th century. The arithmeticians generally scorned the classical method of arriving at economic laws deduced from broad insights into human action and the economy. Instead, in a Baconian fashion, they tried in vain to arrive at theoretical generalizations from hodgepodge collections of statistical facts. With little insight into the laws of the free market, or the counterproductive nature of government intervention, the political arithmeticians tended to be mercantilists and British chauvinists, proclaiming the economic superiority of their homeland. But this school was demolished by the Smithians, first by Smith himself, who declared in the Wealth of Nations that, I have no great faith in political arithmetic and then by Stuart, who engaged in a searching methodological critique of this allegedly scientific school of thought. Stuart wrote, The facts accumulated by the statistical collector are merely particular results, which other men have seldom an opportunity of verifying or of disproving, and which can never afford any important information. In short, in contrast to the replicable quantitative findings of natural science, statistics of human action are mere listings of particular non-replicable events, rather than the embodiment of enduring natural law. Stuart concluded that, instead of appealing to political arithmetic as a check on the conclusions of political economy, it would often be more reasonable to have recourse to political economy as a check on the extravagance of political arithmetic. After the 1790s, then, Adam Smith held total sway over economic thought in Britain. Amidst a flourishing swarm of views, all the major protagonists in England, as we shall see below, from Bentham to Malthus to Ricardo, considered themselves devoted Smithians, often trying to systematize and clarify the admitted confusions and inconsistencies of their master. 3. Malthus and the Assault on Population one of the first Smithian economists, and indeed a man who was for two decades the only professor of political economy in England, was the Reverend Thomas Robert Malthus, 1766-1834. Malthus was born in Surrey, the son of a respected and wealthy lawyer and country gentleman. Malthus graduated from Jesus College, Cambridge, in 1788, with honors in mathematics, and five years later became a fellow of that college. During that same year, Robert Malthus became an Anglican curate in Surrey, in the parish where he had been born. 
Malthus seemed destined to lead the quiet life of a bachelor curate when, in 1804, at nearly forty, he married and promptly had three children. The year after his marriage, Malthus became the first professor of history and political economy in England, at the new East India College at Haleybury, a post he retained until his death. All his life Malthus remained a Smithian, and was to become a close friend, though not disciple, of David Ricardo. His only marked deviation from Smithian doctrine, as we shall see, was his proto-Keynesian worry about alleged under-consumption during the economic crisis after the end of the Napoleonic Wars. But Malthus was, of course, far more than a Smithian academic, and he gained both widespread fame and notoriety while still a bachelor. For population Malthus became known worldwide for his famous assault on human population. In previous centuries, insofar as writers or economists dealt with the problem at all, they were almost uniformly pro-populationists. A large and growing population was considered a sign of prosperity and a spur to progress. The only exception, as we have seen, was the late sixteenth-century Italian absolutist theorist Giovanni Botero, the first to warn that population growth is an ever-present danger, tending, as it does, to increase without limit, while the means of subsistence grows only slowly. But Botero lived at the threshold of great economic growth, of advances in total population as well as standards of living, and so his gloomy views got very short shrift by contemporaries or later thinkers. Indeed, absolutists and mercantilists tended to admire growing population as providing more hands for production on behalf of the state apparatus, as well as more fodder for its armies. Even those eighteenth-century writers who believed that population tended to increase without limit, curiously enough, favored that development. This was true of the American Benjamin Franklin, 1706 to 1790, in his Observations Concerning the Increase of Mankind and the Peopling of Countries, 1751. Similarly, the physiocrat leader Mirabeau, in his famous The Friend of Man, or A Treatise on Population, 1756, while comparing human reproduction to that of rats, they would multiply up to the very limit of subsistence like rats in a barn, yet advocated such virtually unlimited reproduction. A large population, said Mirabeau, was a boon and a source of wealth, and it was precisely because people will multiply like rats in a barn up to the limit of subsistence that agriculture, and hence the production of food, should be encouraged. Mirabeau had picked up the rats-in-a-barn metaphor from Cantillon, but unfortunately did not inherit Cantillon's highly sensible and sophisticated optimum population realization that human beings will flexibly adjust population to standards of living, and that their non-economic values will help them decide on whatever trade-offs they may choose between a slightly larger population or a smaller population and higher standards of living. 
Mirabeau's co-leader of physiocracy, François Canet, however, converted him to a gloomy view of the influence of the alleged tendency to unlimited population growth on standards of living. Adam Smith, Malthus's standard-bearer in economics, managed in a typically confused and contradictory fashion, at one and the same time, to provide Malthus with all his ammunition for gloom and doom, while remaining a cheerful proponent of large and growing numbers of people. For on the one hand, Smith opined that people would indeed insist on breeding up to the minimum of subsistence, the essential Malthusian doctrine. But on the other, Smith asserted cheerfully that the most decisive mark of the prosperity of any country is the increase of the number of its inhabitants. At about the same time that Adam Smith was sinking into confusion and paving the way for the unfortunate anti-population hysteria of Robert Malthus, the unheralded Abate Antonio Genovese, the first professor of economics on the continent at the University of Naples, was pointing the way to a very different solution to the population question. In his Lesione di Economia Civile, 1765, this excellent utility value theorist was reminiscent of Cantillon's insight about an optimum population. Under any given conditions, he pointed out, population can either be too large or too small for optimum happiness or living standards. Robert Malthus was moved to consider the population question by wrestling in friendly and repeated argument with his beloved father, Daniel, a fellow country squire in Surrey. Daniel was a bit of a radical, and was influenced by the utopian and even communistic opinions of the day. He was a friend and great admirer of the French radical Jean-Jacques Rousseau. The 1790s was the era of the outburst of the French Revolution, and it was a decade when ideas of liberty, equality, utopia, and revolution were very much in the air. One of the most popular and influential radical works in England was William Godwin, 1756-1836's Inquiry Concerning Political Justice, 1793, which was, for a time, the talk of England. Godwin, son and grandson of dissenting ministers, had himself been a dissenting minister when he lapsed into secularism and became a radical theorist and writer. In his utopian belief in the perfectibility of man, Godwin has been generally bracketed with the distinguished French philosopher and mathematician Condorcet, whose great paean to optimism and progress, sketch for an historical picture of the progress of the human mind, 1794, was remarkably written while in hiding from the Jacobin terror and in the shadow of his arrest and death. But the two optimists were very different. For Condorcet, close friend of Turgot and admirer of Adam Smith, was an individualist and a libertarian, a firm believer in free markets and in the rights of private property. William Godwin, on the other hand, was the world's first anarcho-communist, or rather, voluntary anarcho-communist. For Godwin, while a bitter critic of the coercive state, was an equally hostile critic of private property. 
But in contrast to late 19th century anarcho-communists such as Bakunin and Kropotkin, Godwin did not believe in the imposition of rule by a coercive commune or collective in the name of anarchistic no-rule. Godwin believed not that private property should be expropriated by force, but that individuals, fully using their reason, should voluntarily and altruistically divest themselves of all private property to any passer-by. This system of voluntary abasement, brought about by the perfectibility of human reason, would result in total equality without private property. In his voluntarism, Godwin was thus the ancestor of both the coercive communist and the individualist strains of nineteenth-century anarchist thought. In his way, however, Godwin was every bit as, and even more, appreciative of the benefits of individual freedom and a free society as was Condorcet. He was sure that population would never grow beyond the limits of the food supply, for he was convinced that there is a principle in the nature of human society by means of which everything seems to tend to its level, and to proceed in the most auspicious way when least interfered with by the mode of regulation. The Marquis de Condorcet, sensibly enough, was also not worried about excessive population growth, wrecking the future libertarian and free-market utopia that he envisaged for the future of man. He was not worried because he believed that on the one hand science, technology, and free markets would greatly expand the subsistence available, while reason would persuade people to limit population to numbers that could be readily sustained. William Godwin, however, was not content with this intelligent treatment of the problem. On the contrary, in the first place Godwin worried, in proto-Malthusian fashion, that population did always tend to press on resources so as to keep living standards down to subsistence level. He believed, however, in some sort of leap in being, a new Godwinian man, and institutions where reason would instead prevail. It would prevail, in fact, by reason making man master of his passions, to such an extent that sexual passion would gradually become extinct, and advancing health would make man immortal. We would, then, have a future human race of immortal and ever-aging adults, a utopia that seems impossibly dotty. The men, therefore, will probably cease to propagate. The whole will be a people of men, and not of children. Generation will not succeed generation, nor truth have, in a certain degree, to recommence her career every thirty years. There will be no war, no crimes, no administration of justice, as it is called, and no government. Every man will seek, with ineffable ardor, the good of all. William Godwin had learned of the alleged eternal pressure of population down to subsistence from Dr. Robert Wallace, 1697-1771, a Scottish Presbyterian minister who had set forth his allegedly utopian government in his Various Prospects of Mankind, 1761. 
Wallace's ideal utopia was a world government which imposed totalitarian communism, compelling equality and eradicating private property. The state would bring up all children, and all would be taken care of. The fly in the ointment, however, the serpent in Eden, would be population growth. The marvelous conditions provided by world communism would lead to population growing so rapidly that mass misery and starvation would prevail. As Wallace lamented, under a perfect government the inconveniences of having a family would be so entirely removed, children would be so well taken care of, and everything become so favorable to populousness, that mankind would increase so prodigiously that the earth would at last be overstocked, and become unable to support its numerous inhabitants. There would not even be sufficient room for containing their bodies upon the surface of the earth. Hence, utopian communism would have to be abandoned. William Godwin was too ready to accept Wallace's mechanistic worry about population growth, but thought rather bizarrely that the withering away of sex would provide the cure for Wallace's problem and ensure that egalitarian anarcho-communism would prevail. Daniel Malthus was just the sort of man to be deeply impressed by the Godwinian utopia, and he and his son Robert spent many happy hours arguing over Godwin's political justice, its second edition, 1796, and his follow-up collection of essays, The Inquirer, 1797. Robert decided to write a book clobbering these utopian fantasies once and for all, and dredged up the specter of population growth as the inevitable rock upon which such fantasies would inevitably founder and collapse. Hence the publication in 1798 of the first edition of Malthus's immensely popular and controversial Essay on the Principle of Population as it Affects the Future Improvement of Society. The essay went through five more editions in Malthus' lifetime, gained him the nickname of Population Malthus, and gave rise to literally millions of words of heated controversy. There was virtually nothing in Malthus' essay that had not been in Giovanni Botero two centuries earlier, or, for that matter, in Robert Wallace. As in Botero, all improvements in living standards are in vain, giving rise to an immediate and deadly pressure of population growth upon the means of subsistence. Once again, such mechanistic burgeoning of population can only be limited by the positive check of war, famine, and pestilence, supplemented by the rather weak preventive check of fewer births spurred by continuing starvation preventive, or negative, check. There is only one thing that Malthus added to the Botero model, the spurious mathematical precision of his famous statement that population tends to go on doubling itself every twenty-five years, or increases in a geometrical ratio, while the means of subsistence increase in an arithmetical ratio. 
It is not easy to see why Botero's anti-population hysteria was properly and understandably ignored in an age of joint growth in population and living standards, while Malthus, writing in a similar period of growth, should sweep the Western world. One reason was undoubtedly the fact that Malthus set himself with verve and self-assurance against the highly popular and influential writings of Godwin, as well as against the ideals of the French Revolution. Another was the fact that, by the time his essay appeared, British intellectuals and public were turning rapidly away from the French Revolution in a burst of reaction, oppression, and continuing war against France. Malthus had the good fortune of being in tune with the latest twist of the zeitgeist. But a third element explained his instant renown, the spurious air of the scientific that his alleged ratios gave to a doctrine in an age that was increasingly looking for models of human behavior and its study in mathematics and the hard physical sciences. For spurious Malthus's ratios undoubtedly were. There was no proof whatever for either of these alleged ratios. The absurdly mechanistic view that people unchecked would breed like fruit flies cannot be demonstrated by simply spelling out the implications of the alleged doubling itself every twenty-five years. For example, taking the population of the world at any number— a thousand millions, for instance, the human species would increase in the ratio of one, two, four, eight, sixteen, thirty-two, sixty-four, one hundred twenty-eight, two hundred fifty-six, five hundred twelve, and so forth, and subsistence as one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and so forth. In two centuries and a quarter, the population would be to the means of subsistence as 512 to 10. In a few more centuries, at the same rate, the ratio of population to subsistence would begin to approach infinity. This is scarcely demonstrable in any sense, certainly not by referring to the actual history of human population, which in most of Europe remained more or less constant for centuries before the Industrial Revolution. Still less is there proof of Malthus' proclaimed arithmetical ratio, where he simply assumes that the supply of food will increase by the same amount for decade after decade. Malthus' one attempt at proof of his ratios was extraordinarily feeble. Priding himself on relying on experience, Malthus noted that the population of the North American colonies had increased for a long while in the geometric ratio of doubling every twenty-five years. But this example hardly demonstrates the fearful outstripping by population of the arithmetically increasing food supply. For, as Edwin Cannon astutely notes, this population must have been fed, and consequently the annual produce of food must also have increased in a geometrical ratio. His example proved nothing. 
Cannon adds that by the sixth chapter of his essay, Malthus seems to have had some inkling of this objection to his argument, and he tries to reply in a footnote that, in instances of this kind, the powers of the earth appear to be fully equal to answer all the demands for food that can be made upon it by man. But we should be led into an error if we were thence to suppose that population and food ever really increase in the same ratio. But since this is precisely what had happened, Malthus is clearly totally unwitting that the second sentence in this note is in flat contradiction to the first. Malthus' pessimistic conclusion about man thus contrasted with the optimism of his beloved Adam Smith, as well as with Godwin. For if the inexorable pressure of population growth is always and everywhere destroying any hope of living standards being above subsistence, then the result is not only gloomy for any communist or egalitarian utopia, it provides an equally gloomy prognosis for the free market society envisioned by Smith, or, far more consistently, by Condorcet. Yet, unfortunately, in his understandable eagerness to demolish the case for egalitarian communism, Malthus threw out the baby with the bathwater, and also cast an unnecessary pall on the far more rational utopian prognoses of the free society and private property by Smith and especially Condorcet. It was easy for Malthus to dismiss brusquely Godwin's absurd reliance on the demise of sex to solve the problem of overpopulation, but his treatment of Condorcet's position was far less cogent, for the sophisticated French aristocrat had strongly implied that birth control played a major role in his optimism about the libertarian future. While modern neo-Malthusians are enthusiastic not only about birth control, but also sterilization and abortion as means of family planning, the conservative Malthus drew back in horror from any hint of such measures, which he saw simply as vice. Malthus denounced Condorcet's solution as either a promiscuous concubinage, which would prevent breeding, or something else as unnatural. To remove the difficulty in this way will surely, in the opinion of most men, destroy that virtue and purity of manners which the advocates of equality and of the perfectibility of man profess to be the end and object of their views. A sally that might apply neatly to Godwin, but scarcely to Condorcet, for whom purity was scarcely an overriding concern. In fact, Malthus held out little hope for mankind. His one practical proposal was the gradual abolition of the poor law, and especially of the idea of the right of the poor to be supported by the state. That would discourage excessive breeding among the poor. All in all, Schumpeter's scathing assessment of the essay of 1798 was well deserved. Malthus, he wrote, held that population was actually and inevitably increasing faster than subsistence, and that this was the reason for the misery observed. 
the geometrical and arithmetical ratios of these increases, to which Malthus seems to have attached considerable importance, as well as his other attempts at mathematical precision, are nothing but faulty expressions of this view, which can be passed by here with the remark that there is, of course, no point whatever in trying to formulate independent laws for the behavior of two interdependent quantities. The performance as a whole is deplorable in technique, and little short of foolish in substance. Poor Godwin, however, unfortunately did not come to a similar assessment, at least not immediately. He was, after all, not a scholar of population theory, and he had no immediately effective reply. It took Godwin all of two decades to study the problem thoroughly and come to an effective refutation of his nemesis. In On Population, 1820, Godwin came to the cogent and sensible conclusion that population growth is not a bogey, because over the decades the food supply would increase and the birth rate would fall. Science and technology, along with rational limitation of birth, would solve the problem. Unfortunately, Godwin's timing could not have been worse. By 1820, the aging Godwin, along with utopianism and even the French Revolution, had been forgotten in Great Britain. His excellent rebuttal went unread and unsung, while Malthus continued to tower over all as the much-admired final word on the population question. His essay being world-famous, and Godwin and Condorcet, as he believed, effectively disposed of, Malthus now decided to spend some years actually studying the population problem. Remarkably, Malthus' second edition of the essay in 1803, on which all five future editions were based, was a very different work. In fact, Malthus' essay is one of the rare works in the history of economic thought whose second edition, in effect, totally contradicted the first. The second edition incorporated the fruits of Malthus' study on population through his travels in Europe. Filled with copious statistics, the new edition was fully three times the size of the first. But that was the least of the changes. For whereas in the first edition the preventive check was minor and hopeless, as well as a generally vicious possibility for solution, Malthus now acknowledged that another negative or preventive check, one that entailed neither vice nor misery, was a real possibility for ameliorating or even suspending the eternal pressure of population upon the food supply. This was moral restraint, that is, chastity and restraint from early marriage, which was moral and not vicious because it involved neither birth control nor other forms of irregular gratification or improper acts. Indeed, for Malthus, moral restraint now became the most powerful check on population of them all, more powerful even than vice or the misery and starvation of the previously dominant positive check. As a result, human beings were no longer viewed as the puppets of inexorable and gloomy forces, which could now be overcome by moral restraint and moral education. 
In the first edition, indeed, Malthus stood opposed to any growth of leisure or luxury in society, for such increasing ease would eliminate the extreme pressure needed to awaken naturally slothful man into working hard and maintaining maximum production. But now his view had changed. Now Malthus realized that if the poor were to acquire the qualities of the middle class, and hence a taste for the conveniences and comforts of life, they would be more likely to exercise the moral restraint necessary to maintain that way of life. As Malthus now wrote, it is the diffusion of luxury, therefore, among the mass of the people that seems to be most advantageous. Malthus now emphasized another proposed moral reform in keeping with his new position, that people try to reduce the number of children by marrying at a later date. Such moral restraint, he was now convinced, entailed neither of the two dread checks of vice or misery. Alexander Gray's discussion of this theme is marked by his characteristic insight and wit. Contrary to the usual view as to what is involved in Malthusianism, he restricts himself to telling us not to be in too great a hurry to get married, with a special appeal to his women readers, who, if they could look forward with just confidence to marriage at twenty-seven or twenty-eight, should and would prefer to wait until then, however impatiently the privation might be borne by the men. This is the voice of a dear and kindly old uncle, rather than the monster for whom Malthus has so frequently been mistaken, and it is as ineffective as the advice of an uncle in such matters usually is, for even with marriage at twenty-eight there is time for a disconcerting and devastating torrent of children. Oddly enough, however, Malthus' new view was not very far removed from his enemy Godwin's invocation of virtue, prudence, or pride in limiting the growth of population. Shorn of the nonsense of the withering away of sex, Godwin was now vindicated, and Malthus seemed implicitly to agree by taking the refutation of Godwin and Condorcet, who had now faded from public view, out of the title page of the second edition. Unfortunately, however, Malthus never acknowledged any change whatever. Godwin rightly complained that Malthus had co-opted his own major criticism without credit or even acknowledging the abandonment of his own views. Malthus maintained from 1803 onwards that his thesis had not at all been changed, but only elaborated and improved. His changes were stuck into the text in passing, while he continued to place great importance upon his arbitrary ratios. His changes were evasive rather than frank. For example, in his second edition, Malthus quietly removed the self-contradictory note in which he denied that food could ever increase geometrically, or as much as population. In fact, he virtually admits that food has sometimes increased geometrically in new colonies, that is, in North America. Instead, he now confined his self-confident assertions to prophecy, a prophecy which the growth of living standards in England proved to be wrong within his own lifetime. 
And yet, Malthus continued to write that his ratios were self-evident, even though he conceded that it was impossible to find out what the rate of increase of unchecked population would actually be. In the end, as Cannon justly declares, the essay on the principle of population falls to the ground as an argument, and remains only a chaos of facts collected to illustrate the effect of laws which do not exist. Malthus, in fact, had executed a cunning and successful tactical maneuver— he had introduced enough qualifications and concessions to fuzz over his argument. He and his followers could maintain the full arrogance and error of the first edition, and then, if challenged, beat a clever retreat by bringing up the qualifications and asserting that Malthus had anticipated and met all the charges against him. He was able to maintain the hard-nosed position of his first edition while being able to fall back on the cloudy concessions of his second. As Schumpeter writes, the new formulation made it indeed possible for adherents to this day to take the ground that Malthus had foreseen and accounted for practically everything opponents might say. He adds that this does not alter the fact that all the theory gains thereby is orderly retreat with the artillery lost. Unfortunately, however, neither Malthus' followers nor even many of his astute critics realized this point. And so, Malthus and his followers had ensconced themselves in the security of a theory that, regardless of the facts, could never be refuted or they could fall back on what Schumpeter calls the horrible triviality that if, indeed, population increased geometrically forever, and food barely increased at all, then enormous crowding and misery would result. Unfortunately, Malthus' own self-serving interpretation of the changes of his second edition was adopted by nearly all his contemporaries, friends and critics alike, as well as by historians until recent years. Most of Malthus' readers, for one thing, had been swept away by the verve and panache of his first edition, and simply didn't bother reading the much longer and stodgier second. Instead, they simply and conveniently interpreted the new material as merely empirical documentation of Malthus' original thesis. Even his more thoughtful readers interpreted moral restraint as just another negative check on population, a mere refinement of the basic theory. And so, thus protected and interpreted, Malthus' fallacious and inchoate principle of population carried the day, and adopted enthusiastically by Ricardo and his followers, was to become enshrined into British classical economics. As we shall see further in Volume 2, even though Nassau W. Sr., in effect, devastatingly refuted Malthus, his own piety toward Malthus and his image allowed Malthusianism to remain at least officially enshrined in economic thought. It is an unfortunate story. Thus, as Schumpeter writes, the teaching of Malthus' essay became firmly entrenched in the system of economic orthodoxy of the time, in spite of the fact that it should have been, and in a sense was, recognized as fundamentally untenable or worthless by 1803. 
it became the right view on population, which only ignorance or obliquity could possibly fail to accept, part and parcel of the set of eternal truth that had been observed once for all. Objectors might be lectured if they were worthy of the effort, but they could not be taken seriously. No wonder that some people, utterly disgusted at this intolerable presumption, which had so little to back it, began to loathe this science of economics, quite independently of class or party considerations, a feeling that has been an important factor in that science's fate ever after. Certainly the triumph of the Malthusian fallacy played an important role in the common view that the science of economics itself was and is cold, hard-hearted, excessively rational, and opposed to the lives and welfare of people. The idea of economics being anti-human reached a bold and unforgettable expression in Dickens' Scrooge, the caricature of a Malthusian who cackled that poverty and starvation would be helpful in reducing the surplus population. In the last half of the nineteenth century, as Schumpeter writes, the interest of economists in the population question declined but they rarely failed to pay their respects to the shibboleth. Then, in the early decades of the twentieth century, at the very same time as the birth rate in the Western world began to decline sharply, economists revived their interest in Malthusian doctrine. Schumpeter's irony was properly bitter. An ordinary mortal might have thought that the fall in the birth rate and the rapidly approaching goal of a stationary population should have set worrying economists at rest. But that mortal would thereby have proved that he knew nothing about economists. Instead, at the same time that more economists stressed Malthusianism, others stressed precisely the reverse— while some of them were still fondling the Malthusian toy, others zestfully embraced a new one. Deprived of the pleasure of worrying themselves and of sending cold shivers down the spines of other people on account of the prospective or present horrors of overpopulation, they started worrying themselves and others on account of a prospectively empty world. By the 1930s, in fact, economists and politicians were howling about the imminence of race suicide and an excessively falling birth rate. The Great Depression, as we shall see, was blamed by some economists on a birth rate which had started falling decades before. Governments such as France, mindful also of their need for cannon fodder, gave bounties to large families. Then, by the 1960s and 1970s, anti-population hysteria arose again, with ever more strident calls for voluntary or even compulsory zero-population growth, and countries such as India and China experimented with compulsory sterilization or compulsory abortion. Characteristically, the height of the hysteria in the early 1970s came after the 1970 census in the United States noted a significant decrease in the birth rate and the beginnings of an approach toward a stationary state of population. 
It was also observed that various third-world countries were beginning to see a marked slowing of the birth rate, a few decades after the fall in death rate due to the infusion of Western advances in medicine and sanitation. It looked again as if people's habituation to higher living standards will lead them to lower the birth rate after a generation of enjoying the fruits of lower death rates. Population levels will indeed tend to adapt to maintain cherished standards of living. It looks as if Godwin was right, that given freedom, individuals in society and the marketplace will tend to make the correct birth decisions. 4. Resistance and Triumph in Germany in contrast to Great Britain, the German-speaking countries were predictably highly resistant to the spread of Smithian views. They had been ruled ever since the late 16th century by Cameralism. Cameralists, named after the German royal treasure chamber, the Kammer, propounded an extreme form of mercantilism, concentrating even more than their confrères in the West on building up state power and subordinating all parts of the economy and polity to the state and its bureaucracy. Whereas mercantilist writers were generally pamphleteers scrambling for some particular form of state advantage, the Cameralists were either bureaucrats in one of the 360 tyrannical German states, or else university professors advising the princes and their bureaucracy how best to maximize their revenue and power. As Albion Small put it, to the Cameralists the object of all social theory was to show how the welfare of the state might be secured. They saw in the welfare of the state the source of all other welfare. Their key to the welfare of the state was revenue to supply the needs of the state. The whole social theory radiated from the central task of furnishing the state with ready means. As professors, the Cameralists wrote lengthy tomes cataloging various parts of the economy and the plans the government should make for each of these parts. The Cameralists lauded virtually all forms of government intervention, sometimes to the point of a collectivist welfare-warfare state. They could scarcely be called economists, since they had no notion of regular economic law that could reach beyond or nullify the plans of state power. The first major Cameralist was Georg von Obrecht, 1547-1612, son of the mayor of Strasbourg, who went on to be a famous professor of law at the university in that town. His lectures were published posthumously, 1617, by his son. In the next generation, the one important Cameralist was Christoph Besold, 1577-1638, born in Tübingen, and later a highly influential law professor at the University of Tübingen. Besold wrote over ninety books, all in Latin, of which the Synopsis Politicae Doctrinae, 1623, was the most relevant to economics. Another influential Cameralist of the early seventeenth century was Jakob Bornitz, 1570-1630, 
a Saxon who was the first systematizer of fiscal policy, and who urged close supervision of industry by the state. Another contemporary, who, however, wrote later, in the middle of the seventeenth century, was Caspar Clock, 1584-1655, who studied law at Marburg and Cologne, and later became a bureaucrat in Bremen, Minden, and, finally, in Stolberg. Clock published the most famous Cameralist work to that date, the Tractus Juridico-Politico-Polemico-Historicus de Irario. The most towering figure of German Cameralism came shortly thereafter, Veit Ludwig von Seckendorf, 1626-1692, who has been called the father of Cameralism, was born in Erlangen and educated in the University of Strasbourg. He went on to become a top bureaucrat for several German states, beginning with Gotha, during which he wrote Der Teutscher Furstenstadt, 1656. This book, a sophisticated apologia for the German absolutism of the day, went through eight editions, and continued to be read in German universities for over a century. Zeckendorf ended his days as chancellor at the University of Halle. During the late seventeenth century, Cameralism took firm hold in Austria. Johann Joachim Becker, 1635-1682, born in Speyer, and alchemist and court physician at Mainz, soon became economic advisor to Emperor Leopold I of Austria, and manager of various state-owned enterprises. Becker, who strongly influenced Austrian economic policy, called for state-regulated trading companies for foreign trade, and a state board of commerce to supervise all domestic economic affairs. A pre-Keynesian, he was deeply impressed by the income flow insight that one man's expenditure is, by definition, another man's income and he called for inflationary measures to stimulate consumer demand. His well-known work was Politischer Diskurs, 1668. Schumpeter described Becker as brimming over with plans and projects, but some of these plans did not pan out, as Becker ended up fleeing from the wrath of his creditors. Apparently his own consumer demand had been stimulated to excess. Becker's brother-in-law, Philip Wilhelm von Hornig, 1638-1712, was another Mainzer who became influential in Austria. He studied at Ingolstadt, practiced law in Vienna, and then entered the government. His Austrian chauvinist tract, Österreich über alles, wann es nur will, Austria over all if she only will, 1684, proving highly popular. Von Hornig's central theme was the importance of making Austria self-sufficient, cut off from all trade. A third contemporary German Cameralist in Austria was Wilhelm Freiherr von Schröder, 1640-1688. Born in Königsberg and a student of law at the University of Jena, Schröder also became influential as an advisor to Emperor Leopold I of Austria. 
Schroeder managed a state factory, was court financial counselor in Hungary, and set forth his views in his Fürstliche Schatz und Rentkammer, 1686. Schroeder was an extreme advocate of the divine right of princes. His cameralism emphasized the importance of speeding the circulation of money and of having a banking system that could expand the supply of notes and deposits. The system of cameralism was set in concrete in Germany by the mid-18th century work of Johann Heinrich Gottlieb von Eusti, 1717-1771. Eusti was a Thuringian who studied law at several universities and then taught at Vienna and at the University of Göttingen. He then went to Prussia to become director of mines, superintendent of factories, and finally administrator of mines in Berlin. Eusti's work was the culmination of cameralism, including and incorporating all its past tendencies, and emphasizing the importance of comprehensive planning for a welfare state. Characteristically, Eusti emphasized the vital importance of freedom, but freedom turned out to be merely the opportunity to obey the edicts of the bureaucracy. Eusti also stressed the alleged alienation of the worker in a system of factories and an advanced division of labor. Among his numerous works, the most important were Staatswirtschaft, 1755, the System des Finanzwesens, 1766, and his two-volume, the Groundwork of the Power and Welfare of States, 1760 and 1761. Eusti, however, came a cropper on his own welfare in the welfare state, and over his own unwillingness to obey the laws of the realm. Because of irregularities in his accounts as administrator of the Prussian mines, Eusti was thrown into jail, where he died. The other towering figure of 18th-century German cameralism was a follower of Eusti, Baron Josef von Sonnenfels, 1732-1817. Born in Moravia, the son of a rabbi, Sonnenfels emigrated to Vienna, where he became the first professor of finance and cameralistics, and became a leading advisor to three successive Austro-Hungarian emperors. An absolutist, mercantilist, and welfare state proponent, Sonnenfels' views were set forth in his Grundsätze der Polizei, Handlung und Finanzwissenschaft, 1765-1767. His book, remarkably enough, remained the official textbook of the Austro-Hungarian monarchy until 1848. In this atmosphere, deeply permeated with cameralism, it is no wonder that Smith's wealth of nations made little headway at first in Germany. However, Britain had an important foothold in Germany, for the electorate of Hanover was a continental possession of the British dynasty in the heart of Prussia, and therefore this land was under strong British cultural influence. Hence the first German review of the Wealth of Nations appeared in the official journal of the University of Göttingen in Hanover. The University of Göttingen had developed the most respected department of philosophy, history, and social science in Germany, 
and by the 1790s it had become a flourishing nucleus of Smithianism in the otherwise hostile German climate. Taking the lead in introducing Adam Smith into German thought was Friedrich Georg Sartorius, Freiherr von Woltershausen, 1765-1828. Sartorius was born in Kassel and studied theology and history at the University of Göttingen. Soon Sartorius taught history at Göttingen, by the 1790s expanding his repertoire to courses in political science and economics. Sartorius published selections of Adam Smith's works, and his Handbuch der Staatswirtschaft, Berlin, 1796, was explicitly an economic textbook summarizing the views of Adam Smith. An expanded summary of Smith's work appeared a decade later as Concerning the Elements of National Wealth and State Economy According to Adam Smith, 1806. In the same year, however, there appeared another volume which set forth Sartorius' own views, as well as where they differed from the master. Essays on National Wealth and State Economy, 1806. Sartorius differs from Smith's odd value theory and affirms that the main source of value in its use is consumption. The value of labor, too, is determined by its usefulness, and therefore it cannot serve as an invariable measure of value, and neither can money, since money prices are also subject to the changing interplay of supply and demand. Sartorius therefore finds Smith's labor theory of value a strange and deceptive conclusion. Unfortunately, Sartorius' other main deviation from Smith is a great weakening of Smith's already shaky devotion to laissez-faire. Sartorius advised frequent interventions by the state. Sartorius was one of a great quartet of professors who propagated Smithian doctrine in Germany. Another was Christian Jakob Krauss, 1753-1807, a distinguished philosopher who was born in East Prussia and studied under Immanuel Kant at the University of Königsberg, later becoming a close friend of Kant. Krauss took his doctorate at the University of Halle, but spent a formative year at Göttingen, where he imbibed a lasting interest in economics. After gaining his doctorate in 1780, Krauss became professor of practical philosophy and Camaralia at the University of Königsberg, where he taught not only philosophy, but also the Greek classics, history, English literature, and mathematics. By the early 1790s, however, Krauss's interests became entirely devoted to economics. Indeed, Krauss was one of the first persons in Germany to acclaim the wealth of nations, which he hailed as the only true, great, beautiful, just, and beneficial system. Krauss greeted Adam Smith with none of the deviations or hesitations that had beset Sartorius. In fact, he trumpeted the wealth of nations as certainly one of the most important and beneficial books that have ever been written. Krauss even dared to liken Smith's book to the New Testament. Certainly, since the times of the New Testament, no writing has had more beneficial results than this will have.
Curiously enough, for a German academic, Krauss published very little during his lifetime. He was, however, a highly influential teacher. His lectures at Königsberg were always crowded, and he was considered the most important professor there, with the exception of Kant. After his death, Krauss's friends published all his manuscript writings, the most important of which was Die Staatswirtschaft, five volumes, Königsberg, 1808-1811. The first four volumes of this work were essentially a paraphrase of Smith's Wealth of Nations, substituting Prussian for British examples. The fifth volume of Die Staatswirtschaft was by far the most important, for there Krauss presented his own contribution to Smithian economics. Krauss addressed himself to Prussian economic policy in lecture form. The volume was an incisive call for individualism, free markets, free trade, and a drastic reduction of government intervention. Krauss began with the fundamental insight that every individual wants to improve his lot. The desire and effort of each individual to improve his lot is the basis of all state economy, like the force of gravity in the universe. But if men wish to improve their own lot, then government coercion, requiring certain actions or forbidding others, must necessarily cripple and distort such effort at improvement. For otherwise, why don't individuals do what government wants of their own accord, and without coercion? And since they don't wish to do so, they will seek means of evading the government mandates and prohibitions. In all these cases, and in stark contrast to the Cameralists, Krauss puts himself in the point of view of the individuals in society subject to government edicts, and not in the point of view of the officials issuing the decrees. A charming memorial to Christian Krauss was set forth to a friend by the great statesman of reform, Baron Karl von Stein, 1757-1831. Stein said of his friend and adviser, The whole province, Prussia, has gained in light and culture through him. His views forced their way into all parts of life, into the government and legislation. If he has set up no brilliant new ideas, he has at least been no glory-seeking sophist, to have presented the plain truth clearly and purely and correctly expressed, and to have communicated to thousands of auditors successfully, is a greater service than to arouse attention through chatter and paradoxes. Krauss had an unassuming but genial personality, which laid strong hold on its environment. He had flashes of new insight and great applications, and often astonished us by his unexpected conclusions. Reading his writings, everything there is clear and simple, and, at present, you need nothing more. A third member of the Smithian professorial quadrumvirate in Germany was August Ferdinand Luder, 1760-1819. Luther was also a product of the University of Göttingen, studying there and becoming professor of philosophy. He was also a history professor and court counselor in Brunswick. 
Luder had done a great deal of work in historical and geographical statistics, publishing the Statistical Compendia, Historical Portfolio, 1787 and 1788, and Repository for History, Statistics, and Policy, 1802-1805. But in the meantime, Luder read Adam Smith and became an enthusiast, publishing a Smithian work in 1800-1802, on national industry and state economy. In addition to a compendium of Smith's views, Luder provides an impassioned defense of freedom in all its social and political aspects, as well as in the strictly economic sphere. As Luder wrote in another work, I hazarded everything for freedom, truth, and justice, for freedom of industry as well as of opinions, of hand as of spirit, of person as well as of property. A fascinating aspect of Auguste Luder is that he was driven both by Smithian methodology and by his devotion to freedom to repudiate his beloved life work, the investigation into national statistics. For not only would statistics mislead government policymakers, but government planners could scarcely hope to plan at all without a raft of statistics at their command. Statistics is not only misleading, therefore, it becomes a necessary condition for the very government intervention which must be repudiated. Luder leveled his criticisms in two volumes on statistics, Criticism of Statistics and State Policy, 1812, and Critical History of Statistics. In the preface to his criticism, Luder wrote movingly, on the strongest pillars and the firmest foundation, the structure of statistics and policy seemed to me to rest. I had devoted the happiest hours of my life and the greatest part of my time to statistics and policy. Everything in me could not but revolt at the convictions which pressed upon me. But the current of the times flowed too swiftly— Ideas, which had entered my very marrow, had to be reviewed and exchanged for others. One prejudice after another had to be recognized as prejudice. More and more indefensible appeared one rotten prop after another, one rent and tear after the other. Finally, to my no small terror, the whole structure of statistics collapsed, and with it policy, which can accomplish nothing without statistics. As my insight grew and my viewpoint cleared, the fruits of statistics and policy appeared more and more frightful. All those hindrances which both threw in the path of industry, whereby not only welfare but culture and humanity were hindered, all those hindrances to the natural course of things, all those sacrifices brought to an unknown idol, called the welfare of the state or the commonweal, and bought with ridicule of all principles of philosophy, religion, and sound common sense, at the cost of morality and virtue. With such perceptive insight into the evils of statistics and policy, one shudders to think of Luder's reaction to the current world, where statistics and policy, both then in their infancy, have spread and virtually conquered the earth.
The fourth influential German Smithian academic was Ludwig Heinrich von Jakob, 1759-1827. Jakob studied at Halle and then taught at the University of Kharkov in the Ukraine. As a result, Jakob became a consultant to several commissions at St. Petersburg and helped spread Smithian economics to Russia. But for most of his life, Jakob taught political economy and philosophy at the University of Halle, where, like Christian Krauss, he combined Kant and Smith's individualism into an economic and philosophical whole. Like Krauss also, Jakob played an important advisory role in the liberal Stein-Hardenberg reforms in Prussia. His most important work was his Principles of Economics, 1805. At any rate, under the influence of the quadrumvirate of Sartorius, Krauss, Luder, and Jakob, the Smithians rather rapidly took over one economics department after another from the older Cameralists, who were pushed back, where they more properly belonged, into the departments of law and administration. Smithian views also penetrated the civil service and were responsible for the important failed liberal reforms in the early 19th century of Stein and Hardenberg in Prussia. Stein and Hardenberg, it should be added, had both studied at the University of Göttingen. In a little over a decade, Smithianism had triumphed over Cameralism in Germany. 5. Smithianism in Russia Smithianism also began to penetrate Russian political culture. Cultural and intellectual life had only begun to flower in that backward and despotic empire in the mid-18th century. The University of Moscow, the first university in Russia, started at the late date of 1755. Enlightenment ideas spread in Russia, and we have seen that Catherine the Great, at least, flirted briefly with physiocracy. French was the language of the Russian court, and so any ideas prevailing in France, the home of the Enlightenment, had to be taken seriously in Moscow and St. Petersburg. In addition, the Scottish version of the 18th-century Enlightenment was, in a sense, carried to Russia by the fact that a large number of Scottish professionals—doctors, soldiers, engineers—resided and worked in that country. Scottish Enlightenment books were translated, generally into French, and published in Russia. In the 1760s, it was the custom of Empress Elizabeth of Russia, the daughter of Peter the Great, to select outstanding students to finish their studies abroad. As a result, the Empress made the fateful choice of sending to Scotland in 1761 two men who would be particularly instrumental in spreading Smithian ideas to Russia. The more important of the two was Semyon Efimovich Desnitsky, son of a Ukrainian petty bourgeois, and his lifelong friend and classmate at university, Ivan Andreevich Tretyakov, 1735-1776, son of an army officer. The two studied at Glasgow University for six years, studying eagerly under Adam Smith until the latter left his chair at Glasgow in 1764. 
At Glasgow, Desnitsky and Tretyakov heard Smith's Wealth of Nations lectures, and also studied under Smith's colleague and former student, John Millar. When the two Russian students were in financial difficulty, Adam Smith lent them money to tide them over. The two Russians returned to Moscow in 1768, imbued with Smithian doctrine, and promptly became the first Russian professors of law at Moscow University. In Moscow, the young Smithians ran into strong faculty hostility. The majority of professors at Moscow University had been German, and the Germans strongly opposed the successful drive by the younger Russians to teach in Russian rather than Latin, and even more were the Germans hostile to the two Smithians' liberal, reformist, and anti-clerical views. Desnitsky and Tretyakov each published a Smithian book in their first year back in Russia. Both books were largely verbatim transcriptions of Smith's lectures, with Desnitsky ghostwriting Tretyakov's volume. Of the two from that point on, Tretyakov was the more faithful Smithian. Desnitsky more the independent thinker. Both men were dominant in the political and law faculty at Moscow University, with Desnitsky becoming known as the outstanding Russian social and political theorist of the second half of the 18th century, as well as the father of Russian jurisprudence. Desnitsky also translated the great Blackstone into Russian. Empress Catherine the Great became interested in the latest intellectual craze, the Scottish Enlightenment, and, on Desnitsky's return from Russia, commissioned him to write a Smithian reform plan for Russia, a massive volume, the Predstavlany, which he finished and sent to Catherine in 1768. Its basic thrust was that of moderate political reform, Desnitsky proposed a system of two-house representation, along with independent life-appointed judges, serving as checks and balances on the executive and legislature. Catherine the Great read the Predstavlany, and incorporated politically trivial suggestions into her famous 1768 reform decree, the Nakaz, which was translated into English, French, and German. The Predstavlany itself, however, was far too radical to see the light of day, and it remained unpublished until the revolutionary year of 1905, when it inspired liberal reformers and was reprinted twice in rapid succession. The influence of Smithianism in Russia was redoubled by the fact that Princess Ekaterina Dashkova resided in Scotland in the late 1770s, while her son studied at Edinburgh University. Dashkova wrote proudly of her close friendship with such immortals as Adam Smith, the Reverend William Robertson, Adam Ferguson, and Hugh Blair. But despite their eminence, the hostility of the Russian state and church, seconded by most of the Moscow faculty to the two jurists' liberal views, got them ousted from their university posts. Each was forcibly retired from the university, Tretyakov in 1773 and Desnitsky in 1787, and each died early, a few years after their ouster. 
Picking up the Smithian torch for the next Russian generation was a German Smithian, usually considered a Russian by historians. He was the Baltic German nobleman Heinrich Friedrich Freiherr von Stuch, 1766-1835. Born in Riga and educated at Jena and Heidelberg, Storch spent his life high up in the Russian civil service, becoming a professor at the Imperial Cadet Corps at St. Petersburg, and educating the future Tsar Nicholas I and his younger brother in Smithian political economy. Helping to bring Smithianism to Russia, von Storch wrote in German a nine-volume historical and statistical work on Russia at the end of the 18th century, 1797 to 1803, and later wrote a treatise on economics in French, Cours d'économie politique, 1815. The book was published in St. Petersburg for the education of the future Tsar. A moderate Smithian, von Storch, sensibly rejected the idea that some labor was unproductive, and dabbled in a form of pre-Keynesian income analysis in his last work in 1824. 6. The Smithian Conquest of Economic Thought by the turn of the nineteenth century, the views and doctrines of Adam Smith had swept the board of European opinion, though they had scarcely been embodied in political institutions. Even in France, as will be seen in the second volume of this series, the pre-Smithian subjective utility-scarcity approach to value, as well as the stress on entrepreneurship in the market, continued to be prominent but only under the cloak of a proclaimed devotion to Adam Smith as the founder of economic theory and free market policy. In the hands of James Mill and Ricardo in England, of J.B. Say in France, and throughout the rest of the continent, Adam Smith would be treated as the embodiment of the new discipline of political economy. There were advantages, but probably greater disadvantages, to this Smithian dominance over economic thought after the 1790s. On the one hand, it meant at least a moderate appreciation of, and devotion to, freedom of trade at home and abroad. Even more solidly, it meant a keen understanding and a steadfast adherence to the virtues of saving and investment, and a refusal to indulge in proto-Keynesian worry about hoarding or under-consumption. Moreover, this adherence to what Schumpeter calls the Turgot-Smith view of saving and investment also meant a determined opposition to wildly inflationary schemes of expansion of money and credit. On the other hand, there were dire costs to economic thought in this Smithian takeover. Even on the monetary front, Smith had gone against his eighteenth-century colleagues in adopting crucial aspects of John Law's inflationary doctrine, in particular praising expansion of bank credit and money within a specie-standard framework. In this way, Smith paved the way for later apologetics on behalf of the Bank of England and its generation of credit expansion. More fatefully, Smith totally set back price and value theory, and led it into a fateful cul-de-sac, from which it took a century to recover. In some respects, it has never 
fully recovered. At the root of Smith's drastic changes in theory was undoubtedly his Calvinist contempt for luxury consumer spending. Hence, only work on material goods, that is, material capital goods, was productive. Hence, too, Smith's interventionist call for usury laws to lower the rate of interest so as to ration savings and channel them away from luxurious consumers and speculative projectors to sober prime borrowers. Smith's contempt for consumers also led him to discard the time-honored subjective utility-scarcity theory of value, and to seek the cause of value not in frivolous consumers, but in real cost or labor pain embodied into the product. Hence Smith's crucial shift of emphasis in economic theory away from consumer demand and actual market prices, and towards unrealistic, long-run equilibrium. For only in long-run equilibrium does a labor pain or cost theory of pricing take on even superficial plausibility. But the exclusive attention to long-run equilibrium led Smith to toss out the entire entrepreneurship and uncertainty approach that had been elaborated by Cantillon and Turgot. For in a timeless final equilibrium there is obviously no problem of change or uncertainty. Smith's labor theory of value led to Marxism and all the horrors to which that creed has given rise and his exclusive emphasis on long-run equilibrium has led to formalistic neoclassicism, which dominates today's economic theory, and to its exclusion from consideration of entrepreneurship and uncertainty. Smith's stress on the economy in perpetual equilibrium also led him to discard his old friend David Hume's important insight, even if inferior to Cantillon's, into the international specie-flow price mechanism, and to the important business cycle analysis that lies clearly implicit in that doctrine. For if the world economy is always in equilibrium, then there is no need to consider or worry about increases in money supply causing price rises and outflows of gold or silver abroad, or to consider the subsequent contraction of money and prices. In essence, then, the common picture of economic thought after Smith needs to be reversed, in the conventional view, Adam Smith, the towering founder, by his theoretical genius and by the sheer weight of his knowledge of institutional facts, single-handedly created the discipline of political economy, as well as the public policy of the free market, and did so out of a jumble of mercantilist fallacies and earlier absurd scholastic notions of a just price, the real story is almost the opposite. Before Smith, centuries of scholastic analysis had developed an excellent value theory and monetary theory, along with corresponding free market and hard money conclusions. Originally embedded among the scholastics in a systematic framework of property rights and contract law based on natural law theory, economic theory and policy had been elaborated still further into a veritable science by Cantillon and Turgot in the 18th century.
Far from founding the discipline of economics single-handed, Adam Smith turned his back not only on the scholastic and French traditions, but even on his own mentors in the considerably more diluted natural law of the Scottish Enlightenment, Gershom Carmichael and his own teacher, Francis Hutcheson. The most unfortunate aspect of the total Smithian takeover in economics was not so much his own considerable tissue of error, but even more the blotting out of knowledge of the rich tradition of economic thought that had developed before Smith. As a result, the Austrians and their nineteenth-century predecessors, largely deprived of knowledge of the pre-Smith tradition, were in many ways forced to reinvent the wheel, to painfully claw their way back to the knowledge that many pre-Smithians had enjoyed long before. Adam Smith and the Consequences of Smith is an outstanding example of the Kuhnian case in the history of a science. In all too many cases, the development of knowledge in a discipline is not a steady, continuous march upward into the light, patiently discarding refuted hypotheses and adding continually to the stock of cumulative knowledge. But rather, the history of the discipline is a zigzag of great gain and loss, of advances in knowledge followed by decay and false leads, and then by periods of attempts to recapture lost knowledge, trying often dimly and against fierce opposition to regain paradigms lost.